The Return of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The Adventure of the Empty House, Part One. It was in the spring of the year 1874 that all London was interested, and the fashionable world dismayed by the murder of the Honorable Ronald Adair under most unusual and inexplicable circumstances. The public has already learned those particulars of the crime which came out in the police investigation, but a good deal was suppressed upon that occasion, since the case for the prosecution was so overwhelmingly strong that it was not necessary to bring forward all the facts. Only now, at the end of nearly ten years, am I allowed to supply those missing links which make up the whole of that remarkable chain. The crime was of interest in itself, but that interest was as nothing to me compared to the inconceivable sequel which afforded me the greatest shock and surprise of any event in my adventurous life. Even now, after this long interval, I find myself thrilling as I think of it, and feeling once more that sudden flood of joy, amazement, and incredulity which utterly submerged my mind. Let me say that to the public, which has shown some interest in those glimpses which I have occasionally given them, of the thoughts and actions of a very remarkable man, that they are not to blame me if I have not shared my knowledge with them, for I should have considered it my first duty to do so, had I not been barred by a positive prohibition from his own lips, which was only withdrawn upon the third of last month. It can be imagined that my close intimacy with Sherlock Holmes had interested me deeply in crime, and that after his disappearance I never failed to read with care the various problems which came before the public. And I even attempted more than once, for my own private satisfaction, to employ his methods in their solution, though with indifferent success. There was none, however, which appealed to me like this tragedy of Ronald Adair. As I read the evidence at the inquest, which led up to a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown, I realized more clearly than I had ever done the loss which the community had sustained by the death of Sherlock Holmes. There were points about this strange business which would, I was sure, have especially appealed to him, and the efforts of the police would have been supplemented, or more probably anticipated, by the trained observation and the alert mind of the first criminal agent in Europe. All day, as I drove upon my round, I turned over the case in my mind, and found no explanation which appeared to me to be adequate. At the risk of telling a twice-told tale, I will recapitulate the facts as they were known to the public at the conclusion of the inquest. The Honourable Ronald Adair was the second son of the Earl of Maynooth, at that time governor of one of the Australian colonies. Adair's mother had returned from Australia to undergo the operation for cataract, and she, her son Ronald, and her daughter Hilda were living together at 427 Park Lane. The youth moved in the best society, had, so far as was known, no enemies and no particular vices he had been engaged to Miss Edith Woodley of Carstairs, but the engagement had been broken off by mutual consent some months before, and there was no sign that it had left any very profound feeling behind it. For the rest, the man's life moved in a narrow and conventional circle, for his habits were quiet and his nature unemotional. Yet it was upon this easy-going young aristocrat that death came, in most strange and unexpected form, between the hours of ten and eleven-thirty, on the night of March thirtieth, eighteen ninety-four. 
Ronald Adair was fond of cards, playing continually, but never for such stakes as would hurt him. He was a member of the Baldwin, the Cavendish, and the Bagatelle card clubs. It was shown that, after dinner on the day of his death, he had played a rubber of whist at the latter club. He had also played there in the afternoon. The evidence of those who had played with him, Mr. Murray, Sir John Hardy, and Colonel Moran, showed that the game was whist, and that there was a fairly equal fall of the cards. Adair might have lost five pounds, but not more. His fortune was a considerable one, and such a loss could not in any way affect him. He had played nearly every day at one club or other, but he was a cautious player, and usually rose a winner. It came out in evidence that, in partnership with Colonel Moran, he had actually won as much as four hundred and twenty pounds in a sitting, some weeks before, from Godfrey Milner and Lord Balmoral. So much for his recent history, as it came out at the inquest. On the evening of the crime, he returned from the club exactly at ten. His mother and sister were out spending the evening with a relation. The servant deposed that she heard him enter the front room on the second floor, generally used as his sitting-room. She had lit a fire there, and as it smoked she had opened the window. No sound was heard from the room until eleven-twenty, the hour of the return of Lady Maynooth and her daughter. Desiring to say good-night, she attempted to enter her son's room. The door was locked on the inside, and no answer could be got to their cries and knocking. Help was obtained, and the door forced. The unfortunate young man was found lying near the table. His head had been horribly mutilated by an expanding revolver bullet, but no weapon of any sort was to be found in the room. On the table lay two bank-notes for ten pounds each, and seventeen pounds ten in silver and gold, the money arranged in little piles of varying amount. There were some figures also upon a sheet of paper, with the names of some club friends opposite to them, from which it was conjectured that before his death he was endeavouring to make out his losses or winnings at cards. A minute examination of the circumstances served only to make the case more complex. In the first place no reason could be given why the young man should have fastened the door upon the inside. There was the possibility that the murderer had done this, and had afterwards escaped by the window. The drop was at least twenty feet, however, and a bed of crocuses in full bloom lay beneath. Neither the flowers nor the earth showed any sign of having been disturbed, nor were there any marks upon the narrow strip of grass which separated the house from the road. Apparently, therefore, it was the young man himself who had fastened the door. But how did he come by his death? No one could have climbed up to the window without leaving traces." Suppose a man had fired through the window, he would indeed be a remarkable shot, who could, with a revolver, inflict so deadly a wound. Again, Park Lane is a frequented thoroughfare. There is a cab-stand within a hundred yards of the house. No one had heard a shot. And yet there was the dead man, and there was the revolver-bullet, which had mushroomed out, as soft-nosed bullets will, and so inflicted a wound which must have caused instantaneous death. Such were the circumstances of the Park Lane mystery, which were further complicated by entire absence of motive, since, as I have said, young Adair was not known to have any enemy, and no attempt had been made to remove the money or valuables in the room. All day I turned these facts over in my mind, endeavouring to hit upon some theory which could reconcile them all, 
and to find that line of least resistance which my poor friend had declared to be the starting point of every investigation. I confess that I made little progress. In the evening I strolled across the park, and found myself about six o'clock at the Oxford Street end of Park Lane. A group of loafers upon the pavements, all staring up at a particular window, directed me to the house which I had come to see. A tall, thin man with colored glasses, whom I strongly suspected of being a plain-clothes detective, was pointing out some theory of his own, while the others crowded round to listen to what he said. I got as near him as I could, but his observations seemed to me to be absurd, so I withdrew again in some disgust. As I did so, I struck against an elderly deformed man, who had been behind me, and I knocked down several books which he was carrying. I remember that as I picked them up, I observed the title of one of them, The Origin of Tree Worship, and it struck me that the fellow must be some poor bibliophile, who, either as a trade or as a hobby, was a collector of obscure volumes. I endeavored to apologize for the accident, but it was evident that these books which I had so unfortunately maltreated were very precious objects in the eyes of their owner. With a snarl of contempt he turned upon his heel, and I saw his curved back and white side-whiskers disappear among the throng. My observations of number 427 Park Lane did little to clear up the problem in which I was interested. The house was separated from the street by a low wall and railing, the whole not more than five feet high. It was perfectly easy, therefore, for any one to get into the garden, but the window was entirely inaccessible, since there was no water-pipe or anything which could help the most active man to climb it. More puzzled than ever, I retraced my steps to Kensington. I had not been in my study five minutes when the maid entered to say that a person desired to see me. To my astonishment it was none other than my strange old book-collector, his sharp, wizened face peering out from a frame of white hair, and his precious volumes, a dozen of them at least, wedged under his right arm. "'You're surprised to see me, sir,' said he, in a strange, croaking voice." I acknowledged that I was. Well, I've a conscience, sir, and when I chanced to see you go into this house, as I came hobbling after you, I thought to myself, I'll just step in and see that kind gentleman, and tell him that if I was a bit gruff in my manner there was not any harm meant, and that I am much obliged to him for picking up my books. You make too much of a trifle, said I. May I ask how you knew who I was?' "'Well, sir, if it isn't too great a liberty, I am a neighbor of yours, for you'll find my little bookshop at the corner of Church Street, and very happy to see you, I'm sure. Maybe you collect yourself, sir. Here's British birds, and Catullus, and the Holy War, a bargain every one of them. With five volumes you could just fill that gap on that second shelf. It looks untidy, does it not, sir?' I moved my head to look at the cabinet behind me. When I turned again, Sherlock Holmes was standing smiling at me across my study table. I rose to my feet, stared at him for some seconds in utter amazement, and then it appears that I must have fainted for the first and the last time in my life. Certainly a gray mist swirled before my eyes, and when it cleared I found my collar ends undone and the tingling aftertaste of brandy upon my lips. Holmes was bending over my chair, his flask in his hand. "'My dear Watson,' said the well-remembered voice, "'I owe you a thousand apologies. "'I had no idea that you would be so affected.' "'I gripped him by the arms. "'Holmes!' I cried. 
"'Is it really you? Can it indeed be that you are alive? Is it possible that you succeeded in climbing out of that awful abyss?' "'Wait a moment,' said he. "'Are you sure that you are really fit to discuss things? I have given you a serious shock by my unnecessarily dramatic reappearance.' "'I am all right, but indeed, Holmes, I can hardly believe my eyes. Good heavens! To think that you, you of all men, should be standing in my study!' Again I gripped him by the sleeve, and felt the thin, sinewy arm beneath it. "'Well, you're not a spirit, anyhow,' I said. "'My dear chap, I'm overjoyed to see you. Sit down, and tell me how you came alive out of that dreadful chasm.' He sat opposite to me, and lit a cigarette in his old, nonchalant manner. He was dressed in the seedy frock-coat of the book-merchant, but the rest of that individual lay in a pile of white hair and old books upon the table. Holmes looked even thinner and keener than of old but there was a dead-white tinge in his aquiline face which told me that his life recently had not been a healthy one. "'I am glad to stretch myself, Watson,' said he. "'It is no joke when a tall man has to take a foot off his stature for several hours on end. Now, my dear fellow, in the manner of these explanations, we have, if I may ask for your cooperation, a hard and dangerous night's work in front of us.' "'Perhaps it would be better if I gave you an account of the whole situation when that work is finished.' "'I am full of curiosity. I should much prefer to hear now.' "'You'll come with me to-night?' "'When you like, and where you like.' "'This is indeed like the old days. We shall have a time for a mouthful of dinner before we need go. Well, then, about that chasm. I had no serious difficulty in getting out of it, for the very simple reason that I was never in it.' "'You never were in it?' "'No, Watson, I never was in it. My note to you was absolutely genuine. I had little doubt that I had come to the end of my career when I perceived the somewhat sinister figure of the late Professor Moriarty standing upon the narrow pathway which led to safety. I read an inexorable purpose in his grey eyes. I exchanged some remarks with him, therefore, and obtained his courteous permission to write the short note which you afterwards received.' I left it, with my cigarette-box and my stick, and I walked along the pathway, Moriarty still at my heels. When I reached the end I stood at bay. He drew no weapon, but he rushed at me and threw his long arms around me. He knew that his own game was up, and was only anxious to revenge himself upon me. We tottered together upon the brink of the fall. I have some knowledge, however, of Baritsu, or the Japanese system of wrestling, which has more than once been very useful to me. I slipped through his grip, and he, with a horrible scream, kicked madly for a few seconds, and clawed the air with both his hands. But for all his efforts he could not get his balance, and over he went. With my face over the brink I saw him fall for a long way. Then he struck a rock, bounded off, and splashed into the water. I listened with amazement to this explanation, which Holmes delivered between puffs of his cigarette. "'But the tracks!' I cried. "'I saw with my own eyes that two went down the path, and none returned.' "'It came about this way. "'The instant that the professor had disappeared, "'it struck me what a really extraordinarily lucky chance fate had placed in my way. "'I knew that Moriarty was not the only man who had sworn my death. "'There were at least three others whose desire for vengeance upon me "'would only be increased by the death of their leader. "'They were all most dangerous men.' one or other would certainly get me. On the other hand, if all the world was convinced that I was dead, they would take liberties, these men, they would soon lay themselves open, and sooner or later I could destroy them. Then it would be time for me to announce that I was still in the land of the living. 
So rapidly does the brain act that I believe I had thought this all out before Professor Moriarty had reached the bottom of the Reichenbach Fall. I stood up and examined the rocky wall behind me. In your picturesque account of the matter, which I read with great interest some months later, you assert that the wall was sheer. That was not literally true. A few small footholds presented themselves, and there was some indication of a ledge. The cliff is so high that to climb it all was an obvious impossibility, and it was equally impossible to make my way along the wet path without leaving some tracks. I might, it is true, have reversed my boots, as I have done on similar occasions, but the sight of three sets of tracks in one direction would certainly have suggested a deception. On the whole, then, it was best that I should risk the climb. It was not a pleasant business, Watson. The fall roared beneath me. I am not a fanciful person, but I give you my word that I seem to hear Moriarty's voice screaming at me out of the abyss. A mistake would have been fatal. More than once, as tufts of grass came out in my hand, or my foot slipped in the wet notches of the rock, I thought that I was gone. But I struggled upwards, and at last I reached a ledge several feet deep and covered with soft green moss, where I could lie unseen in the most perfect comfort. There I was stretched when you, my dear Watson, and all your following were investigating in the most sympathetic and inefficient manner the circumstances of my death. At last, when you had all formed your inevitable and totally erroneous conclusions, you departed for the hotel, and I was left alone. I had imagined that I had reached the end of my adventures, but a very unexpected occurrence showed me that there were surprises still in store for me. A huge rock falling from above boomed past me, struck the path, and bounded over into the chasm. For an instant I thought that it was an accident, but a moment later, looking up, I saw a man's head against the darkening sky, and another stone struck the very ledge upon which I was stretched, within a foot of my head. Of course the meaning of this was obvious. Moriarty had not been alone. A confederate, and even that one glance had told me how dangerous a man that confederate was, had kept guard while the professor had attacked me. From a distance, unseen by me, he had been a witness of his friend's death and of my escape. He had waited, and then making his way round to the top of the cliff, had endeavoured to succeed where his comrade had failed. I did not take long to think about it, Watson. Again I saw that grim face look over the cliff, and I knew that it was the precursor of another stone. I scrambled down on to the path. I don't think I could have done it in cold blood. It was a hundred times more difficult than getting up. But I had no time to think of the danger, for another stone sang past me as I hung my hands from the edge of the ledge. Halfway down I slipped, but by the blessing of God I landed, torn and bleeding, upon the path. I took to my heels, did ten miles over the mountains in the darkness, and a week later I found myself in Florence, with the certainty that no one in the world knew what had become of me. I had only one confidant, my brother Mycroft. I owe you many apologies, my dear Watson, but it was all important that it should be thought that I was dead, and it is quite certain that you would not have written so convincing an account of my unhappy end, had you not yourself thought that it was true. Several times during the last three years I have taken up my pen to write to you, but always I feared lest your affectionate regard for me should tempt you to some indiscretion which would betray my secret. For that reason I turned away from you this evening when you upset my books, for I was in danger at the time, and any show of surprise and emotion upon your part might have drawn attention to my identity, and led to the most deplorable and irreparable results. 
As to Mycroft, I had to confide in him in order to obtain the money which I needed. The course of events in London did not run so well as I had hoped, for the trial of the Moriarty gang left two of its most dangerous members, my own most vindictive enemies, at liberty. I travelled for two years in Tibet, therefore, and amused myself by visiting Lhasa, and spending some days with the head lama. You may have read of the remarkable explorations of a Norwegian named Sigerson, but I am sure that it never occurred to you that you were receiving news of your friend. I then passed through Persia, looked in at Mecca, and paid a short but interesting visit to the Khalifa at Khartoum, the results of which I have communicated to the Foreign Office. Returning to France, I spent some months in a research into the coal-tar derivatives, which I conducted in a laboratory at Montpellier, in the south of France. Having concluded this to my satisfaction, and learning that only one of my enemies was now left in London, I was about to return when my movements were hastened by the news of this very remarkable Park Lane mystery, which not only appealed to me by its own merits, but which seemed to offer some most peculiar personal opportunities. I came over at once to London, called in my own person at Baker Street, threw Mrs. Hudson into violent hysterics, and found that Mycroft had preserved my rooms and my papers exactly as they had always been. So it was, my dear Watson, that at two o'clock to-day I found myself in my old armchair in my old room, and only wishing that I could have seen my old friend Watson in the other chair which he has so often adorned. Such was the remarkable narrative to which I listened on that April evening, a narrative which would have been utterly incredible to me had it not been confirmed by the actual sight of the tall, spare figure and the keen, eager face, which I had never thought to see again. In some manner he had learned of my own sad bereavement, and his sympathy was shown in his manner rather than in his words. "'Work is the best antidote to sorrow, my dear Watson,' said he, and I have a piece of work for us both to-night, which, if we can bring it to a successful conclusion, will in itself justify a man's life on this planet. In vain I begged him to tell me more. "'You will hear and see enough before morning,' he answered. "'We have three years of the past to discuss. Let that suffice until half-past nine, when we start upon the notable adventure of the empty house.' It was indeed like old times when, at that hour, I found myself seated beside him in a hansom, my revolver in my pocket, and the thrill of adventure in my heart. Holmes was cold and stern and silent. As the gleam of the street lamps flashed upon his austere features, I saw that his brows were drawn down in thought, and his thin lips compressed. I knew not what wild beast we were about to hunt down in the dark jungle of criminal London, but I was well assured from the bearing of this master huntsman that the adventure was a most grave one while the sardonic smile which occasionally broke through his ascetic gloom boded little good for the object of our quest. I had imagined that we were bound for Baker Street, but Holmes stopped the cab at the corner of Cavendish Square. I observed that, as he stepped out, he gave a most searching glance to right and left, and at every subsequent street corner he took the utmost pains to assure that he was not followed. Our route was certainly a singular one. Holmes's knowledge of the byways of London was extraordinary, and on this occasion he passed rapidly, and with an assured step, through a network of mews and stables, the very existence of which I had never known. We emerged at last into a small road, lined with old, gloomy houses which led us into Manchester Street, and so to Blandford Street. 
Here he turned swiftly down a narrow passage, passed through a wooden gate into a deserted yard, and then opened with a key the back door of a house. We entered together, and he closed it behind us. The place was pitch dark, but it was evident to me that it was an empty house. Our feet creaked and crackled over the bare planking, and my outstretched hand touched a wall from which the paper was hanging in ribbons. Holmes's cold, thin fingers closed round my wrist and led me forward down a long hall, until I dimly saw the murky fanlight over the door. Here Holmes turned suddenly to the right, and we found ourselves in a large, square, empty room, heavily shadowed in the corners, but faintly lit in the centre from the lights of the street beyond. There was no lamp near, and the window was thick with dust, so that we could only just discern each other's figures within. My companion put his hand upon my shoulder, and his lips close to my ear. "'Do you know where we are?' he whispered. "'Surely that is Baker Street,' I answered, staring through the dim window. "'Exactly. We are in Camden House, which stands opposite to our own old quarters. "'But why are we here?' because it commands so excellent a view of that picturesque pile. Might I trouble you, my dear Watson, to draw a little nearer to the window, taking every precaution not to show yourself, and then to look up at our old rooms, the starting-point of so many of your little fairy-tales? We will see if my three years of absence have entirely taken away my power to surprise you. End of The Adventure of the Empty House, Part 1 Part Two of The Adventure of the Empty House from The Return of Sherlock Holmes I crept forward and looked across at the familiar window. As my eyes fell upon it, I gave a gasp and a cry of amazement. The blind was down, and a strong light was burning in the room. The shadow of a man who was seated in a chair within was thrown in hard black outline upon the luminous screen of the window. There was no mistaking the poise of the head, the squareness of the shoulders, the sharpness of the features. The face was turned half round, and the effect was that of one of those black silhouettes which our grandparents loved to frame. So amazed was I that I threw out my hand to make sure that the man himself was standing beside me. He was quivering with silent laughter. "'Well,' said he, "'good heavens!' I cried. "'It is marvellous!' "'I trust that age doth not wither nor custom stale my infinite variety,' said he, and I recognized in his voice the joy and pride which the artist takes in his own creation. It really is rather like me, is it not? I should be prepared to swear that it was you. The credit of the execution is due to Monsieur Oscar Meunier of Grenoble, who spent some days in doing the moulding. It is a bust in wax. The rest I arranged myself during my visit to Baker Street this afternoon. But why? "'Because, my dear Watson, I had the strongest possible reason for wishing certain people to think that I was there when I was really elsewhere.' "'And you thought the rooms were watched?' "'I knew that they were watched. "'By whom? "'By my old enemies, Watson, by the charming society whose leader lies in the Reichenbach Fall. "'You must remember that they knew, and only they knew, that I was still alive. "'Sooner or later they believed that I should come back to my rooms. "'They watched them continuously, and this morning they saw me arrive. How do you know? Because I recognized their sentinel when I glanced out of my window. He is a harmless enough fellow, Parker by name, a garroter by trade, and a remarkable performer upon the Jew's harp. I cared nothing for him, but I cared a great deal for the much more formidable person who was behind him, the bosom friend of Moriarty, the man who dropped the rocks over the cliff, 
the most cunning and dangerous criminal in London. That is the man who is after me tonight, Watson, and that is the man who is quite unaware that we are after him. My friend's plans were gradually revealing themselves. From this convenient retreat, the watchers were being watched and the trackers tracked. That angular shadow up yonder was the bait, and we were the hunters. In silence, we stood together in the darkness and watched the hurrying figures who passed and repassed in front of us. Holmes was silent and motionless, but I could tell that he was keenly alert and that his eyes were fixed intently upon the stream of passers-by. It was a bleak and boisterous night, and the wind whistled shrilly down the long street. Many people were moving to and fro, most of them muffled in their coats and cravats. Once or twice it seemed to me that I had seen the same figure before, and I especially noticed two men who appeared to be sheltering themselves from the wind in the doorway of a house, some distance up the street. I tried to draw my companion's attention to them, but he gave a little ejaculation of impatience, and continued to stare into the street. More than once he fidgeted with his feet, and tapped rapidly with his fingers upon the wall. It was evident to me that he was becoming uneasy, and that his plans were not working out altogether as he had hoped. At last, as midnight approached, and the street gradually cleared, he paced up and down the room in uncontrollable agitation. I was about to make some remark to him, when I raised my eyes to the lighted window, and again experienced almost as great a surprise as before. I clutched Holmes's arm and pointed upwards. "'The shadow has moved!' I cried. It was indeed no longer the profile, but the back which was turned toward us. Three years had certainly not smoothed the asperities of his temper or his impatience with a less active intelligence than his own. "'Of course it is moved,' said he. "'Am I such a farcical bungler, Watson, that I should erect an obvious dummy, and expect that some of the sharpest men in Europe would be deceived by it? We have been in this room two hours, and Mrs. Hudson has made some change in that figure eight times, or once in every quarter of an hour. She works it from the front, so that her shadow may never be seen.' "'Ah!' he drew in his breath with a shrill, excited intake. In the dim light I saw his head thrown forward, his whole attitude rigid with attention.' Outside the street was absolutely deserted. Those two men might still be crouching in the doorway, but I could no longer see them. All was still and dark, save only that brilliant yellow screen in front of us with the black figure outlined upon its center. Again in the utter silence I heard that thin, sibilant note which spoke of intense, suppressed excitement. An instant later he pulled me back into the blackest corner of the room, and I felt his warning hand upon my lips. The fingers which clutched me were quivering. Never had I known my friend more moved, and yet the dark street still stretched lonely and motionless before us. But suddenly I was aware of that which his keener senses had already distinguished. A low, stealthy sound came to my ears, not from the direction of Baker Street, but from the back of the very house in which we lay concealed. A door opened and shut. An instant later steps crept down the passage, steps which were meant to be silent, but which reverberated harshly through the empty house. Holmes crouched back against the wall, and I did the same, my hand closing upon the handle of my revolver. Peering through the gloom I saw the vague outline of a man, a shade blacker than the blackness of the open door. He stood for an instant, and then he crept forward, crouching, menacing, into the room. He was within three yards of us, this sinister figure, and I had braced myself to meet his spring, before I realized that he had no idea of our presence. He passed close beside us, stole over to the window, and very softly and noiselessly raised it for half a foot. 
As he sank to the level of this opening, the light of the street, no longer dimmed by the dusty glass, fell full upon his face. The man seemed to be beside himself with excitement. His two eyes shone like stars, and his features were working convulsively. He was an elderly man, with a thin, projecting nose, a high, bald forehead, and a huge, grizzled moustache. An opera hat was pushed to the back of his head, and an evening-dress shirt-front gleamed out through his open overcoat. His face was gaunt and swarthy, scored with deep, savage lines. In his hand he carried what appeared to be a stick, but as he laid it down upon the floor it gave a metallic clang. Then from the pocket of his overcoat he drew a bulky object, and he busied himself in some task which ended with a loud, sharp click, as if a spring or bolt had fallen into its place. Still kneeling upon the floor he bent forward and threw all his weight and strength upon some lever, with the result that there came a long, whirling, grinding noise, ending once more in a powerful click. He straightened himself then, and I saw what he held in his hand was a sort of gun, with a curiously misshapen butt. He opened it at the breech, put something in, and snapped the breech-lock. Then, crouching down, he rested the end of the barrel upon the ledge of the open window, and I saw his long moustache droop over the stock and his eye gleam as it peered along the sights. I heard a little sigh of satisfaction as he cuddled the butt into his shoulder, and saw that amazing target, the black man on the yellow ground, standing clear at the end of his foresight. For an instant he was rigid and motionless. Then his finger tightened on the trigger. There was a strange, loud whiz and a long, silvery tinkle of broken glass. At that instant Holmes sprang like a tiger on to the marksman's back, and hurled him flat upon his face. He was up again in a moment, and with a convulsive strength he seized Holmes by the throat, but I struck him on the head with the butt of my revolver, and he dropped again upon the floor. I fell upon him, and as I held him my comrade blew a shrill call upon a whistle. There was the clatter of running feet upon the pavement, and two policemen in uniform, with one plain-clothes detective, rushed through the front entrance and into the room. "'That you, Lestrade?' said Holmes. "'Yes, Mr. Holmes. I took the job myself. It's good to see you back in London, sir. I think you want a little unofficial help.' Three undetected murders in one year won't do, Lestrade. But you handled the Mosley mystery with less than your usual—that's to say, you handled it fairly well. We had all risen to our feet, our prisoner breathing hard, with a stalwart constable on each side of him. Already a few loiters had begun to collect in the street. Holmes stepped up to the window, closed it, and dropped the blinds. Lestrade had produced two candles, and the policemen had uncovered their lanterns. I was able at last to have a good look at our prisoner. It was a tremendously virile and yet sinister face which was turned towards us. With the brow of a philosopher above and the jaw of a sensualist below, the man must have started with great capacities for good or for evil. But one could not look upon his cool blue eyes with their drooping, cynical lids, or upon the fierce, aggressive nose and the threatening, deep-set brow, without reading nature's plainest danger signals. He took no heed of any of us, but his eyes were fixed upon Holmes's face with an expression in which hatred and amazement were equally blended. "'You fiend!' he kept on muttering. "'You clever, clever fiend!' "'Ah, Colonel,' said Holmes, arranging his rumpled collar, "'journeys end in lovers' meetings, as the old play says. I don't think I have had the pleasure of seeing you since you favoured me with all those attentions as I lay on the ledge above the Reichenbach Fall.' The Colonel still stared at my friend like a man in a trance. 
"'You cunning, cunning fiend!' was all that he could say. "'I have not introduced you yet,' said Holmes. "'This gentleman is Colonel Sebastian Moran, once of Her Majesty's Indian Army, and the best heavy-game shot that our Eastern Empire has ever produced. I believe I am correct, Colonel, in saying that your bag of tigers still remains unrivaled.' The fierce old man said nothing, but still glared at my companion. With his savage eyes and bristling moustache he was wonderfully like a tiger himself. "'I wonder that my very simple stratagem could deceive so old a shikari,' said Holmes. "'It must be very familiar to you. Have you not tethered a young kid under a tree, lain above it with your rifle, and waited for the bait to bring up your tiger? This empty house is my tree, and you are my tiger. You have possibly had other guns in reserve— in case there should be several tigers, or in the unlikely supposition of your own aim failing you. These, he pointed out, are my other guns. The parallel is exact. Colonel Moran sprang forward with a snarl of rage, but the constables dragged him back. The fury upon his face was terrible to look at. "'I confess that you had one small surprise for me,' said Holmes. "'I did not anticipate that you would yourself make use of this empty house and this convenient front window.' I had imagined you as operating from the street, where my friend Lestrade and his merry men were awaiting you. With that exception, all has gone as I expected. Colonel Moran turned to the official detective. "'You may or may not have just cause for arresting me,' said he, "'but at least there can be no reason why I should submit to the jibes of this person. If I am in the hands of the law, let things be done in a legal way.' "'Well, that's reasonable enough,' said Lestrade. "'Nothing further you have to say, Mr. Holmes, before we go?' Holmes had picked up the powerful air-gun from the floor, and was examining its mechanism. "'An admirable and unique weapon,' said he, "'noiseless and of tremendous power. I knew von Herder, the blind German mechanic, who constructed it to the order of the late Professor Moriarty. For years I have been aware of its existence, though I have never before had the opportunity of handling it. I commend it very specially to your attention, Lestrade, and also the bullets which fit it. You can trust us to look after that, Mr. Holmes, said Lestrade, as the whole party moved towards the door. Anything further to say? Only to ask what charge you intend to prefer? What charge, sir? Why, of course, the attempted murder of Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Not so, Lestrade. I do not propose to appear in the matter at all. To you and to you only belongs the credit of the remarkable arrest which you have effected. Yes, Lestrade, I congratulate you. With your usual happy mixture of cunning and audacity, you have got him. Got him? Got whom, Mr. Holmes? The man that the whole force has been seeking in vain. Colonel Sebastian Moran, who shot the Honorable Ronald Adair with an expanding bullet from an air-gun through the open window of the second-floor front of number 427 Park Lane, upon the thirtieth of last month. That's the charge, Lestrade, and now, Watson, if you can endure the draught from a broken window, I think that half an hour in my study over cigar may afford you some profitable amusement. Our old chambers had been left unchanged through the supervision of Mycroft Holmes and the immediate care of Mrs. Hudson. As I entered I saw, it is true, an unwanted tidiness, but the old landmarks were all in their place. There were the chemical corner and the acid-stained deal-top table. There upon a shelf was the row of formidable scrapbooks and books of reference which many of our fellow-citizens would have been so glad to burn. The diagrams, the violin case, and the pipe-rack, 
even the Persian slipper which contained the tobacco, all met my eyes as I glanced round me. There were two occupants of the room, one Mrs. Hudson, who beamed upon us both as we entered, the other the strange dummy which had played so important a part in the evening's adventures. It was a wax-colored model of my friend, so admirably done that it was a perfect facsimile. It stood on a small pedestal table with an old dressing-gown of Holmes's so draped round it that the illusion from the street was absolutely perfect. "'I hope you observed all precautions, Mrs. Hudson,' said Holmes. "'I went to it on my knees, sir, just as you told me.' "'Excellent. You carried the thing out very well. Did you observe where the bullet went?' "'Yes, sir, I'm afraid it has spoilt your beautiful bust, for it passed right through the head and flattened itself on the wall. I picked it up from the carpet. Here it is.' Holmes held it out to me. "'A soft revolver bullet, as you perceive, Watson. There's genius in that, for who would expect to find such a thing fired from an air-gun?' "'All right, Mrs. Hudson. I am much obliged for your assistance.' And now, Watson, let me see you in your old seat once more, for there are several points which I should like to discuss with you. He had thrown off the seedy frock-coat, and now he was the Holmes of old in the mouse-colored dressing-gown which he took from his effigy. The old shikari's nerves have not lost their steadiness, nor his eyes their keenness, said he with a laugh, as he inspected the shattered forehead of his bust. Plumb in the middle of the back of the head, and smack through the brain. He was the best shot in India, and I expect that there are few better in London. Have you heard the name? No, I have not. Well, well, such is fame. But then, if I remember right, you had not heard the name of Professor James Moriarty, who had one of the great brains of the century. Just give me down my index of biographies from the shelf. He turned over the pages lazily, leaning back in his chair and blowing great clouds from his cigar. "'My collection of M's is a fine one,' said he. "'Moriarty himself is enough to make any letter illustrious, "'and here is Morgan the Poisoner, "'and Meridou of abominable memory, "'and Matthews, who knocked out my left canine "'in the waiting-room at Charing Cross. "'And finally, here is our friend of to-night.' "'He handed over the book, and I read. "'Moran, Sebastian, Colonel. "'Unemployed. "'Formerly, first Bangalore pioneers.' Born London, 1840. Son of Sir Augustus Moran, C.B., once British Minister to Persia. Educated Eton and Oxford. Served in Jawaki Campaign, Afghan Campaign, Cherasiab, Dispatches, Sherper, and Kabul. Author of Heavy Game of the Western Himalayas, 1881. Three Months in the Jungle, 1884. Address, Conduit Street. Clubs, the Anglo-Indian, the Tankerville, the Bagatelle Card Club. On the margin was written, in Holmes's precise hand, the second most dangerous man in London. This is astonishing, said I, as I handed back the volume. The man's career is that of an honorable soldier. It is true, Holmes answered. Up to a certain point he did well. He was always a man of iron nerve and the story is still told in India how he crawled down a drain after a wounded man-eating tiger. There are some trees, Watson, which grow to a certain height, and then suddenly develop some unsightly eccentricity. You will see it often in humans. I have a theory that the individual represents in his development the whole procession of his ancestors, and that such a sudden turn to good or evil stands for some strong influence which came into the line of his pedigree. 
the person becomes, as it were, the epitome of the history of his own family. It is surely rather fanciful. Well, I don't insist upon it. Whatever the cause, Colonel Moran began hot to hold him. He retired, came to London, and again acquired an evil name. It was at this time that he was sought out by Professor Moriarty, to whom for a time he was chief of the staff. Moriarty supplied him liberally with money, and used him only in one or two very high-class jobs, which no ordinary criminal could have undertaken. You may have some recollection of the death of Mrs. Stewart of Lauder in 1887. Not? Well, I am sure Moran was at the bottom of it, but nothing could be proved. So cleverly was the colonel concealed that, even when the Moriarty gang was broken up, we could not incriminate him. You remember at that date, when I called upon you in your rooms, how I put up the shutters for fear of air-guns? No doubt you thought me fanciful. I knew exactly what I was doing, for I knew of the existence of this remarkable gun, and I also knew that one of the best shots in the world would be behind it. When we were in Switzerland he followed us with Moriarty, and it was undoubtedly he who gave me that evil five minutes on the Reichenbach ledge. You may think that I read the papers with some attention during my sojourn in France, on the outlook for any chance of laying him by the heels. So long as he was free in London, my life would not really have been worth living. Night and day the shadow would have been over me, and sooner or later his chance must have come. What could I do? I could not shoot him at sight, or I should myself be in the dock. There was no use appealing to a magistrate. They cannot interfere on the strength of what would appear to them to be a wild suspicion. So I could do nothing. But I watched the criminal news, knowing that sooner or later I should get him. Then came the death of this Ronald Adair. My chance had come at last. Knowing what I did, was it not certain that Colonel Moran had done it? He had played cards with the lad, he had followed him home from the club, he had shot him through the open window. There was not a doubt of it. The bullets alone are enough to put his head in a noose. I came over at once. I was seen by the sentinel, who would, I knew, direct the colonel's attention to my presence. He could not fail to connect my sudden return with his crime, and to be terribly alarmed. I was sure that he would make an attempt to get me out of the way at once, and would bring round his murderous weapon for that purpose. I left him an excellent mark in the window, and, having warned the police that they might be needed, by the way, Watson, you spotted their presence in that doorway with unerring accuracy, I took up what seemed to me to be a judicious post for observation, never dreaming that he would choose the same spot for his attack. Now, my dear Watson, does anything remain for me to explain? Yes, said I. You have not made it clear what was Colonel Moran's motive in murdering the Honourable Ronald Adair. Ah, my dear Watson, there we come into those realms of conjecture where the most logical mind may be at fault. Each may form his own hypothesis upon the present evidence, and yours is as likely to be correct as mine. You have formed one, then? I think that it is not difficult to explain the facts. It came out in evidence that Colonel Moran and young Adair had, between them, won a considerable amount of money. Now, Moran undoubtedly played foul. Of that I have long been aware. I believe that on the day of the murder Adair had discovered that Moran was cheating. Very likely he had spoken to him privately, and had threatened to expose him unless he voluntarily resigned his membership of the club, and promised not to play cards again. It is unlikely that a youngster like Adair would at once make a hideous scandal by exposing a well-known man so much older than himself. Probably he acted as I suggest. 
The exclusion from his clubs would mean ruin to Moran, who lived by his ill-gotten card gains. He therefore murdered Adair, who at the time was endeavouring to work out how much money he should himself return, since he could not profit by his partner's foul play. He locked the door lest the ladies should surprise him and insist upon knowing what he was doing with these names and coins. Will it pass? I have no doubt that you have hit upon the truth. It will be verified or disproved at the trial. Meanwhile, come what may, Colonel Moran will trouble us no more. The famous air-gun of von Herder will embellish the Scotland Yard Museum, and once again Mr. Sherlock Holmes is free to devote his life to examining those interesting little problems which the complex life of London so plentifully presents. End of the Adventure of the Empty House, Part 2 Part 1 of The Adventure of the Norwood Builder from the Return of Sherlock Holmes From the point of view of the criminal expert, said Mr. Sherlock Holmes, London has become a singularly uninteresting city since the death of the late lamented Professor Moriarty. I can hardly think that you would find many decent citizens to agree with you, I answered. Well, well, I must not be selfish, said he with a smile as he pushed back his chair from the breakfast table. The community is certainly the gainer and no one the loser, save the poor out-of-work specialist whose occupation has gone. With that man in the field, one's morning paper presented infinite possibilities. Often it was only the smallest trace, Watson, the faintest indication, and yet it was enough to tell me that the great malignant brain was there, as the gentlest tremors of the edges of the web remind one of the foul spider which lurks in the centre. Petty thefts, wanton assaults, purposeless outrage. To the man who held the clue, all could be worked into one connected whole." To the scientific student of the higher criminal world no capital in Europe offered the advantages which London then possessed, but now he shrugged his shoulders in humorous deprecation of the state of things which he had himself done so much to produce. At the time of which I speak Holmes had been back for some months, and I, at his request, had sold my practice and returned to share the old quarters in Baker Street. A young doctor named Werner had purchased my small Kensington practice and given with astonishingly little demur the highest price that I ventured to ask, an incident which only explained itself some years later, when I found that Werner was a distant relation of Holmes's, and that it was my friend who had really found the money. Our months of partnership had not been so uneventful as he had stated, for I find on looking over my notes that this period includes the case of the papers of ex-president Murillo, and also the shocking affair of the Dutch steamship Friesland, which so nearly cost us both our lives. His cold and proud nature was always averse, however, to anything in the shape of public applause, and he bound me in the most stringent terms to say no further word of himself, his methods, or his successes, a prohibition which, as I have explained, has only now been removed. Mr. Sherlock Holmes was leaning back in his chair after his whimsical protest, and was unfolding his morning paper in a leisurely fashion when our attention was arrested by a tremendous ring at the bell, followed immediately by a hollow drumming sound, as if someone were beating on the outer door with his fist. As it opened there came a tumultuous rush into the hole, rapid feet clattered up the stair, and an instant later a wild-eyed and frantic young man, pale, disheveled, and palpitating, burst into the room. He looked from one to the other of us, and under our gaze of inquiry he became conscious that some apology was needed for this unceremonious entry. "'I'm sorry, Mr. Holmes,' he cried. "'You mustn't blame me. I am nearly mad. 
Mr. Holmes, I am the unhappy John Hector Macfarlane. He made the announcement as if the name alone would explain both his visit and its manner, but I could see by my companion's unresponsive face that it meant no more to him than to me. "'Have a cigarette, Mr. Macfarlane,' said he, pushing his case across. "'I am sure that with your symptoms my friend Dr. Watson here would prescribe a sedative. The weather has been so very warm these last few days. Now, if you feel a little more composed, I should be glad if you would sit down in that chair and tell us very slowly and quietly who you are and what it is that you want. You mentioned your name as if I should recognize it, but I assure you that beyond the obvious facts that you are a bachelor, a solicitor, a Freemason, and an asthmatic, I know nothing whatever about you. Familiar as I was with my friend's methods, it was not difficult for me to follow his deductions, and to observe the untidiness of attire, the sheaf of legal papers, the watch-charm, and the breathing which had prompted them. Our client, however, stared in amazement. "'Yes, I am all that, Mr. Holmes, and in addition I am the most unfortunate man at this moment in London. For heaven's sake, don't abandon me, Mr. Holmes. If they come to arrest me before I have finished my story, make them give me time so that I may tell you the whole truth. I could go to jail happy if I knew that you were working for me outside.' "'Arrest you?' said Holmes. "'This is really most gret—most interesting. "'On what charge do you expect to be arrested?' "'Upon the charge of murdering Mr. Jonas Oldacre of Lower Norwood.' "'My companion's expressive face showed a sympathy "'which was not, I am afraid, entirely unmixed with satisfaction. "'Dear me,' said he, it was only this moment at breakfast that I was saying to my friend Dr. Watson that sensational cases had disappeared out of our papers. Our visitor stretched forward a quivering hand and picked up the daily telegraph which still lay upon Holmes's knee. "'If you had looked at it, sir, you would have seen at a glance what the errand is on which I have come to you this morning. I feel as if my name and my misfortune must be in every man's mouth.' He turned it over to expose the central page. "'Here it is.' and with your permission I will read it to you. Listen to this, Mr. Holmes. The headlines are Mysterious Affair at Lower Norwood, Disappearance of a Well-Known Builder, Suspicion of Murder and Arson, A Clue to the Criminal. That is the clue which they are already following, Mr. Holmes, and I know that it leads infallibly to me. I have been followed from London Bridge Station, and I am sure that they are only waiting for the warrant to arrest me. It will break my mother's heart. It will break her heart!' He wrung his hands in an agony of apprehension, and swayed backwards and forwards in his chair. I looked with interest upon this man who was accused of being the perpetrator of a crime of violence. He was flaxen-haired and handsome in a washed-out negative fashion, with frightened blue eyes and a clean-shaven face, with a weak, sensitive mouth. His age may have been about twenty-seven, his dress and bearing that of a gentleman. From the pocket of his light summer overcoat protruded the bundle of endorsed papers which proclaimed his profession. "'We must use what time we have,' said Holmes. "'Watson, would you have the kindness to take the paper "'and to read to me the paragraph in question?' "'Underneath the vigorous headlines which our client had quoted, "'I read the following suggestive narrative. "'Late last night, or early this morning, "'an incident occurred at Lower Norwood "'which points it is feared to a serious crime. "'Mr. Jonas Oldacre is a well-known resident of that suburb,' where he has carried on his business as a builder for many years. Mr. Oldacre is a bachelor, fifty-two years of age, and lives in Deep Dean House, at the Sindenham end of the road of that name. 
He has had the reputation of being a man of eccentric habits, secretive and retiring. For some years he has practically withdrawn from the business, in which he is said to have amassed considerable wealth. A small timber-yard still exists, however, at the back of the house, and last night, about twelve o'clock, an alarm was given that one of the stacks was on fire. The engines were soon upon the spot, but the dry wood burned with great fury, and it was impossible to arrest the conflagration until the stack had been entirely consumed. Up to this point the incident bore the appearance of an ordinary accident, but fresh indications seemed to point to serious crime. Surprise was expressed at the absence of the master of the establishment from the scene of the fire, and an inquiry followed which showed that he had disappeared from the house. An examination of his room revealed that the bed had not been slept in, that a safe which stood in it was open, that a number of important papers were scattered about the room, and finally that there were signs of a murderous struggle, slight traces of blood being found within the room, and an oaken walking-stick which also showed stains of blood upon the handle. It is known that Mr. Jonas Oldacre had received a late visitor in his bedroom upon that night, and the stick found has been identified as the property of this person, who is a young London solicitor named John Hector Macfarlane, junior partner of Graham and Macfarlane, of 426 Gresham Buildings, E.C. The police believe that they have evidence in their possession which supplies a very convincing motive for the crime, and altogether it cannot be doubted that sensational developments will follow. Later. It is rumored as we go to press that Mr. John Hector Macfarlane has actually been arrested on the charge of the murder of Mr. Jonas Oldacre. It is at least certain that a warrant has been issued. There have been further and sinister developments in the investigation at Norwood. Besides the signs of a struggle in the room of the unfortunate builder, it is now known that the French windows of his bedroom, which is on the ground floor, were found to be open, that there were marks as if some bulky object had been dragged across to the woodpile, and finally it is asserted that charred remains have been found among the charcoal ashes of the fire. The police theory is that a most sensational crime has been committed, that the victim was clubbed to death in his own bedroom, his papers rifled, and his dead body dragged across to the woodstack, which was then ignited so as to hide all traces of the crime. The conduct of the criminal investigation has been left in the experienced hands of Inspector Lestrade of Scotland Yard, who is following up the clues with his accustomed energy and sagacity. Sherlock Holmes listened with closed eyes and fingertips together to this remarkable account. "'The case has certainly some points of interest,' said he, in his languid fashion. "'May I ask in the first place, Mr. Macfarlane, how it is that you are still at liberty, since there appears to be enough evidence to justify your arrest?' "'I live at Torrington Lodge, Blackheath, with my parents, Mr. Holmes. But last night, having to do business very late with Mr. Jonas Oldacre, I stayed at an hotel in Norwood, and came to my business from there.' I knew nothing of this affair until I was in the train, when I read what you have just heard. I at once saw the horrible danger of my position, and I hurried to put the case into your hands. I have no doubt that I should have been arrested either at my city office or at my home. A man followed me from London Bridge Station, and I have no doubt—great heaven, what is that? It was a clang of the bell, followed instantly by heavy steps upon the stair. A moment later our old friend Lestrade appeared in the doorway. Over his shoulder I caught a glimpse of one or two uniformed policemen outside. "'Mr. John Hector Macfarlane,' said Lestrade. Our unfortunate client rose with a ghastly face. 
I arrest you for the willful murder of Mr. Jonas Oldacre of Lower Norwood. Macfarlane turned to us with a gesture of despair, and sank into his chair once more like one who is crushed. One moment, Lestrade, said Holmes. Half an hour more or less can make no difference to you, and the gentleman was about to give us an account of this very interesting affair, which might aid us in clearing it up. "'I think there will be no difficulty in clearing it up,' said Lestrade grimly. "'Nonetheless, with your permission, I should be much interested to hear his account.' "'Well, Mr. Holmes, it is difficult for me to refuse you anything, for you have been of use to the force once or twice in the past.' "'And we owe you a good turn at Scotland Yard,' said Lestrade. "'At the same time I must remain with my prisoner, "'and I am bound to warn him that anything he may say "'will appear in evidence against him.' "'I wish nothing better,' said our client. "'All I ask is that you should hear and recognize the absolute truth.' Lestrade looked at his watch. "'I'll give you half an hour,' said he. "'I must explain first, said Macfarlane, "'that I knew nothing of Mr. Jonas Oldacre.' His name was familiar to me, for many years ago my parents were acquainted with him, but they drifted apart. I was very much surprised, therefore, when yesterday, about three o'clock in the afternoon, he walked into my office in the city. But I was still more astonished when he told me the object of his visit. He had in his hand several sheets of a notebook, covered with scribbled writing—here they are—and he laid them on my table. "'Here is my will,' said he. I want you, Mr. Macfarlane, to cast it into proper legal shape. I will sit here while you do so. I set myself to copy it, and you can imagine my astonishment when I found that, with some reservations, he had left all his property to me. He was a strange little ferret-like man with white eyelashes, and when I looked up at him I found his keen grey eyes fixed upon me with an amused expression. I could hardly believe my own senses as I read the terms of the will, but he explained that he was a bachelor with hardly any living relation, that he had known my parents in his youth, and that he had always heard of me as a very deserving young man, and was assured that his money would be in worthy hands. Of course I could only stammer out my thanks. The will was duly finished, signed, and witnessed by my clerk. This is it on the blue paper, and these slips, as I have explained, are the rough draft. Mr. Jonas Oldacre then informed me that there were a number of documents— building leases, title deeds, mortgages, scrip, and so forth, which it was necessary that I should see and understand. He said that his mind would not be easy until the whole thing was settled, and he begged me to come out to his house at Norwood that night, bringing the will with me, and to arrange matters. Remember, my boy, not one word to your parents about the affair until everything is settled. We will keep it as a little surprise for them. He was very insistent upon this point, and made me promise it faithfully." You can imagine, Mr. Holmes, that I was not in a humor to refuse him anything that he might ask. He was my benefactor, and all my desire was to carry out his wishes in every particular. I sent a telegram home, therefore, to say that I had important business on hand, and that it was impossible for me to say how late I might be. Mr. Oldacre had told me that he would like me to have supper with him at nine, as he might not be home before that hour. I had some difficulty in finding his house, however, and it was nearly half-past before I reached it. I found him— "'One moment,' said Holmes. "'Who opened the door?' "'A middle-aged woman, who was, I suppose, his housekeeper.' "'And it was she, I presume, who mentioned your name?' "'Exactly,' said Macfarlane. "'Pray proceed.' Macfarlane wiped his damp brow, and then continued his narrative. "'I was shown by this woman into a sitting-room, where a frugal supper was laid out. 
Afterwards Mr. Jonas Oldacre led me into his bedroom, in which there stood a heavy safe. This he opened and took out a mass of documents which we went over together. It was between eleven and twelve when we finished. He remarked that we must not disturb the housekeeper. He showed me out through his own French window, which had been open all this time. "'Was the blind down?' asked Holmes. "'I will not be sure, but I believe that it was only half down. Yes, I remember how he pulled it up in order to swing open the window. I could not find my stick, and he said, "'Never mind, my boy. I shall see a good deal of you now, I hope, and I will keep your stick until you come back to claim it.' I left him there, the safe open, and the papers made up in packets upon the table. It was so late that I could not get back to Blackheath, so I spent the night at the Annerley Arms, and I knew nothing more until I read of this horrible affair in the morning. "'Anything more that you would like to ask, Mr. Holmes?' said Lestrade, whose eyebrows had gone up once or twice during this remarkable explanation. "'Not until I have been to Blackheath.' "'You mean to Norwood?' said Lestrade. "'Oh, yes, no doubt that is what I must have meant,' said Holmes, with his enigmatical smile. Lestrade had learned by more experiences than he would care to acknowledge that that razor-like brain could cut through that which was impenetrable to him. I saw him look curiously at my companion. "'I think I should like to have a word with you presently, Mr. Sherlock Holmes,' said he. "'Now, Mr. Macfarlane, two of my constables are at the door, and there is a four-wheeler waiting.' The wretched young man arose, and with a last beseeching glance at us walked from the room. The officers conducted him to the cab, but Lestrade remained. Holmes had picked up the pages which formed the rough draft of the will, and was looking at them with the keenest interest upon his face. "'There are some points about that document, Lestrade, are there not?' said he, pushing them over. The official looked at them with a puzzled expression. "'I can read the first few lines, and these in the middle of the second page, and one or two at the end. Those are as clear as print,' said he. "'But the writing in between is very bad, and there are three places where I cannot read it at all.' "'What do you make of that?' said Holmes. "'Well, what do you make of it?' "'That it was written in a train. The good writing represents stations, the bad writing movement, and the very bad writing passing over points. A scientific expert would pronounce at once that this was drawn up on a suburban line, since nowhere save in the immediate vicinity of a great city could there be so quick a succession of points. Granting that his whole journey was occupied in drawing up the will, then the train was an express, only stopping once between Norwood and London Bridge. Lestrade began to laugh. "'You are too many for me when you begin to get on your theories, Mr. Holmes,' said he. "'How does this bear on the case?' "'Well, it corroborates the young man's story to the extent that the will was drawn up by Judas Oldacre in his journey yesterday. It is curious, is it not, that a man should draw up so important a document in so haphazard a fashion. It suggests that he did not think it was going to be of much practical importance. If a man drew up a will which he did not intend ever to be effective, he might do it so.' "'Well, he drew up his own death warrant at the same time,' said Lestrade. "'Oh, you think so?' "'Don't you?' "'Well, it is quite possible. But the case is not clear to me yet.' "'Not clear? Well, if that isn't clear, what could be clear? Here is a young man who learns suddenly that if a certain older man dies he will succeed to a fortune. What does he do? He says nothing to anyone, but he arranges that he shall go out on some pretext to see his client that night.' He waits until the only other person in the house is in bed, and then, in the solitude of the man's room, he murders him, 
burns his body in the woodpile, and departs to a neighbouring hotel. The blood-stains in the room, and also on the stick, are very slight. It is probable that he imagined his crime to be a bloodless one, and hoped that if the body were consumed it would hide all traces of the method of his death, traces which for some reason must have pointed to him. Is all this not obvious? "'It strikes me, my good Lestrade, as being just a trifle too obvious,' said Holmes. "'You do not add imagination to your other great qualities, but if you could for one moment put yourself in the place of this young man, would you choose the very night after the will had been made to commit your crime? Would it not seem dangerous to you to make so very close a relation between the two incidents? Again, would you choose an occasion when you are known to be in the house when a servant has let you in?' And finally, would you take the great pains to conceal the body, and yet leave your own stick as a sign that you are the criminal? Confess, Lestrade, that all this is very unlikely. As to the stick, Mr. Holmes, you know as well as I do that a criminal is often flurried, and does things which a cool man would avoid. It was very likely to go back to the room. Give me another theory that would fit the facts. I could very easily give you a half a dozen, said Holmes. Here, for example, is a very possible and even probable one. I make you a free present of it. The older man is showing documents which are of evident value. A passing tramp sees them through the window, the blind of which is only half down. Exit the solicitor, enter the tramp. He seizes a stick, which he observes there, kills Old Acre, and departs after burning the body. Why should the tramp burn the body? For the matter of that, why should Macfarlane? to hide some evidence. Possibly the tramp wanted to hide that any murder at all had been committed. And why did the tramp take nothing? Because they were papers that he could not negotiate. Lestrade shook his head, though it seemed to me that his manner was less absolutely assured than before. Well, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you may look for your tramp, and while you are finding him we will hold on to our man. The future will show which is right. Just notice this point, Mr. Holmes, that so far as we know none of the papers were removed, and that the prisoner is the one man in the world who had no reason for removing them, since he was heir at law, and would come into them at any case. My friend seemed struck by this remark. I don't mean to deny that the evidence is in some ways very strongly in favour of your theory, said he. I only wish to point out that there are other theories possible. As you say, the future will decide. "'Good morning. I dare say that in the course of the day I shall drop in at Norwood and see how you are getting on.' When the detective departed, my friend rose and made his preparations for the day's work with the alert air of a man who has a congenial task before him. "'My first movement, Watson,' said he as he bustled into his frock-coat, "'must, as I said, be in the direction of Blackheath.' "'And why not Norwood?' because we have in this case one singular incident coming close to the heels of another singular incident. The police are making the mistake of concentrating their attention upon the second, because it happens to be the one which is actually criminal. But it is evident to me that the logical way to approach the case is to begin by trying to throw some light upon the first incident, the curious will so suddenly made, and to so unexpected an air. It may do something to simplify what followed— "'No, my dear fellow, I don't think you can help me. There is no prospect of danger, or I should not dream of stirring out without you. I trust that when I see you in the evening I will be able to report that I have been able to do something for this unfortunate youngster who has thrown himself upon my protection.' 
End of The Adventure of the Norwood Builder, Part 1 Part 2 of The Adventure of the Norwood Builder from The Return of Sherlock Holmes It was late when my friend returned, and I could see by a glance at his haggard and anxious face that the high hopes with which he had started had not been fulfilled. For an hour he droned away upon his violin, endeavouring to soothe his own ruffled spirits. At last he flung down the instrument and plunged into a detailed account of his misadventures. "'It's all going wrong, Watson, all as wrong as it can go. I kept a bold face before Lestrade, but upon my soul I believe that for once the fellow is on the right track, and we are on the wrong. All my instincts are one way, and all the facts are the other.' and I much fear that British juries have not yet attained that pitch of intelligence when they will give the preference to my theories over Lestrade's facts. Did you go to Blackheath? Yes, Watson, I went there, and I found very quickly that the late lamented Oldacre was a pretty considerable blaggard. The father was away in search of his son, the mother was at home, a little fluffy blue-eyed person in a tremor of fear and indignation, of course she would not admit even the possibility of his guilt, but she would not express either surprise or regret over the fate of Oldacre. On the contrary, she spoke of him with such bitterness that she was unconsciously considerably strengthening the case of the police, for, of course, if her son had heard her speak of the man in this fashion, it would predispose him towards hatred and violence. "'He was more like a malignant and cunning ape than a human being,' said she, "'and he always was, ever since he was a young man.' "'You knew him at that time?' said I. "'Yes, I knew him well. In fact, he was an old suitor of mine. Thank heaven that I had the sense to turn away from him, and to marry a better, if a poorer, man. I was engaged to him, Mr. Holmes, when I heard a shocking story of how he had turned a cat loose in an aviary, and I was so horrified at his brutal cruelty that I would have nothing more to do with him.' She rummaged in a bureau, and presently she produced a photograph of a woman, shamefully defaced and mutilated with a knife. "'That is my own photograph,' she said. "'He sent it to me in that state, with his curse, upon my wedding morning.' "'Well,' said I, "'at least he has forgiven you now, since he has left all his property to your son.' "'Neither my son nor I want anything from Jonas Oldacre, dead or alive,' she cried, with a proper spirit. "'There is a God in heaven, Mr. Holmes,' and that same God who has punished that wicked man will show in his own good time that my son's hands are guiltless of his blood. Well, I tried one or two leads, but could get at nothing which would help our hypothesis, and several points which would make against it. I gave up at last, and off I went to Norwood. This place, Deep Dean House, is a big modern villa of staring brick, standing back in its own grounds with a laurel-clumped lawn in front of it. To the right and some distance back from the road was the timber-yard which had been the scene of the fire. Here's a rough plan on a leaf of my notebook. This window on the left is the one which opens into Oldacre's room. You can look into it from the road, you see. That is about the only bit of consolation I've had today. Lestrade was not there, but his head constable did the honours. They had just made a great treasure-trove. They had spent the morning raking among the ashes of the burned woodpile, and besides the charred organic remains they had secured several discoloured metal discs. I examined them with care, and there was no doubt that they were trouser-buttons. I even distinguished that one of them was marked with the name of Hyams, who was Oldacre's tailor. I then worked the lawn very carefully for signs and traces, but this drought has made everything as hard as iron. 
Nothing was to be seen save that some body or bundle had been dragged through a low privet hedge, which is in a line with the woodpile. All that, of course, fits in with the official theory. I crawled about the lawn with an August sun on my back, but I got up at the end of an hour no wiser than before. Well, after this fiasco, I went into the bedroom and examined that also. The bloodstains were very slight, mere smears and discolorations, but undoubtedly fresh. The stick had been removed, but there also the marks were slight. There is no doubt about the stick belonging to our client. He admits it. Footmarks of both men could be made out on the carpet, but none of any third person, which again is a trick for the other side. They were piling up their score all the time, and we were at a standstill. Only one little gleam of hope did I get, and yet it amounted to nothing. I examined the contents of the safe, most of which had been taken out and left on the table. The papers had been made up into sealed envelopes, one or two of which had been opened by the police. They were not so far as I could judge of any great value, nor did the bank-book show that Mr. Oldacre was in such very affluent circumstances, but it seemed to me that all the papers were not there. There were allusions to some deeds, possibly the more valuable, which I could not find. This, of course, if we could definitely prove it, would turn Lestrade's argument against himself, for who would steal a thing if he knew that he would shortly inherit it? Finally, having drawn every other cover and picked up no scent, I tried my luck with the housekeeper. Mrs. Lexington is her name, a little, dark, silent person with suspicious and sidelong eyes. She could tell us something if she would, I am convinced of it. But she was as close as wax. Yes, she had let Mr. Macfarlane in at half-past nine. She wished her hand had withered before she had done so. She had gone to bed at half-past ten. Her room was at the other end of the house— and she could hear nothing of what passed. Mr. Macfarlane had left his hat, and to the best of her belief his stick, in the hall. She had been awakened by the alarm of fire. Her poor dear master had certainly been murdered. Had he any enemies? Well, every man had enemies, but Mr. Oldacre kept himself very much to himself and only met people in the way of business. She had seen the buttons, and was sure that they belonged to the clothes which he had worn last night. The woodpile was very dry, for it had not rained for a month. It burned like tinder, and by the time she reached the spot nothing could be seen but flames. She and all the firemen smelled the burned flesh from inside it. She knew nothing of the papers nor of Mr. Oldacre's private affairs. So, my dear Watson, there's my report of a failure. And yet, and yet, he clenched his thin hands in a paroxysm of conviction, I know it's all wrong. I feel it in my bones. There is something that has not come out, and that housekeeper knows it. There was a sort of sulky defiance in her eyes which only goes with guilty knowledge. However, there's no good talking any more about it, Watson. But unless some lucky chance comes our way, I fear that the Norwood disappearance case will not figure in that chronicle of our successes, which I foresee that a patient public will sooner or later have to endure. Surely, said I, the man's appearance would go far with any jury. That is a dangerous argument, my dear Watson. You remember that terrible murderer, Bert Stevens, who wanted us to get him off in eighty-seven. Was there ever a more mild-mannered Sunday-school young man? It is true. Unless we succeed in establishing an alternative theory, this man is lost. You can hardly find a flaw in the case which can now be presented against him, and all further investigation has served to strengthen it. Uh, by the way, there is one curious little point about those papers which may serve us as the starting point for an inquiry. 
On looking over the bank-book I found that the low state of the balance was principally due to large checks which have been made out during the last year to Mr. Cornelius. I confess that I should be interested to know who this Mr. Cornelius may be, with whom a retired builder has such very large transactions. Is it possible that he has had a hand in the affair? Cornelius might be a broker, but we have found no script to correspond with these large payments. Failing any other indication, my researchers must now take the direction of an inquiry at the bank for the gentleman who has cashed these checks. But I fear, my dear fellow, that our case will end ingloriously by Lestrade hanging our client, which will certainly be a triumph for Scotland Yard. I do not know how far Sherlock Holmes took any sleep that night, but when I came down to breakfast I found him pale and harassed, his bright eyes the brighter for the dark shadows round them. The carpet round his chair was littered with cigarette ends and with the early editions of the morning papers. An open telegram lay upon the table. "'What do you think of this, Watson?' he asked, tossing it across. It was from Norwood, and ran as follows. "'Important fresh evidence to hand. Macfarlane's guilt definitely established. Advise you to abandon case. Lestrade.' "'This sounds serious,' said I. "'It is Lestrade's little cock-a-doodle of victory,' Holmes answered with a bitter smile. "'And yet it may be premature to abandon the case. After all, important fresh evidence is a two-edged thing, and may possibly cut in a very different direction to that which Lestrade imagines. Take your breakfast, Watson, and we will go out together and see what we can do. I feel as if I shall need your company and your moral support to-day.' My friend had no breakfast himself, for it was one of his peculiarities that in his more intense moments he would permit himself no food, and I have known him presume upon his iron strength until he has fainted from pure inanition. "'At present I cannot spare energy and nerve force for digestion,' he would say in answer to my medical remonstrances. I was not surprised, therefore, when this morning he left his untouched meal behind him and started with me for Norwood. A crowd of morbid sightseers were still gathered round Deep Dean House, which was just such a suburban villa as I had pictured. Within the gates Lestrade met us, his face flushed with victory, his manner grossly triumphant. "'Well, Mr. Holmes, have you proved us to be wrong yet? Have you found your tramp?' he cried. "'I have formed no conclusion whatever,' my companion answered. "'But we formed ours yesterday, and now it proves to be correct, so you must acknowledge—' that we have been a little in front of you this time, Mr. Holmes.' "'You certainly have the air of something unusual having occurred,' said Holmes. Lestrade laughed loudly. "'You don't like being beaten any more than the rest of us do,' said he. "'A man can't expect always to have his own way, can he, Dr. Watson? Step this way, if you please, gentlemen, and I think I can convince you once and for all that it was John Macfarlane who did this crime.' He led us through the passage and out into a dark hall beyond. "'This is where young Macfarlane must have come out to get his hat after the crime was done,' said he. "'Now, look at this.' With dramatic suddenness he struck a match and by its light exposed a stain of blood upon the whitewashed wall. As he held the match nearer I saw that it was more than a stain. It was the well-marked print of a thumb. "'Look at that with your magnifying glass, Mr. Holmes.' "'Yes, I am doing so.' "'You are aware that no two thumb-marks are alike.' "'I have heard something of the kind.' "'Well, then, will you please compare that print with this wax impression of young Macfarlane's right thumb, taken by my orders this morning?' 
As he held the waxen print close to the bloodstain, it did not take a magnifying glass to see that the two were undoubtedly from the same thumb. It was evident to me that our unfortunate client was lost. "'That is final,' said Lestrade. "'Yes, that is final,' I involuntarily echoed. "'It is final,' said Holmes. Something in his tone caught my ear, and I turned to look at him. An extraordinary change had come over his face. It was writhing with inward merriment. His two eyes were shining like stars. It seemed to me that he was making desperate efforts to restrain a convulsive attack of laughter. "'Dear me, dear me,' he said at last. "'Well, now, who would have thought it? And how deceptive appearances may be, to be sure. Such a nice young man to look at. It is a lesson to us not to trust our own judgment, is it not, Lestrade?' "'Yes, some of us are a little too much inclined to be cocksure, Mr. Holmes,' said Lestrade. The man's insolence was maddening, but we could not resent it. "'What a providential thing that this young man should press his right thumb against the wall in taking his hat from the peg. Such a very natural action, too, if you come to think of it.' Holmes was outwardly calm, but his whole body gave a wriggle of suppressed excitement as he spoke. By the way, Lestrade, who made this remarkable discovery? It was the housekeeper, Mrs. Lexington, who drew the night constable's attention to it. Where was the night constable? He remained on guard in the bedroom where the crime was committed, so as to see that nothing was touched. But why didn't the police see this mark yesterday? Well, uh, we had no particular reason to make a careful examination of the hall. Besides, it's not in a very prominent place, as you see. "'No, no, of course not. I suppose there is no doubt that the mark was there yesterday?' Lestrade looked at Holmes as if he thought he was going out of his mind. I confess that I was myself surprised both at his hilarious manner and at his rather wild observation. "'I don't know whether you think that Macfarlane came out of jail in the dead of the night in order to strengthen the evidence against himself,' said Lestrade. "'I leave it to any expert in the world whether that is not the mark of his thumb.' It is unquestionably the mark of his thumb. "'There, that's enough,' said Lestrade. "'I am a practical man, Mr. Holmes, and when I have got my evidence I come to my conclusions. If you have anything to say, you will find me writing my report in the sitting-room.' Holmes had recovered his equanimity, though I still seemed to detect gleams of amusement in his expression. "'Dear me, this is a very sad development, Watson, is it not?' said he. And yet there are singular points about it which hold out some hopes for our client. "'I am delighted to hear it,' said I heartily. "'I was afraid it was all up with him.' "'I would hardly go so far as to say that, my dear Watson. The fact is that there is one really serious flaw in this evidence to which our friend attaches so much importance.' "'Indeed, Holmes, what is it?' "'Only this, that I know that that mark was not there when I examined the hall yesterday.' And now, Watson, let us have a little stroll round in the sunshine. With a confused brain, but with a heart into which some warmth of hope was returning, I accompanied my friend in a walk round the garden. Holmes took each face of the house in turn and examined it with great interest. He then led the way inside and went over the whole building from basement to attics. Most of the rooms were unfurnished, but nonetheless Holmes inspected them all minutely. Finally, on the top corridor, which ran outside three untenanted bedrooms, he again was seized with a spasm of merriment. 
"'There are really some very unique features about this case, Watson,' said he. "'I think it is time now that we took our friend Lestrade into our confidence. He has had his little smile at our expense, and perhaps we may do as much by him if my reading of this problem proves to be correct. Yes, yes, I think I see how we should approach it.' The Scotland Yard inspector was still writing in the parlour when Holmes interrupted him. "'I understood that you were writing a report of this case,' said he. "'So I am.' "'Don't you think it may be a little premature? I can't help thinking that your evidence is not complete.' Lestrade knew my friend too well to disregard his words. He laid down his pen and looked curiously at him. "'What do you mean, Mr. Holmes?' "'Only that there is an important witness whom you have not seen.' "'Can you produce him?' "'I think I can.' "'Then do so.' "'I will do my best. "'How many constables have you?' "'There are three within call.' "'Excellent,' said Holmes. "'May I ask if they are all large, able-bodied men with powerful voices?' "'I have no doubt that they are, though I fail to see what their voices have to do with it.' "'Perhaps I can help you to see that, and one or two other things as well,' said Holmes. "'Kindly summon your men, and I will try.' Five minutes later three policemen had assembled in the hall. "'In the outhouse you will find a considerable quantity of straw,' said Holmes. "'I will ask you to carry in two bundles of it. I think it will be of the greatest assistance in producing the witness whom I require. Thank you very much. "'I believe you have some matches in your pocket, Watson.' "'Now, Mr. Lestrade, I will ask you all to accompany me to the top landing.' As I have said, there was a broad corridor there, which ran outside three empty bedrooms. At one end of the corridor we were all marshalled by Sherlock Holmes, the constables grinning and Lestrade staring at my friend, with amazement, expectation, and derision chasing each other across his features. Holmes stood before us with the air of a conjurer who was performing a trick. "'Would you kindly send one of your constables for two buckets of water?' Put the straw on the floor here, free from the wall on either side. Now I think that we are all ready. Lestrade's face had begun to grow red and angry. "'I don't know whether you are playing a game with us, Mr. Sherlock Holmes,' said he. "'If you know anything, you can surely say it without all this tomfoolery.' "'I assure you, my good Lestrade, that I have an excellent reason for everything that I do.' You may possibly remember that you chaffed me a little some hours ago when the sun seemed on your side of the hedge, so you must not grudge me a little pomp and ceremony now. Might I ask you, Watson, to open that window, and then to put a match to the edge of the straw? I did so, and, driven by the draught, a coil of grey smoke swirled down the corridor while the dry straw crackled and flamed. Now we must see if we can find this witness for you, Lestrade. "'Might I ask you all to join in the cry of fire? "'Now then, one, two, three. "'Fire!' we all yelled. "'Thank you, I will trouble you once again. "'Fire!' "'Just once, gentlemen, and all together. "'Fire!' "'The shout must have rung over Norwood. "'It had hardly died away when an amazing thing happened. "'A door suddenly flew open out of what appeared to be solid wall "'at the end of the corridor.' and a little wizened man darted out of it like a rabbit out of its burrow. "'Capital,' said Holmes calmly. "'Watson, a bucket of water over the straw, that will do. Lestrade, allow me to present you with your principal missing witness, Mr. Jonas Oldacre.' The detective stared at the newcomer with blank amazement. 
The latter was blinking in the bright light of the corridor, and peering at us and at the smouldering fire. It was an odious face, crafty, vicious, malignant, with shifty light-gray eyes and white eyelashes. "'What's this, then?' said Lestrade at last. "'What have you been doing all this time, eh?' Old Acre gave an uneasy laugh, shrinking back from the furious red face of the angry detective. "'I have done no harm.' "'No harm? You have done your best to get an innocent man hanged. If it wasn't for this gentleman here, I am not sure that you would not have succeeded.' The wretched creature began to whimper. "'I am sure, sir, it was only my practical joke.' "'Oh, a joke, was it? You won't find the laugh on your side, I promise you. Take him down and keep him in the sitting-room until I come. Mr. Holmes,' he continued when they had gone, "'I could not speak before the constables, but I don't mind saying, in the presence of Dr. Watson, that this is the brightest thing that you have done yet, though it is a mystery to me how you did it. You have saved an innocent man's life, and you have prevented a very grave scandal which would have ruined my reputation in the force.' Holmes smiled and clapped the strait upon the shoulder. "'Instead of being ruined, my good sir, you will find that your reputation has been enormously enhanced. Just make a few alterations in that report which you are writing, and they will understand how hard it is to throw dust in the eyes of Inspector Lestrade.' "'And you don't want your name to appear?' "'Not at all. The work is its own reward.' Perhaps I shall get the credit also at some distant day when I permit my zealous historian to lay out his foolscap once more. Eh, Watson? Well, now, let us see where this rat has been lurking. A lath and plaster partition had been run across the passage six feet from the end, with a door cunningly concealed in it. It was lit within by slits under the eaves. A few articles of furniture and a supply of food and water were within, together with a number of books and papers. "'There's the advantage of being a builder,' said Holmes as we came out. "'He was able to fix up his own little hiding-place without any confederate, "'save, of course, that precious housekeeper of his, "'whom I should lose no time in adding to your bag, Lestrade.' "'I'll take your advice. "'But how did you know of this place, Mr. Holmes?' "'I made up my mind that the fellow was in hiding in the house. "'When I paced one corridor and found it six feet shorter "'than the corresponding one below, "'it was pretty clear where he was.' I thought he had not the nerve to lie quiet before an alarm of fire. We could, of course, have gone in and taken him, but it amused me to make him reveal himself. Besides, I owed you a little mystification, Lestrade, for your chaff in the morning. Well, sir, you certainly got equal with me on that. But how in the world did you know that he was in the house at all? The thumb mark, Lestrade. You said it was final, and so it was in a very different sense. I knew it had not been there the day before. I pay a good deal of attention to matters of detail, as you may have observed, and I had examined the hall and was sure that the wall was clear. Therefore, it had been put on during the night. But how? Very simply. When those packets were sealed up, Jonas Oldacre got Macfarlane to secure one of the seals by putting his thumb upon the soft wax. It would be done so quickly and so naturally that I dare say the young man himself has no recollection of it. Very likely it just so happened, and Oldacre had himself no notion of the use he would put it to. Brooding over the case in that den of his, it suddenly struck him what absolutely damning evidence he could make against Macfarlane by using that thumb-mark. It was the simplest thing in the world for him to take a wax impression from the seal, to moisten it in as much blood as he could get from a pin-prick, and to put the mark upon the wall during the night, either with his own hand or with that of his housekeeper. 
If you examine among those documents which he took with him into his retreat, I will lay you a wager that you find the seal with the thumb-mark upon it. "'Wonderful!' said Lestrade. "'Wonderful! It's all clear as crystal, as you put it. But what is the object of this deep deception, Mr. Holmes?' It was amusing to me to see how the detective's overbearing manner had changed suddenly to that of a child asking questions of its teacher. "'Well, I don't think that is very hard to explain. A very deep, malicious, vindictive person is the gentleman who is now awaiting us downstairs. You know that he was once refused by Macfarlane's mother? You don't! I told you that you should go to Blackheath first and Norwood afterwards. Well, this injury, as he would consider it, has rankled in his wicked scheming brain, and all his life he has longed for vengeance but never seen his chance. During the last year or so things have gone against him—secret speculation, I think—and he finds himself in a bad way. He determines to swindle his creditors, and for this purpose he pays large checks to a certain Mr. Cornelius, who is, I imagine, himself under another name. I have not traced these checks yet, but I have no doubt that they were banked under that name at some provincial town, where Oldacre from time to time led a double existence. He intended to change his name altogether, draw this money, and vanish, starting life again elsewhere. Well, that's likely enough. It would strike him that in disappearing he might throw all pursuit off his track, and at the same time have an ample and crushing revenge upon his old sweetheart, if he could give the impression that he had been murdered by her only child. It was a masterpiece of villainy, and he carried it out like a master. The idea of the will, which would give an obvious motive for the crime, the secret visit unknown to his own parents, the retention of the stick, the blood and the animal remains and buttons in the woodpile, all were admirable. It was a net from which it seemed to me a few hours ago that there was no possible escape. But he had not that supreme gift of the artist, the knowledge of when to stop. He wished to improve that which was already perfect, to draw the rope tighter yet round the neck of his unfortunate victim, and so he ruined all. Let us descend, Lestrade. There are just one or two questions that I would ask him. The malignant creature was seated in his own parlour with a policeman upon each side of him. "'It was a joke, my good sir, a practical joke, nothing more,' he whined incessantly. "'I assure you, sir, that I simply concealed myself in order to see the effect of my disappearance, and I am sure that you would not be so unjust as to imagine that I would have allowed any harm to befall poor young Mr. Macfarlane.' "'That's for a jury to decide,' said Lestrade. "'Anyhow, we shall have you on a charge of conspiracy, if not for attempted murder.' "'And you'll probably find that your creditors will impound the banking account of Mr. Cornelius,' said Holmes. The little man started and turned his malignant eyes upon my friend. "'I have to thank you for a good deal,' said he. "'Perhaps I'll pay my debt some day.' Holmes smiled indulgently. "'I fancy that for some few years you will find your time very fully occupied,' said he. Uh, by the way, what was it that you put into the woodpile besides your old trousers? A dead dog, or rabbits, or what? You won't tell. Dear me, how very unkind of you. Well, well, I dare say that a couple of rabbits would account both for the blood and for the charred ashes. If you ever write an account, Watson, you can make rabbits serve your turn. End of The Adventure of the Norwood Builder, Part 2 Part One of The Adventure of the Dancing Men From the Return of Sherlock Holmes 
Holmes had been seated for some hours in silence, with his long, thin back curved over a chemical vessel in which he was brewing a particularly malodorous product. His head was sunk upon his breast, and he looked, from my point of view, like a strange, lank bird, with dull grey plumage and a black top-knot. "'So, Watson,' said he, suddenly, "'you do not propose to invest in South African securities?' I gave a start of astonishment. Accustomed as I was to Holmes's curious faculties, this sudden intrusion into my most intimate thoughts was utterly inexplicable. "'How on earth do you know that?' I asked. He wheeled round upon his stool with a steaming test-tube in his hand and a gleam of amusement in his deep-set eyes. "'Now, Watson, confess yourself utterly taken aback,' said he. "'I am.' I ought to make you sign a paper to that effect. Why? Because in five minutes you will say that it is all so absurdly simple. I am sure that I shall say nothing of the kind. You see, my dear Watson, he propped his test tube in the rack and began to lecture with the air of a professor addressing his class. It is not really difficult to construct a series of inferences, each dependent upon its predecessor and each simple in itself. If, after doing so, one simply knocks out all the central inferences, and presents one's audience with the starting point and the conclusion, one may produce a startling, though possibly meretricious, effect. Now, it was not really difficult, by an inspection of the groove between your left forefinger and thumb, to feel sure that you did not propose to invest your small capital in the goldfields. I see no connection. Very likely not, but I can quickly show you a close connection. Here are the missing links of the very simple chain. 1. You had chalk between your left finger and thumb when you returned from the club last night. 2. You put chalk there when you play billiards to steady the cue. 3. You never play billiards except with Thurston. 4. You told me, four weeks ago, that Thurston had an option on some South African property which would expire in a month, and which he desired you to share with him. 5. Your cheque-book is locked in my drawer, and you have not asked for the key. 6. You do not propose to invest your money in this manner. "'How absurdly simple!' I cried. "'Quite so,' said he, a little nettled. "'Every problem becomes very childish when once it is explained to you.' Here is an unexplained one. See what you can make of that, friend Watson. He tossed a sheet of paper upon the table, and turned once more to his chemical analysis. I looked with amazement at the absurd hieroglyphics upon the paper. Why, Holmes, it is a child's drawing, I cried. Oh, that's your idea. What else should it be? That is what Mr. Hilton Cubitt of Ridingthorpe Manor, Norfolk, is very anxious to know. This little conundrum came by the first post, and he was to follow by the next train. There's a ring at the bell, Watson. I should not be very much surprised if this were he. A heavy step was heard upon the stairs, and an instant later there entered a tall, ruddy, clean-shaven gentleman, whose clear eyes and florid cheeks told of a life led far from the fogs of Baker Street. 
He seemed to bring a whiff of his strong, fresh, bracing East Coast air with him as he entered. Having shaken hands with each of us, he was about to sit down, when his eye rested upon the paper with the curious markings, which I had just examined and left upon the table. "'Well, Mr. Holmes, what do you make of these?' he cried. "'They told me that you were fond of queer mysteries, and I don't think you can find a queerer one than that.' I sent the paper on ahead so that you might have time to study it before I came. It is certainly rather a curious production, said Holmes. At first sight, it would appear to be some childish prank. It consists of a number of absurd little figures dancing across the paper upon which they are drawn. Why should you attribute any importance to so grotesque an object? I never should, Mr. Holmes, but my wife does. It is frightening her to death. She says nothing, but I can see terror in her eyes. That's why I want to sift the matter to the bottom. Holmes held up the paper so that the sunlight shone full upon it. It was a page torn from a notebook. The markings were done in pencil and ran in this way. Holmes examined it for some time, and then, folding it carefully up, he placed it in his pocket book. This promises to be a most interesting and unusual case, said he. You gave me a few particulars in your letter, Mr. Hilton Cubitt, but I should be very much obliged if you would kindly go over it again for the benefit of my friend, Dr. Watson. I'm not much of a storyteller, said our visitor, nervously clasping and unclasping his great strong hands. You'll just ask me anything that I don't make clear. I'll begin at the time of my marriage last year. But I want to say, first of all, that though I'm not a rich man, my people have been at Ridingthorpe for a matter of five centuries, and there is no better known family in the county of Norfolk. Last year I came up to London for the Jubilee, and I stopped at a boarding house in Russell Square, because Parker, the vicar of our parish, was staying in it. There was an American young lady there. Patrick was the name, Elsie Patrick. In some way we became friends, until before my month was up I was as much in love as a man could be. We were quietly married at a registry office, and we returned to Norfolk a wedded couple. You'll think it very mad, Mr. Holmes, that a man of a good old family should marry a wife in this fashion, knowing nothing of her past or of her people. But if you saw her and knew her, it would help you to understand." She was straight about it, was Elsie. I can't say that she did not give me every chance of getting out of it if I wished to do so. I have had some very disagreeable associations in my life, said she. I wish to forget all about them. I would rather never allude to the past, for it is very painful to me. If you take me, Hilton, you will take a woman who has nothing that she need be personally ashamed of, but you will have to be content with my word for it, and to allow me to be a silent as to all that passed up to the time when I became yours. If these conditions are too hard, then go back to Norfolk and leave me to the lonely life in which you found me. It was only the day before our wedding that she said these words to me. I told her that I was content to take her on her own terms, and I have been as good as my word. Well, we have been married now for a year, and a very happy we have been. But about a month ago, at the end of June, I saw for the first time signs of trouble. 
One day my wife received a letter from America. I saw the American stamp. She turned deadly white, read the letter and threw it into the fire. She made no allusion to it afterwards, and I made none, for a promise is a promise. But she had never known an easy hour from that moment. There is always a look of fear upon her face, a look as if she were waiting and expecting. She would do better to trust me. She would find that I was her best friend. But until she speaks, I can say nothing. Mind you, she is a truthful woman, Mr. Holmes, and whatever trouble there may have been in her past life, it has been no fault of hers. I am only a simple Norfolk squire, but there is not a man in England who ranks his family honour more highly than I do. She knows it well, and she knew it well before she married me. She would never bring any stain upon it, of that I am sure. Well, now I come to the queer part of my story. About a week ago, it was the Tuesday of last week, I found on one of the window sills a number of absurd little dancing figures, like these upon the paper. They were scrawled with chalk. I thought that it was the stable boy who had drawn them, but the lad swore he knew nothing about it. Anyhow, they had come there during the night. I had them washed out, and I only mentioned the matter to my wife afterwards. To my surprise, she took it very seriously, and begged me, if any more came, to let her see them. None did come for a week, and then yesterday morning I found this paper lying on the sundial in the garden. I showed it to Elsie, and down she dropped in a dead faint. Since then she has looked like a woman in a dream, half-dazed, and with terror always lurking in her eyes. It was then that I wrote and sent the paper to you, Mr. Holmes. It was not a thing that I could take to the police, for they would have laughed at me. But you will tell me what to do. I am not a rich man, but if there is any danger threatening my little woman, I would spend my last copper to shield her. He was a fine creature, this man of the old English soil. Simple, straight, and gentle, with his great, earnest blue eyes and broad, comely face. His love for his wife and his trust in her shone in his features. Holmes had listened to his story with the utmost attention, and now he sat for some time in silent thought. "'Don't you think, Mr. Cubitt,' said he at last, "'that your best plan will be to make a direct appeal to your wife "'and ask her to share her secret with you?' Hilton Cubitt shook his massive head. "'A promise is a promise, Mr. Holmes. "'If Elsie wished to tell me, she would.' If not, it is not for me to force her confidence, but I am justified in taking my own line, and I will. Then I will help you with all my heart. In the first place, have you heard of any strangers being seen in your neighbourhood? No. I presume that it is a very quiet place? Any fresh face would cause comment? In the immediate neighbourhood, yes, but we have several small watering places not very far away and the farmers take in lodgers. These hieroglyphics have evidently a meaning. If it is a purely arbitrary one, it may be impossible for us to solve it. If, on the other hand, it is systematic, I have no doubt that we shall get to the bottom of it. 
but this particular sample is so short that I can do nothing, and the facts which you have brought me are so indefinite that we have no basis for an investigation. I would suggest that you return to Norfolk, that you keep a keen lookout, and that you take an exact copy of any fresh dancing men which may appear. It is a thousand pities that we have not a reproduction of those which were done in chalk upon the window sill. Make a discreet inquiry also to any strangers in the neighbourhood. When you have collected some fresh evidence, come to me again. That is the best advice which I can give you, Mr. Hilton Cubitt. If there are any pressing fresh developments, I shall be always ready to run down and see you in your Norfolk home. The interview left Sherlock Holmes very thoughtful. And several times in the next few days, I saw him take his slip of paper from his notebook and look long and earnestly at the curious figures inscribed upon it. He made no allusion to the affair, however, until, one afternoon, a fortnight or so later, I was going out when he called me back. You had better stay here, Watson. Why? Because I had a wire from Hilton Cubitt this morning. You remember Hilton Cubitt, of the dancing men? He was to reach Liverpool Street at one twenty. He may be here any moment. I gather from his wire that there have been some new incidents of importance. We had not long to wait, for our Norfolk squire came straight from the station as fast as a hansom could bring him. He was looking worried and depressed, with tired eyes and a lined forehead. It's getting on my nerves, this business, Mr. Holmes, said he, as he sank like a wearied man into an armchair. It's bad enough to feel that you are surrounded by unseen, unknown folk who have some kind of design upon you, but when, in addition to that, you know that it is just killing your wife by inches, then it becomes as much as flesh and blood can endure. She's wearing away under it, just wearing away before my eyes. Has she said anything yet? No, Mr. Holmes, she is not. And yet there have been times when the poor girl has wanted to speak, and yet could not quite bring herself to take the plunge. I have tried to help her, but I dare say I did it clumsily, and scared her from it. She has spoken about my old family, and our reputation in the country, and our pride and our unsullied honour, and I always felt it was leading to the point, but somehow it turned off before we got there. But you have found out something for yourself? A good deal, Mr. Holmes. I have several fresh dancing men pictures for you to examine, and what is more important, I have seen the fellow. What? The man who draws them? Yes, I saw him at his work, but I will tell you everything in order. When I got back after my visit to you, the very first thing I saw next morning was a fresh crop of dancing men. They had been drawn in chalk upon the black wooden door of the toolhouse, which stands beside the lawn in full view of the front windows. I took an exact copy, and here it is. He unfolded a paper and laid it upon the table. Here is a copy of the hieroglyphics. Excellent, said Holmes. Excellent. Pray continue. When I had taken the copy, I rubbed out the marks, but two mornings later a fresh inscription had appeared. I have a copy of it here. Holmes rubbed his hands and chuckled with delight. Our material is rapidly accumulating, said he. Three days later, a message was left scrawled upon paper 
and placed under a pebble on the, on the sundial. Here it is. The characters are, as you see, exactly the same as the last one. After that, I determined to lie in wait. So I got out my revolver, and I sat up in my study, which overlooks the lawn and the garden. About two in the morning, I was seated by the window, all being dark save the moonlight outside, when I heard steps behind me, and there was my wife in her dressing gown. She implored me to come to bed. I told her frankly that I wished to see who it was who played such absurd tricks upon us. She answered that it was some senseless practical joke, and that I should not take any notice of it. If it really annoys you, Hilton, we might go and travel, you and I, and so avoid this nuisance. What? Be driven out of our own house by a practical joker, said I. Why, we should have the whole country laughing at us. Well, come to bed, said she, and we can discuss it in the morning. Suddenly, as she spoke, I saw her white face grow whiter yet in the moonlight, and her hand tightened upon my shoulder. Something was moving in the shadow of the tool-house. I saw a dark, creeping figure, which crawled around the corner and squatted in front of the door. Seizing my pistol, I was rushing out, when my wife threw her arms around me and held me with convulsive strength. I tried to throw her off, but she clung to me most desperately. At last I got clear but by the time I had opened the door and reached the house, the creature was gone. He had left a trace of his presence, however, for there on the door was the very same arrangement of dancing men, which you had already twice appeared, and which I have copied on that paper. There was no other sign of the fellow anywhere, though I ran all over the grounds, and yet the amazing thing is that he must have been there all the time, for when I examined the door again in the morning, he had scrawled some more of his pictures under the line which I had already seen. Have you that fresh drawing? Yes, it is very short, but I made a copy of it, and here it is. Again he produced a paper. The new dance was in this form. Tell me, said Holmes, and I could see by his eyes that he was much excited. Was this a mere addition to the first, or did it appear to be entirely separate? It was on a different panel of the door. Excellent! This is far the most important for all our purposes. It fills me with hopes. Now, Mr. Hilton Cubitt, please continue your most interesting statement. I have nothing more to say, Mr. Holmes, except that I was angry with my wife that night for having held me back when I might have caught the skulking rascal. She said that she feared that I might come to harm. For an instant it had crossed my mind that perhaps what she really feared was that he might come to harm, for I could not doubt that she knew who this man was and what he meant by these strange signals. But there is a tone in my wife's voice, Mr. Holmes, and a look in her eyes which forbids doubt, and I am sure that it was indeed my own safety that was in her mind. There's the whole case, and now I want your advice as to what I ought to do. My own inclination is put half a dozen of my farm lads in the shrubbery, and when this fellow comes again to give him such a hiding that he will leave us in peace for the future. I fear it is too deep a case for such simple remedies, said Holmes. How long can you stay in London? I must go back today. I would not leave my wife alone all night for anything. She is very nervous and begged me to come back. 
I dare say you are right. But if you could have stopped, I might possibly have been able to return with you in a day or two. Meanwhile, you will leave me these papers, and I think that it is very likely that I shall be able to pay you a visit shortly and to throw some light upon your case. Sherlock Holmes preserved his calm professional manner until our visitor had left us, although it was easy for me, who knew him so well, to see that he was profoundly excited. The moment that Hilton Cubitt's broad back had disappeared through the door, my comrade rushed to the table, laid out all the slips of paper containing dancing men in front of him, and threw himself into an intricate and elaborate calculation. For two hours I watched him as he covered sheet after sheet of paper with figures and letters, so completely absorbed in his task that he had evidently forgotten my presence. Sometimes he was making progress and whistled and sang at his work. Sometimes he was puzzled and would sit for long spells with a furrowed brow and a vacant eye. Finally, he sprang from his chair with a cry of satisfaction and walked up and down the room rubbing his hands together. Then he wrote a long telegram upon a cable form. If my answer to this is as I hope, you will have a very pretty case to add to your collection, Watson, said he. I expect that we shall be able to go down to Norfolk tomorrow and to take our friend some very definite news as to the secret of his annoyance. I confess that I was filled with curiosity, but I was aware that Holmes liked to make his disclosures at his own time and in his own way, so I waited until it should suit him to take me into his confidence. But there was a delay in that answering telegram, and two days of impatience followed, during which Holmes picked up his ears at every ring of the bell. On the evening of the second, there came a letter from Hilton Cubitt. All was quiet with him, save that a long inscription had appeared that morning upon the pedestal of the sundial. He enclosed a copy of it, which is here reproduced. Holmes bent over this grotesque frieze for some minutes, and then suddenly sprang to his feet with an exclamation of surprise and dismay. His face was haggard with anxiety. "'We have let this affair go far enough,' said he. Is there a train to North Walsham tonight? I turned up the timetable. The last had just gone. Then we shall breakfast early and take the very first in the morning, said Holmes. Our presence is most urgently needed. Ah, here is our expected cablegram. One moment, Mrs. Hudson, there may be an answer. No, that is quite as I expected. This message makes it even more essential that we should not lose an hour in letting Hilton Cubitt know how matters stand for it is a singular and a dangerous web in which our simple Norfolk squire is entangled. So indeed it proved. And as I come to the dark conclusion of a story which had seemed to me to be only childish and bizarre, I experienced once again the dismay and horror with which I was filled. Would that I had some brighter ending to communicate to my readers, but these are the chronicles of fact, and I must follow to their dark crisis the strange chain of events which for some days made Ridingthorpe Manor a household word through the length and breadth of England. We had hardly alighted at North Walsham and mentioned the name of our destination when the station master hurried towards us. I suppose that you are the detectives from London, said he. A look of annoyance passed over Holmes's face. What makes you think such a thing? because Inspector Martin from Norwich has just passed through. But maybe you're the surgeons. She's not dead, 
or wasn't by last accounts. You may be in time to save her yet, though it be for the gallows. Holmes's brow was dark with anxiety. We are going to Ridingthorpe Manor, said he, but we have heard nothing of what has passed there. It's a terrible business, said the station master. They are shot, both Mr. Hilton Cubitt and his wife. She shot him and then herself, so the servants say. He's dead and her life is despaired of. Dear, dear, one of the oldest families in the county of Norfolk and one of the most honoured. Without a word, Holmes hurried to a carriage and during the long seven miles drive, he never opened his mouth. Seldom have I seen him so utterly despondent. He had been uneasy during all our journey from town, and I had observed that he had turned over the morning papers with anxious attention. But now this sudden realisation of his worst fears left him in a blank melancholy. He leaned back in his seat, lost in gloomy speculation. Yet there was much around to interest us, for we were passing through as singular a countryside as any in England where a few scattered cottages represented the population of today, while on every hand enormous square-towered churches bristled up from the flat green landscape and told of the glory and prosperity of old East Anglia. At last the violet rim of the German Ocean appeared over the green edge of the Norfolk coast, and the driver pointed with his whip to two old brick and timber gables which projected from a grove of trees. "'That's Ridingthorpe Manor,' said he. As we drove up to the porticoed front door, I observed in front of it, beside the tennis lawn, the black tool house and the pedestaled sundial with which we had such strange associations. A dapper little man, with a quick, alert manner and a waxed moustache, had just descended from a high dog cart. He introduced himself as Inspector Martin of the Norfolk Constabulary, and he was considerably astonished when he heard the name of my companion. Why, Mr. Holmes, the crime was only committed at three this morning. How could you hear of it in London and get to the spot as soon as I? I anticipated it. I came in the hope of preventing it. Then you must have important evidence of which we are ignorant, for they were said to be the most united couple. I have only the evidence of the dancing men, said Holmes. I will explain the matter to you later. Meanwhile... Since it is too late to prevent this tragedy, I am very anxious that I should use the knowledge which I possess in order to ensure that justice be done. Will you associate your investigations, or will you prefer that I should act independently? I should be proud to feel that we were acting together, Mr. Holmes, said the inspector earnestly. In that case, I should be glad to hear the evidence and to examine the premises without an instant of unnecessary delay. End of the Adventure of the Dancing Men, Part 1 Part 2 of the Adventure of the Dancing Men From the Return of Sherlock Holmes Inspector Martin had the good sense to allow my friend to do things in his own fashion, and contented himself with carefully noting the results. The local surgeon, an old white-haired man, had just come down from Mrs. Kilton Cubitt's room, and he reported that her injuries were serious, but not necessarily fatal. The bullet had passed through the front of her brain, and it would probably be some time before she could regain consciousness. 
on the question of whether she had been shot or had shot herself, he would not venture to express any decided opinion. Certainly the bullets had been discharged at very close quarters. There was only the one pistol found in the room, two barrels of which had been emptied. Mr. Hilton Cubitt had been shot through the heart. It was equally conceivable that he had shot her and then himself, or that she had been the criminal, for the revolver lay upon the floor midway between them. "'Has he been moved?' asked Holmes. "'We have moved nothing except the lady. We could not leave her lying wounded upon the floor. "'How long have you been here, doctor?' "'Since four o'clock. Anyone else?' "'Yes, the constable here. "'And you have touched nothing?' "'Nothing. "'You have acted with great discretion. "'Who sent for you?' "'The housemaid, Saunders. "'Was it she who gave the alarm?' "'She and Mrs. King, the cook. "'Where are they now?' "'In the kitchen, I believe. "'Then I think we had better hear their story at once.' "'The old hall?' oak-panelled and high-windowed, had been turned into a court of investigation. Holmes sat in a great old-fashioned chair, his inexorable eyes gleaming out of his haggard face. I could read in them a set purpose to devote his life to this quest until the client whom he had failed to save should at last be avenged. The trim Inspector Martin, the old grey-headed country doctor, myself, and a stolid village policeman made up the rest of that strange company. The two women told their story clearly enough. They had been aroused from their sleep by the sound of an explosion, which had been followed a minute later by a second one. They slept in adjoining rooms, and Mrs. King had rushed in to Saunders. Together they had descended the stairs. The door of the study was open, and a candle was burning upon the table. Their master lay upon his face in the centre of the room. He was quite dead. Near the window, his wife was crouching, her head leaning against the wall. She was horribly wounded, and the side of her face was red with blood. She breathed heavily, but was incapable of saying anything. The passage, as well as the room, was full of smoke and the smell of powder. The window was certainly shut and fastened upon the inside. Both women were positive upon the point. They had at once sent for the doctor and for the constable. Then, with the aid of the groom and the stable boy, they had conveyed their injured mistress to her room. Both she and her husband had occupied the bed. She was clad in her dress, he in his dressing gown, over his night clothes. Nothing had been moved in the study. So far as they knew, there had never been any quarrel between husband and wife. They had always looked upon them as a very united couple. These were the main points of the servant's evidence. In answer to Inspector Martin, they were clear that every door was fastened upon the inside, and that no one could have escaped from the house. In answer to Holmes, they both remembered that they were conscious of the smell of powder from the moment that they ran out of their rooms upon the top floor. I commend that fact carefully to your attention said Holmes to his professional colleague. And now I think that we are in a position to undertake a thorough examination of the room. The study 
proved to be a small chamber, lined on three sides with books, and with a writing-table facing an ordinary window, which looked out upon the garden. Our first attention was given to the body of the unfortunate squire, whose huge frame lay stretched across the room. His disordered dress showed that he had been hastily aroused from sleep. The bullet had been fired at him from the front, and had remained in his body after penetrating the heart. His death had certainly been instantaneous and painless. There was no powder marking, either upon his dressing-gown or on his hands. According to the country surgeon, the lady had stains upon her face, but none upon her hand. "'The absence of the latter means nothing, though its presence may mean everything,' said Holmes. "'Unless the powder from a badly fitting cartridge happens to spurt backward, one may fire many shots without leaving a sign. I would suggest that Mr. Hilton Cubitt's body may now be removed. I suppose, Doctor, that you have not recovered the bullet which wounded the lady? A serious operation will be necessary before that can be done. But there are still four cartridges in the revolver. Two have been fired, and two wounds inflicted, so that each bullet can be accounted for. So it would seem, said Holmes. Perhaps you can account also for the bullet which has so obviously struck the edge of the window. He had turned suddenly, and his long, thin finger was pointing to a hole which had been drilled right through the lower window sash, about an inch above the bottom. By George! cried the inspector. However did you see that? Because I looked for it. Wonderful! said the country doctor. You are certainly right, sir. Then a third shot has been fired, and therefore a third person must have been present. But who could that have been, and how could he have got away? That is a problem which we are now about to solve, said Sherlock Holmes. You remember, Inspector Martin, when the servants said that on leaving their room they were at once conscious of a smell of powder. I remarked that the point was an extremely important one. Yes, sir, but I confess I did not quite follow you. It suggested that at the time of the firing, the window as well as the door of the room had been open, otherwise the fumes of powder could not have been blown so rapidly through the house. A draught in the room was necessary for that. Both door and window were only open for a very short time, however. How do you prove that? Because the candle was not gutted. "'Capital!' cried the inspector. "'Capital!' "'Feeling sure that the window had been open at the time of the tragedy, "'I conceived that there might have been a third person in the affair "'who stood outside this opening and fired through it. "'Any shot directed at this person might hit the sash. "'I looked, and there, sure enough, was the bullet mark. "'But how came the window to be shut and fastened?' The woman's first instinct would be to shut and fasten the window. But ho! What is this? It was a lady's handbag, which stood upon the study table. A trim little handbag of crocodile skin and silver. Holmes opened it and turned the contents out. There were twenty fifty-pound notes of the Bank of England, held together by an Indian rubber band. Nothing else. This must be preserved, for it will figure in the trial, said Holmes, as he handed the bag with its contents to the inspector. 
it is now necessary that we should try to throw some light upon this third bullet, which has clearly, from the splintering of the wood, been fired from inside the room. I should like to see Mrs. King the cook again. You said, Mrs. King, that you were awakened by a loud explosion. When you said that, did you mean that it seemed to you to be louder than the second one? Well, sir, it wakened me from my sleep, so it is hard to judge, but it did seem very loud. You don't think that it might have been two shots fired almost at the same instant? I'm sure I couldn't say, sir. I believe that it was undoubtedly so. I rather think, Inspector Martin, that we have now exhausted all that this room can teach us. If you'll kindly step round with me, we shall see what fresh evidence the garden has to offer. A flower bed extended up to the study window, and we all broke into an exclamation as we approached it. The flowers were trampled down, and the soft soil was imprinted all over with footmarks. Large, masculine feet they were, with peculiarly long, sharp toes. Holmes hunted about among the grass and leaves like a retriever after a wounded bird. Then, with a cry of satisfaction, he bent forward and picked up a little brazen cylinder. "'I thought so,' said he. "'The revolver had an ejector, and here is the third cartridge. "'I really think, Inspector Martin, that our case is almost complete.' "'The country inspector's face had shown intense amazement "'at the rapid and masterful progress of Holmes's investigation. "'At first he had shown some disposition to assert his own position, "'but now he was overcome with admiration "'and ready to follow without question wherever Holmes led.' "'Whom do you suspect?' he asked. "'I'll go into that later. "'There are several points in this problem "'which I have not been able to explain to you yet. "'Now that I have got so far, "'I had best proceed on my own lines, "'and then clear the whole matter up once and for all.' "'Just as you wish, Mr. Holmes, "'so long as we get our man.' "'I have no desire to make mysteries, "'but it is impossible at the moment of action "'to enter into long and complex explanations.' I have the threads of this affair all in my hand. Even if this lady should never recover consciousness, we can still reconstruct the events of last night and ensure that justice be done. First of all, I wish to know whether there is any inn in this neighbourhood known as Elridge's. The servants were cross-questioned, but none of them had heard of such a place. The stable boy threw a light upon the matter by remembering that a farm of that name lived some miles off in the direction of East Ruston. Is it a lonely farm? Very lonely, sir. Perhaps I have not yet heard of all that has happened here during the night. Maybe not, sir. Holmes thought for a little, and then a curious smile played over his face. Saddle a horse, my lad, said he. I shall wish you to take a note to Elridge's farm. He took from his pocket the various slips of the dancing men. With these in front of him, he worked for some time at the study table. Finally, he handed a note to the boy, with directions to put it into the hands of the person to whom it was addressed, and especially to answer no questions of any sort which might be put to him. I saw the outside of the note, addressed in straggling, irregular characters, very unlike Holmes's usual precise hand. It was consigned to Mr. Abe Slaney, Elridge's Farm, East Ruston, Norfolk. I think, Inspector, Holmes remarked, 
that you would do well to telegraph for an escort, as, if my calculations prove to be correct, you may have a particularly dangerous prisoner to convey to the county jail. The boy who takes this note could no doubt forward your telegram. If there is an afternoon train to town, Watson, I think we should do well to take it, as I have a chemical analysis of some interest to finish, and this investigation draws rapidly to a close. When the youth had been dispatched with the note, Sherlock Holmes gave his instructions to the servants. If any visitor were to call asking for Mrs. Hilton Cubitt, no information should be given as to her condition, but he was to be shown at once into the drawing-room. He impressed these points upon them with the utmost earnestness. Finally, he led the way into the drawing-room, with the remark that the business was now out of our hands, and that we must while away the time as best we might until we could see what was in store for us. The doctor had departed to his patients, and only the inspector and myself remained. "'I think that I can help you to pass an hour in an interesting and profitable manner,' said Holmes, drawing his chair up to the table, and spreading out in front of him the various papers upon which were recorded the antics of the dancing men. "'As to you, friend Watson, I owe you every atonement for having allowed your natural curiosity to remain so long unsatisfied. To you, Inspector, the whole incident may appeal as a remarkable professional study. I must tell you, first of all, the interesting circumstances connected with the previous consultations which Mr. Hilton Cubitt has had with me in Baker Street. He then shortly recapitulated the facts which have already been recorded. I have here in front of me these singular suit productions, at which one might smile had they not proved themselves to be the forerunners of so terrible a tragedy. I am fairly familiar with all forms of secret writings, and am myself the author of a trifling monograph upon the subject in which I analyse 160 separate ciphers. But I confess that this is entirely new to me. The object of those who invented the system has apparently been to conceal that these characters convey a message, and to give the idea that they are the mere random sketches of children. Having once recognised, however, that the symbols stood for letters, and having applied the rules which guide us in all forms of secret writings, the solution was easy enough. The first message submitted to me was so short that it was impossible for me to do more than to say, with some confidence, that the symbol, XXX, stood for E. As you are aware, E is the most common letter in the English alphabet, and it predominates, to so marked an extent that even in a short sentence one would expect to find it most often. Out of fifteen symbols in the first message, four were the same, so it was reasonable to set this down as E. It is true that in some cases the figure was bearing a flag, and in some cases not, but it was probable from the way in which the flags were distributed that they were used to break the sentence up into words. I accepted this as a hypothesis, and noted that E was represented by XXX. But now came the real difficulty of my inquiry. The order of the English letters after E is by no means well marked, and any preponderance which may be shown in an average of a printed sheet may be reversed in a single short sentence. Speaking roughly, T-A-O-I-N-S-H-R-D and L are the numerical order in which letters occur, but T-A-O and I are very nearly abreast of each other, and it would be an endless task to try each combination until a meaning was arrived at. I therefore waited for fresh material. 
In my second interview with Mr. Hilton Cubitt, he was able to give me two other short sentences and one message, which appeared, since there was no flag, to be a single word. Here are the symbols. Knowing the single word, I have already got the two E's coming second and fourth in a word of five letters. It might be sever, or lever, or never. There can be no question that the latter, as a reply to an appeal, is far the most probable, and the circumstances pointed to it being a reply written by the lady. Accepting it as correct, we are now able to say that the symbols stand respectively for N, V, and R. Even now I was in considerable difficulty, but a happy thought put me in possession of several other letters. It occurred to me that if these appeals came, as I expected, from someone who had been intimate with the lady in her early life, a combination which contained two E's, with three letters between, might very well stand for the name Elsie. On examination, I found that such a combination formed the termination of the message, which was three times repeated. It was certainly some appeal to Elsie. In this way, I had got my L, S and I. But what appeal could it be? There were only four letters in the word which preceded Elsie, and it ended E. Surely the word must be come. I tried all other four letters ending in E, but could find none to fit the case. So now I was in possession of C, O and M, and I was in a position to attack the first message once more. Dividing it into words, and putting dots for each symbol which was still unknown, so treated it worked out in this fashion. Dot M, dot E, R, E, dot dot E, S, L, dot, N, E, dot. Now the first letter can only be A, which is a most useful discovery, since it occurs no fewer than three times in this short sentence. And the H is also apparent in the second word. Now it becomes am here. A dot E slain, or filling in the obvious vacancies in the name, am here, Abe Slaney. I had so many letters now that I could proceed with considerable confidence to the second message, which worked out in this fashion, A dot, E-L-R-I dot E-S. Here, I could only make sense by putting T and G for the missing letters, and supposing that the name was that of some house or inn at which the writer was staying. Inspector Martin and I had listened with the utmost interest to the full and clear account of how my friend had produced results which had led to so complete command over our difficulties. "'What did you do then, sir?' asked the inspector. "'I had every reason to suppose that this Abe Slaney was an American.' since Abe is an American contraction, and since the letter from America had been the starting point of all the trouble. I had also every cause to think that there was some criminal secret in the matter. The lady's allusions to her past, and her refusal to take her husband into her confidence, both pointed in that direction. I therefore cabled to my friend Wilson Hargreave of the New York Police Bureau, who has more than once made use of my knowledge of London crime. I asked him whether the name of Abe Slaney was known to him. Here is his reply. The most dangerous crook in Chicago. On the very evening upon which I had his answer, Hilton Cubitt sent me the last message from Slaney. Working with known letters, it took this form. 
lc.re.are to meet thy go. The addition of a P and a D completed the message which showed me that the rascal was proceeding from persuasion to threats, and my knowledge of the crooks of Chicago prepared me to find that he might very rapidly put his words into action. I at once came to Norfolk with my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, but unhappily only in time to find that the worst had already occurred. "'It is a privilege to be associated with you in the handling of a case,' said the inspector warmly. "'You will excuse me, however, if I speak frankly to you. "'You are only answerable to yourself, but I have to answer to my superiors. "'If this Abe Slaney, living at Elridge's, is indeed the murderer, "'and if he has made his escape while I am seated here, "'I should certainly get into serious trouble.' You need not be uneasy. He will not try to escape. How do you know? To fly would be a confession of guilt. Then let us go arrest him. I expect him here every instant. But why should he come? Because I have written and asked him. But this is incredible, Mr. Holmes. Why should he come because you have asked him? Would not such a request rather rouse his suspicions and cause him to fly? I think I have known how to frame the letter, said Sherlock Holmes. In fact, if I am not very much mistaken, here is the gentleman himself coming up the drive. A man was striding up the path which led to the door. He was a tall, handsome, swarthy fellow, clad in a suit of grey flannel, with a Panama hat, a bristling black beard, and a great aggressive hooked nose, and flourishing a cane as he walked, he swaggered up a path as if the place belonged to him, and we heard his loud, confident peal at the bell. "'I think, gentlemen,' said Holmes quietly, "'that we had best take up our position behind the door. Every precaution is necessary when dealing with such a fellow. You will need your handcuffs, Inspector. You can leave the talking to me.' We waited in silence for a minute. One of those minutes which one can never forget. Then the door opened, and the man stepped in. In an instant, Holmes clapped a pistol to his head, and Martin slipped the handcuffs over his wrists. It was all done so swiftly and deftly that the fellow was helpless before he knew that he was attacked. He glared from one to the other of us with a pair of blazing black eyes. Then he burst into a bitter laugh. "'Well, gentlemen, you have the drop on me this time. I seem to have knocked up against something hard.' But I came here in answer to a letter from Mrs. Helton Cubitt. Don't tell me that she is in this. Don't tell me that she helped set a trap for me. Mrs. Hilton Cubitt was seriously injured and is at death's door. The man gave a hoarse cry of grief, which rang through the house. You're crazy, he cried fiercely. It was he that was hurt, not she. Who would have hurt little Elsie? I may have threatened her, God forbid me but I would not have touched a hair on her pretty head. Take it back, you. Say that she is not hurt. She was badly wounded by the side of her dead husband. He sank with a deep groan on the settee and buried his face in his manacled hands. For five minutes he was silent. Then he raised his face once more and spoke with a cold composure of despair. I have nothing to hide from you, gentlemen, said he. If I shot the man... He had his shot at me, and there's no murder in that. But if you think I could have hurt that woman, 
then you don't know either me or her. I tell you, there was never a man in this world loved a woman more than I loved her. I had a right to her. She was pledged to me years ago. Who was this Englishman that he should come between us? I tell you, I had the first right to her, and that I was only claiming my own. She broke away from your influence when she found the man that you are, said Holmes sternly. She fled from America to avoid you, and she married an honourable gentleman in England. You dogged her and followed her and made her life a misery to her, in order to induce her to abandon the husband whom she loved and respected, in order to fly with you whom she feared and hated. You have ended by bringing about the death of a noble man and driving his wife to suicide. That is your record in this business, Mr. Abe Slaney, and you will answer for it to the law. If Elsie dies, I care nothing what becomes of me, said the American. He opened one of his hands and looked at a note crumpled up in his palm. See here, mister, he cried, with a gleam of suspicion in his eyes. You are not trying to scare me over this, are you? If the lady is hurt as bad as you say, who was it that wrote this note? He tossed it forward onto the table. I wrote it to bring you here. You wrote it? There was no one on earth outside the joint who knew the secret of the dancing men. How came you to write it? What one man can invent, another can discover, said Holmes. There is a cab coming to convey you to Norwich, Mr. Slaney. But meanwhile, you have time to make some small reparation for the injury you have wrought. Are you aware that Mrs. Hilton Cubitt has herself lain under grave suspicion of the murder of her husband, and that it was only my presence here, and the knowledge which I happen to possess, which has saved her from the accusation? The least that you owe her is to make it clear to the whole world that she was in no way, directly or indirectly, responsible for his tragic end. I ask nothing better, said the American. I guess the very best case I can make for myself is the absolute naked truth. It is my duty to warn you that it will be used against you, cried the inspector, with the magnificent fair play of the British criminal law. Slaney shrugged his shoulders. I'll chance that, said he. First of all, I want you gentlemen to understand that I have known this lady since she was a child. There were seven of us in a gang in Chicago, and Elsie's father was the boss of the joint. He was a clever man, was old Patrick. It was he who invented that writing, which would pass as a child's scrawl unless you just happened to have the key to it. Well, Elsie learned some of our ways, but she couldn't stand the business, and she had a bit of honest money of her own, so she gave us all the slip and got away to London. She had been engaged to me, and she would have married me, I believe, if it, I had taken over another profession, but she would have nothing to do with anything on the cross. It was only after her marriage to this Englishman that I was able to find out where she was. I wrote to her, but got no answer. After that, I came over, and as letters were no use, I put my messages where she could read them. Well, I have been here a month now. I lived in that farm, where I had a room down below, and could get in and out every night, and no one the wiser. I tried all I could to coax Elsie away. I knew that she read the messages, for once she wrote an answer under one of them. Then my temper got the better of me, and I began to threaten her. She sent me a letter then, imploring me to go away, and saying that it would break her heart if any scandal should come upon her husband. She said that she would come down when her husband was asleep, at three in the morning, and speak with me through the end window, 
if I would go away afterwards and leave her in peace. She came down and brought money with her, trying to bribe me. This made me mad, and I caught her arm and tried to pull her through the window. At that moment, in rushed the husband, with his revolver in his hand. Elsie had sunk down upon the floor, and we were face to face. I was healed also, and I held up my gun to scare him off and let me get away. He fired and missed me. I pulled off almost at the same instant, and down he dropped. I made a way across the garden, and as I went, I heard the window shut behind me. That's God's truth, gentlemen, every word of it, and I heard no more about it until that lad came riding up with a note which made me walk in here like a jay and give myself into your hands. A cab had driven up whilst the American had been talking. Two uniformed policemen sat inside. Inspector Martin rose and touched his prisoner on the shoulder. It is time for us to go. Can I see her first? No, she is not conscious. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I only hope that if ever again I have an important case, I shall have the good fortune to have you by my side. We stood at the window and watched the cab drive away. As I turned back, my eye caught the pellet of paper which the prisoner had tossed upon the table. It was the note with which Holmes had decoyed him. See if you can read it, Watson, said he with a smile. It contained no word but this little line of dancing men. If you use the code which I have explained, said Holmes, you'll find that it simply means, come here at once. I was convinced that it was an invitation which he would not refuse, since he could never imagine that it could come from anyone but the lady. And so, my dear Watson, we have ended by turning the dancing men to good when they have so often been the agents of evil. And I think that I have fulfilled my promise of giving you something unusual for your notebook. 3.40 is our train, and I fancy we should be back in Baker Street for dinner. Only one word of epilogue. The American, Abe Slaney, was condemned to death at the winter assizes at Norwich. But his penalty was changed to penal servitude in consideration of mitigating circumstances and the certainty that Hilton Cubitt had fired the first shot. Of Mrs. Hilton Cubitt, I only know that I have heard she recovered entirely and that she still remains a widow, devoting her whole life to the care of the poor and to the administration of her husband's estate. End of The Adventure of the Dancing Men by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Part 1 of The Adventure of the Solitary Cyclist From the Return of Sherlock Holmes From the years 1894 to 1901 inclusive, Mr. Sherlock Holmes was a very busy man. It is safe to say that there was no public case of any difficulty in which he was not consulted during those eight years, and there were hundreds of private cases, some of them of the most intricate and extraordinary character, in which he played a prominent part. Many startling successes, and a few unavoidable failures, were the outcome of this long period of continuous work. As I have preserved very full notes of all these cases, and was myself personally engaged in many of them, it may be imagined that it is no easy task to know which I should select to lay before the public. I shall, however, preserve my former rule, 
and give the preference to those cases which derive their interest not so much from the brutality of the crime as from the ingenuity and dramatic quality of the solution. For this reason, I will now lay before the reader the facts connected with Miss Violet Smith, the solitary cyclist of Charlington, and the curious sequel of our investigation, which culminated in unexpected tragedy. It is true that the circumstance did not admit of any striking illustration of those powers for which my friend was famous, but there were some points about the case which made it stand out in those long records of crime from which I gather the material for these little narratives. On referring to my notebook for the year 1895, I find that it was upon Saturday the 23rd of April that we first heard of Miss Violet Smith. Her visit was, I remember, extremely unwelcome to Holmes, for he was immersed at the moment in a very abstruse and complicated problem concerning the peculiar persecution to which John Vincent Harden, the well-known tobacco millionaire, had been subjected. My friend, who loved above all things precision and concentration of thought, resented anything which distracted his attention from the matter in hand. And yet, without a harshness, which was foreign to his nature, it was impossible to refuse to listen to the story of the young and beautiful woman. Tall, graceful and queenly, who presented herself at Baker Street late in the evening, and implored his assistance and advice. It was vain to urge that his time was already fully occupied, for the young lady had come with the determination to tell her story, and it was evident that nothing short of force could get her out of the room until she had done so. With a resigned air, and a somewhat weary smile, Holmes begged the beautiful intruder to take a seat, and to inform us what it was that was troubling her. "'At least it cannot be your health,' said he, as his keen eyes darted over her. "'So ardent a bicyclist must be full of energy.' She glanced down in surprise at her own feet, and I observed the slight roughening of the side of the sole caused by the friction of the edge of the pedal. "'Yes, I bicycle a good deal, Mr. Holmes, and that has something to do with my visit to you today.' My friend took the lady's ungloved hand, and examined it with as close an attention and as little sentiment as a scientist would show to a specimen. "'You will excuse me. I am sure. It is my business,' said he, as he dropped it. "'I nearly fell into the error of supposing that you were typewriting. Of course, it is obvious that it is music. You observe the spatulate finger-ends, Watson, which is common to both professions.' There is a spirituality about the face, however, she gently turned it towards the light, which the typewriter does not generate. This lady is a musician. Yes, Mr. Holmes, I teach music. In the country, I presume, from your complexion? Yes, sir, near Farnham, on the borders of Surrey. A beautiful neighbourhood, and full of the most interesting associations. You remember, Watson, that it was near there that we took Archie Stamford, the forger. Now, Miss Violet, what has happened to you near Farnham, on the borders of Surrey? The young lady, with great clearness and composure, made the following curious statement. My father is dead, Mr. Holmes. He was James Smith, 
who conducted the orchestra at the old Imperial Theatre. My mother and I were left without a relation in the world except one uncle, Ralph Smith, who went to Africa twenty-five years ago, and we have never had a word from him since. When father died, we were left very poor, but one day we were told that there was an advertisement in the Times inquiring for our whereabouts. You can imagine how excited we were, for we thought that someone had left us a fortune. We went at once to the lawyer, whose name was given in the paper. There we met two gentlemen, Mr. Carruthers and Mr. Woodley, who were home on a visit from South Africa. They said that my uncle was a friend of theirs, that he had died some months before in great poverty in Johannesburg, and that he had asked them with his last breath to hunt up his relations and see that they were in no want. It seemed strange to us that Uncle Ralph, who took no notice of us when he was alive, should be so careful to look after us when he was dead. But Mr. Carruthers explained that the reason was that my uncle had just heard of the death of his brother, and so felt responsible for our fate. "'Excuse me,' said Holmes. "'When was this interview?' "'Last December, four months ago.' "'Pray proceed.' Mr. Woodley seemed to me to be a most odious person. He was ever making eyes at me, a coarse, puffy-faced, red-moustached young man, with his hair plastered down on each side of his forehead. I thought that he was perfectly hateful, and I was sure that Cyril would not wish me to know such a person. "'Oh, Cyril is his name,' said Holmes, smiling. The young lady blushed and laughed. "'Yes, Mr. Holmes, Cyril Morton, an electrical engineer, and we hope to be married at the end of the summer.' Dear me, how did I get talking about him? What I wished to say was that Mr. Woodley was perfectly odious, but that Mr. Carruthers, who was a much older man, was more agreeable. He was a dark, sallow, clean-shaven, silent person, but he had a polite manners and a pleasant smile. He inquired how we were left, and on finding that we were very poor, he suggested that I should come and teach music to his only daughter, aged ten. I said that I did not like to leave my mother, on which he suggested that I should go home to her every weekend, and he offered me a hundred a year, which was certainly splendid pay. So I ended by accepting, and I went down to Chilton Grange, about six miles from Farnham. Mr. Carruthers was a widower, but he had engaged a lady housekeeper, a very respectable elderly person, called Mrs. Dixon, to look after his establishment. The child was a dear, and everything promised well. Mr. Carruthers was very kind and very musical, and we had most pleasant evenings together. Every weekend I went home to my mother in town. The first flaw in my happiness was the arrival of the red-moustached Mr. Woodley. He came for a visit of a week, and, oh, it seemed three months to me. He was a dreadful person, a bully to everyone else, but to me something infinitely worse. He made odious love to me, boasted of his wealth, said that if I married him I could have the finest diamonds in London, and finally, when I had nothing to do with him, he seized me in his arms one day after dinner. He was hideously strong, and swore that he would not let me go until I had kissed him. Mr. Carruthers came in and tore him from me, on which he turned upon his own host, knocking him down and cutting his face open. That was the end of his visit as you can imagine.
Mr. Carruthers apologized to me next day, and assured me that I should never be exposed to such an insult again. I have not seen Mr. Woodley since. And now, Mr. Holmes, I come at last to the special thing which has caused me to ask your advice today. You must know that every Saturday forenoon I ride on my bicycle to Farnham Station, in order to get the 12.22 to town. The road from Chilton Grange is a lonely one, and at one spot it is particularly so, for it lies for over a mile between Charlington Heath upon one side, and the woods which lie round Charlington Hall upon the other. You could not find a more lonely tract of road anywhere, and it is quite rare to meet so much as a cart, or a peasant, until you reach the high road near Crooksbury Hill. Two weeks ago I was passing this place when I chanced to look back over my shoulder, and about two hundred yards behind me I saw a man, also on a bicycle. He seemed to be a middle-aged man, with a short dark beard. I looked back before I reached Farnham, but the man was gone, so I thought no more about it. But you can imagine how surprised I was, Mr. Holmes, and on my return on the Monday, I saw the same man on the same stretch of road. My astonishment was increased when the incident occurred again, exactly as before, on the following Saturday and Monday. He always kept his distance and did not molest me in any way, but still it certainly was very odd. I mentioned it to Mr. Carruthers, who seemed interested in what I said, and told me that he had ordered a horse and trap, so that in future I should not pass over these lonely roads without some companion. The horse and trap were to have come this week, but for some reason they were not delivered, and again I had to cycle to the station. That was this morning. You can think that I looked out when I came to Charlington Heath, and there, sure enough, was the man, exactly as he had been two weeks before. He always kept so far from me that I could not clearly see his face, but it was certainly someone whom I did not know. He was dressed in a dark suit with a cloth cap. The only thing about his face that I could clearly see was the dark beard. Today I was not alarmed, but I was filled with curiosity, and I determined to find out who he was and what he wanted. I slowed down my machine, but he slowed down his. Then I stopped altogether, but he stopped also. Then I laid a trap for him. There was a sharp turning of the road, and I pedalled very quickly round this, and then I stopped and waited. I expected him to shoot round and pass me before he could stop, but he never appeared. Then I went back and looked round the corner. I could see a mile of road, but he was not on it. To make it the more extraordinary, there was no side road at this point down which he could have gone. Holmes chuckled and rubbed his hands. This case certainly presents some features of its own, said he. How much time elapsed between your turning the corner and your discovery that the road was clear? Two or three minutes. Then he could not have retreated down the road. And you say that there are no side roads? None. Then he certainly took a footpath, on one side or the other. He could not have been on the side of the heath, or I should have seen him. So, by the process of exclusion, we arrive at the fact that he made his way toward Charlington Hall, which, as I understand, is situated in its own grounds on one side of the road. Anything else? 
Nothing, Mr. Holmes, save that I was so perplexed that I felt I should not be happy until I had seen you and had your advice. Holmes sat in silence for some little time. Where is the gentleman to whom you are engaged? he asked at last. He is in the Midland Electrical Company at Coventry. He would not pay you a surprise visit. Oh, Mr. Holmes, as if I should not know him. Have you had any other admirers? Several, before I knew Cyril. And since? There was this dreadful man, Woodley, if you can call him an admirer. No one else. Our fair client seemed a little confused. Who was he? asked Holmes. Oh, it may be a mere fancy of mine, but it had seemed to me sometimes that my employer, Mr. Carruthers, takes a great deal of interest in me. We are thrown rather together. I play his accompaniments in the evening. He has never said anything. He is a perfect gentleman, but a girl always knows. Ha! Holmes looked grave. What does he do for a living? He is a rich man. No carriages or horses? Well, at least he is fairly well to do. But he goes into the city two or three times a week. He is deeply interested in South African gold shares. You will let me know any fresh developments, Miss Smith. I am very busy just now, but I will find time to make some inquiries into your case. In the meantime, take no step without letting me know. Goodbye, and I trust that we shall have nothing but good news from you. It is part of the settled order of nature that such a girl should have followers, said Holmes. He pulled at his meditative pipe. But for choice, not on bicycles in lonely country roads. Some secretive lover, beyond all doubt. But there are curious and suggestive details about the case, Watson. That he should appear only at that point? Exactly. Our first effort must be to find who are the tenants of Charlington Hall. Then, again, how about the connection between Carruthers and Woodley, since they appear to be men of such a different type? How come they both to be so keen upon looking up Ralph Smith's relations? One more point. What sort of menage is it which pays double the market price for a governess but does not keep a horse? although six miles from the station. Odd, Watson, very odd. You will go down? No, my dear fellow, you will go down. This may be some trifling intrigue, and I cannot break my other important research for the sake of it. On Monday you will arrive early at Farnham. You will conceal yourself near Charlington Heath. You will observe these facts for yourself, and act as your own judgment advises. Then... Having inquired as to the occupants of the hall, you will come back to me and report. And now, Watson, not another word of the matter until we have a few solid stepping stones on which we may hope to get across to our solution. We had ascertained from the lady that she went down upon the Monday by the train which leaves Waterloo at 9.50. So I started early and caught the 9.13. At Farnham Station I had no difficulty in being directed to Charlington Heath. It was impossible to mistake the scene of the young lady's adventure, for the road runs between the open heath on one side and an old yew hedge upon the other, 
surrounding a park which is studded with magnificent trees. There was a main gateway of lichen-studded stone, each side pillar surmounted by mouldering heraldic emblems. But besides this central carriage drive, I observed several points where there were gaps in the hedge and paths leading through them. The house was invisible from the road, but the surroundings all spoke of gloom and decay. The heath was covered with golden patches of flowering gorse, gleaming magnificently in the light of the bright spring sunshine. Behind one of these clumps I took up my position, so as to command both the gateway of the hall and a long stretch of the road upon either side. It had been deserted when I left it, but now I saw a cyclist riding down it from the opposite direction to that in which I had come. He was clad in a dark suit, and I saw that he had a black beard. On reaching the end of the Charlington grounds, he sprang from his machine and led it through a gap in the hedge, disappearing from my view. A quarter of an hour passed, and then a second cyclist appeared. This time it was the young lady coming from the station. I saw her look about her as she came to the Charlington hedge. An instant later, the man emerged from his hiding place, sprang upon his cycle and followed her. In all the broad landscape, those were the only moving figures. The graceful girl, sitting very straight upon her machine, and the man behind her, bending low over his handlebar, with a curiously furtive suggestion in every movement. She looked back at him and slowed her pace. He slowed also. She stopped. He at once stopped too, keeping two hundred yards behind her. Her next movement was as unexpected as it was spirited. She suddenly whisked her wheels round and dashed straight at him. He was as quick as she, however, and darted off in desperate flight. Presently she came back up the road again, her head haughtily in the air, not deigning to take any further notice of her silent attendant. He had turned also, and still kept his distance until the curve of the road hid them from my sight. I remained in my hiding place, and it was well that I did so, for presently the man reappeared, cycling slowly back. He turned in at the hall gates, and dismounted from his machine. For some minutes I could see him standing among the trees. His hands were raised, and he seemed to be settling his necktie. Then he mounted his cycle, and rode away from me down the drive towards the hall. I ran across the heath, and peered through the trees. Far away I could catch glimpses of the old grey building with its bristling Tudor chimneys, but the drive ran through a dense shrubbery, and I saw no more of my man. However, it seemed to me that I had done a fairly good morning's work, and I walked back in high spirits to Farnham. The local house agent could tell me nothing about Charlington Hall, and referred me to a well-known firm in Paul Mall. There I halted on my way home, and met with courtesy from the representative. No, I could not have Charlington Hall for the summer. I was just too late. It had been let about a month ago. Mr. Williamson was the name of the tenant. He was a respectable elderly gentleman. The polite agent was afraid he could say no more, as the affairs of his clients were not matters which he could discuss. Mr. Sherlock Holmes listened with attention to the long report which I was able to present to him that evening, but it did not elicit that word of curt praise which I had hoped for, and should have valued. 
On the contrary, his austere face was even more severe than usual as he commented upon the things that I had done, and the things that I had not. "'Your hiding-place, my dear Watson, was very faulty. You should have been behind the hedge. Then you would have had a close view of this interesting person. As it is, you are some hundreds of yards away, and can tell me even less than Miss Smith. She thinks she does not know the man. I am convinced she does.' Why otherwise should he be so desperately anxious that she should not get so near him as to see his features? You describe him as bending over the handlebar. Concealment again, you see. You really have done remarkably badly. He returns to the house, and you want to find out who he is. You come to a London house agent. What should I have done, I cried, with some heat? Gone to the nearest public house. That is the centre of country gossip. They would have told you every name from the master to the scullery maid. Williamson? It conveys nothing to my mind. If he is an elderly man, he is not this active cyclist who sprints away from that young lady's athletic pursuit. What have we gained by your expedition? The knowledge that the girl's story is true? I never doubted it. That there is a connection between the cyclist and the hall? I never doubted that either. That the hall is tenanted by Williamson? Who's the better for that? Well, well, my dear sir. Don't look so depressed. We can do little more until next Saturday, and in the meantime I may make one or two inquiries myself. End of The Adventure of the Solitary Cyclist Part 1 Part 2 of The Adventure of the Solitary Cyclist From the Return of Sherlock Holmes Next morning we had a note from Miss Smith, recounting shortly and accurately the very instance which I had seen, but the pith of the letter lay in the postscript. I am sure that you will respect my confidence, Mr. Holmes, when I tell you that my place here has become difficult, owing to the fact that my employer has proposed marriage to me. I am convinced that his feelings are most deep and most honourable. At the same time, my promise is of course given. He took my refusal very seriously, but also very gently. You can understand, however, that the situation is a little strained. Our young friend seems to be getting into deep waters, said Holmes thoughtfully, as he finished the letter. The case certainly presents more features of interest and more possibility of development than I had originally thought. I should be none the worse for a quiet, peaceful day in the country, and I am inclined to run down this afternoon and test one or two theories which I have formed. Holmes's quiet day in the country had a singular termination, for he arrived at Baker Street late in the evening, with a cut lip and a discoloured lump upon his forehead, besides a general air of dissipation which would have made his own person the fitting object of a Scotland Yard investigation. He was immensely tickled by his own adventures, and laughed heartily as he recounted them. "'I get so little active exercise that it is always a treat,' said he. You are aware that I have some proficiency in the good old British sport of boxing. Occasionally it is of service. Today, for example, I should have come to a very ignominious grief without it. I begged him to tell me what had occurred. I found that country pub, which I had already recommended to your notice, and there I made my discreet inquiries. I was in the bar, and a garrulous landlord was giving me all that I wanted. Williamson? is a white-bearded man, and he lives alone with a small staff of servants at the hall. There is some rumour 
that he is or has been a clergyman, but one or two incidents of his short residence at the hall struck me as peculiarly unecclesiastical. I have already made some inquiries at a clerical agency, and they tell me that there was a man of that name in orders, whose career has been a singularly dark one. The landlord further informed me that there are usually weekend visitors. A warm lot, sir, at the hall, and especially one gentleman with a red moustache, Mr. Woodley by name, who was always there. We had got as far as this, when who should walk in but the gentleman himself, who had been drinking his beer in the tap-room, and had heard the whole conversation. Who was I? What did I want? What did I mean by asking questions? He had a fine flow of language, and his adjectives were very vigorous. He ended a string of abuse by a vicious backhander, which I failed to entirely avoid. The next few minutes were delicious. It was a straight left against a slogging ruffian. I emerged as you see me. Mr. Woodley went home in a cart. So ended my country trip, and it must be confessed that, however enjoyable, my day on the Surrey border has not been much more profitable than your own. The Thursday brought us another letter from our client. You will not be surprised, Mr. Holmes, said she, to hear that I am leaving Mr. Crother's employment. Even the high pay cannot reconcile me to the discomforts of my situation. On Saturday I come up to town, and I do not intend to return. Mr. Carruthers has got a trap, and so the dangers of the lonely road, if there ever were any dangers, are now over. As to the special cause of my leaving, it is not merely the strange situation with Mr. Carruthers, but it is the reappearance of that odious man, Mr. Woodley. He was always hideous, but he looks more awful than ever now, for he appears to have had an accident, and he is much disfigured. I saw him out of the window, but I am glad to say I did not meet him. He had a long talk with Mr. Carruthers, who seemed much excited afterwards. Woodley must be staying in the neighbourhood, for he did not sleep here, and yet I caught a glimpse of him again this morning, slinking about in the shrubbery. I would sooner have had a savage wild animal loose about the place. I loathe and fear him more than I can say. How can Mr. Carruthers endure such a creature for a moment? However, all my troubles will be over on Saturday. So I trust, Watson, so I trust, said Holmes gravely. There is some deep intrigue going on round that little woman, and it is our duty to see that no one molests her upon that last journey. I think, Watson, that we must spare time to run down together on Saturday morning, and make sure that this curious and inclusive investigation has no untoward ending. I confess that I had not, up to now, taken a very serious view of the case, which had seemed to me rather grotesque and bizarre than dangerous. That a man should lie in wait for and follow a very handsome woman is no unheard-of thing, and if he has so little audacity that he not only dared not address her, but even fled from her approach, he was not a very formidable assailant. The ruffian Woodley was a very different person, but except on one occasion he had not molested our client, and now he visited the house of Carruthers without intruding upon her presence. The man on the bicycle was doubtless a member of those week-end parties at the hall of which the publican had spoken, but who he was, or what he wanted, was as obscure as ever. It was the severity of Holmes's manner 
and the fact that he slipped a revolver into his pocket before leaving our rooms, which impressed me with the feeling that tragedy might prove to lurk behind this curious train of events. A rainy night had been followed by a glorious morning, and the heath-covered countryside, with the glowing clumps of flowering gorse, seemed all the more beautiful to eyes, which were weary of the duns and drabs and slate greys of London. Holmes and I walked along the broad, sandy road, inhaling the fresh morning air, and rejoicing in the music of the birds, and the fresh breath of the spring. From a rise of the road, on the shoulder of Crooksbury Hill, we could see the grim hall bristling out from amidst the ancient oaks, which, old as they were, were still younger than the building which they surrounded. Holmes pointed down the long tract of road which wound, a reddish-yellow band, between the brown of the heath and the budding green of the woods. Far away, a black dot. We could see a vehicle moving in our direction. Holmes gave an exclamation of impatience. "'I have given a margin of half an hour,' said he. "'If that is her trap, she must be making for the earlier train. "'I fear, Watson, that she will be past Charlington before we can possibly meet her.' From the instant that we passed the rise, we could no longer see the vehicle, but we hastened onward at such a pace that my sedentary life began to tell upon me, and I was compelled to fall behind. Holmes, however, was always in training, for he had inexhaustible stores of nervous energy upon which to draw. His springy step never slowed, until suddenly, when he was a hundred yards in front of me, he halted, and I saw him throw up his hands with a gesture of grief and despair. At the same instant, an empty dog-cart, the horse cantering, the reins trailing, appeared round the curve of the road and rattled swiftly towards us. "'Too late, Watson! Too late!' cried Holmes, as I ran panting to his side. "'Fool that I was not to allow for that earlier train! It's abduction, Watson! Abduction! Murder! Heaven knows what! Block the road! Stop the horse! That's right! Now jump in, and let us see if I can repair the consequences of my own blunder!' We had sprung into the dog-cart, and Holmes, after turning the horse, gave it a sharp cut with the whip, and we flew back along the road. As we turned the curve, the whole stretch of road between the hall and the heath was opened up. I grasped Holmes's arm. "'That's the man!' I gasped. A solitary cyclist was coming towards us. His heads were down, and his shoulders rounded as he put every ounce of energy that he possessed onto the pedals. He was flying like a racer. Suddenly he raised his bearded face, saw us close to him, and pulled up, springing from his machine. That coal-black beard was in singular contrast to eyes that were as bright as if he had a fever. He stared at us and at the dog-cart, then a look of amazement came over his face. "'Hello! Stop there!' he shouted, holding his bicycle to block our road. "'Where did you get that dog-cart? Pull up, man!' he yelled, drawing a pistol from his side. Pull up, I say, or by George I'll put a bullet into your horse. Holmes threw the reins into my lap and sprung down from the cart. You're the man we want to see. Where is Miss Violet Smith? he said in his quick, clear way. That's what I'm asking you. You're in her dog cart. You ought to know where she is. We met the dog cart on the road. There was no one in it. We drove back to help the young lady. "'Good Lord! Good Lord! What shall I do?' cried the stranger, in an ecstasy of despair. "'They've got her, that hellhound Woodley, and the blackguard parson. 
Come, man, come, if you really are her friend. Stand by me and we'll save her, if I have to leave my carcass in Charlington Wood. He ran distractedly, his pistol in his hand, towards the gap in the hedge. Holmes followed him, and I, leaving the horse grazing beside the road, followed Holmes. This is where they came through, said he, pointing to the marks of several feet upon the muddy path. Hello, stop a minute, who's this in the bush? It was a young fellow, about seventeen, dressed like an ostler, with leather cords and gaiters. He lay upon his back, his knees drawn up, a terrible cut upon his head. He was insensible, but alive. A glance at his wound told me that it had not penetrated the bone. That's Peter, the groom, cried the stranger. He drove her. The beasts have pulled him off and clubbed him. Let him lie. We can't do him any good, but we may save her from the worst fate that can befall a woman. We ran frantically down the path, which wound among the trees. We had reached the shrubbery which surrounded the house when Holmes pulled up. They didn't go to the house. Here are the marks on the left, here, beside the laurel bushes. Ah, I said so. As he spoke, a woman's shrill scream, a scream which vibrated with a frenzy of horror, burst from the thick green clump of bushes in front of us. It ended suddenly on its highest note with a choke and a gurgle. This way, this way, they're in the bowling alley, cried the stranger, darting through the bushes. Ah, the cowardly dogs! Follow me, gentlemen. Too late, too late, by the living jingo. We had broken suddenly into a lovely glade of greensward, surrounded by ancient trees. On the farther side of it, under the shadow of a mighty oak, there stood a singular group of three people. One was a woman, our client, drooping and faint, a handkerchief around her mouth. Opposite her stood a brutal, heavy-faced, red-moustached young man, his gaitered legs parted wide, one arm akimbo, the other waving a riding crop, his whole attitude suggestive of triumphant bravado. Between them an elderly, grey-bearded man, wearing a short surplice over a light tweed suit, had evidently just completed the wedding service, for he pocketed his prayer book as we approached, and slapped the sinister bridegroom upon the back in jovial congratulations. They're married? I gasped. Come on, cried our guide, come on! He rushed across the glade, Holmes and I at his heels. As we approached, the lady staggered against the trunk of the tree for support. Williamson, the ex-clergyman, bowed to us with mock politeness, and the bully, Woodley, advanced with a shout of brutal and exultant laughter. You can take your beard off, Bob, said he. I know you right enough. Well, you and your pals have just come in time for me to be able to introduce you to Mrs. Woodley. Our guide's answer was a singular one. He snatched off the dark beard which had disguised him and threw it on the ground, disclosing a long, sallow, clean-shaven face below it. Then he raised his revolver and covered the young ruffian who was advancing upon him with his dangerous riding crop swinging in his hand. Yes, said our ally. I am Bob Carruthers, and I'll see this woman righted if I have to swing for it. I told you what I'd do if you molested her, and by the Lord, I'll be as good as my word. You're too late. She's my wife. No, she's your widow. His revolver cracked.
and I saw the blood spurt from the front of Woodley's waistcoat. He spun round with a scream, and fell back upon his back, his hideous red face turning suddenly to a dreadful mottled pallor. The old man, still in his surplice, burst into such a string of foul oaths as I have never heard, and pulled out a revolver of his own. But before he could raise it, he was looking down the barrel of Holmes's weapon. "'Enough of this,' said my friend coldly. "'Drop that pistol. Watson, pick it up. Hold it to his head. Thank you. You, Carruthers, give me that revolver. We'll have no more violence. Come, hand it over.' "'Who are you, then?' "'My name is Sherlock Holmes.' "'Good Lord!' You have heard of me, I see. I will represent the official police until their arrival. Here you, he shouted to a frightened groom who had appeared at the edge of the glade. Come here, take this note as hard as you can ride to Farnham. He scribbled a few words upon a leaf from his notebook. Give it to the superintendent of the police station. Until he comes, I must detain you all under my personal custody. The strong, masterful personality of Holmes dominated the tragic scene and all were equally puppets in his hands. Williamson and Carruthers found themselves carrying the wounded Woodley into the house, and I gave my arm to the frightened girl. The injured man was laid on his bed, and at Holmes's request I examined him. I carried my report to where he sat in the old tapestry-hung dining-room with his two prisoners before him. "'He will live,' said I. "'What?' cried Carruthers, springing out of his chair. I'll go upstairs and finish him first. Do you tell me that angel is to be tied to roaring Jack Woodley for life? You need not concern yourself about that, said Holmes. There are two very good reasons why she should, under no circumstances, be his wife. In the first place, we are very safe in questioning Mr. Williamson's right to solemnize a marriage. I've been ordained, cried the old rascal, and also unfrocked. Once a clergyman, always a clergyman. I think not. How about the license? We had a license for the marriage. I have it here in my pocket. Then you got it by a trick. But in any case, a forced marriage is no marriage. But it is a very serious felony, as you will discover before you have finished. You'll have time to think the point out during the next ten years or so, unless I am mistaken. As to you, Crothers you would have done better to keep your pistol in your pocket. I begin to think so, Mr. Holmes, but when I thought of all the precautions I had taken to shield this girl, for I loved her, Mr. Holmes, and it is the only time that ever I knew what love was, it fairly drove me mad to think that she was in the power of the greatest brute and bully in South Africa, a man whose name is a holy terror from Kimberley to Johannesburg. Why, Mr. Holmes, you'll hardly believe it, but ever since that girl has been in my employment, I never once let her go past this house, where I knew the rascals were lurking, without following her on my bicycle, just to see that she came to no harm. I kept my distance from her, and I wore a beard, so that she would not recognise me, for she is a good and high-spirited girl, and she wouldn't have stayed in my employment long if she had thought that I was following her about the country roads. Why didn't you tell her of her danger? because then again she would have left me, and I couldn't bear to face that. Even if she couldn't love me, it was a great deal to me just to see her dainty form about the house, and to hear the sound of her voice. 
Well, said I, you call that love, Mr. Crothers, but I should call it selfishness. Maybe the two things go together. Anyhow, I couldn't let her go. Besides, with this crowd about, it was well that she should have someone near to look after her. Then, when the cable came, I knew they were bound to make a move. What cable? Carruthers took a telegram from his pocket. That's it, said he. It was short and concise. The old man is dead. Hum, said Holmes. I think I see how things worked, and I can understand how this message would, as you say, bring them to a head. But while you wait, you might tell me what you can. The old reprobate with the surplice burst into a volley of bad language. By heaven, said he, if you squeal at us, Bob Carruthers, I'll serve you as you serve Jack Woodley. You can bleat about the girls your heart's content, but that's your own affair. But if you round on your pals to this plain-clothes copper, it'll be the worst day's work that you ever did. Your reverence need not be excited, said Holmes, lighting a cigarette. The case is clear enough against you, and all I ask is a few details for my private curiosity. However, if there's any difficulty in your telling me, I'll do the talking, and then you will see how far you have a chance of holding back your secrets. In the first place, three of you came from South Africa on this game, you, Williamson, you, Carruthers, and Woodley. Lie number one, said the old man. I never saw either of them until two months ago, and I have never been in Africa in my life, so you can put that in your pipe and smoke it, Mr. Busybody Holmes. What he says is true, said Carruthers. Well, well, two of you came over. His reverence is our own homemade article. You had known Ralph Smith in South Africa. You had reason to believe he would not live long. You found out that his niece would inherit his fortune. How's that, eh? Carruthers nodded, and Williamson swore. She was next of kin, no doubt, and you were aware that the old fellow would make no will. Couldn't read all right, said Carruthers. So, you came over, the two of you, and hunted up the girl. The idea was that one of you was to marry her, and the other have a share of the plunder. For some reason, Woodley was chosen as the husband. Why was that? We played cards for her on the voyage. He won. I see. You got the lady into your service, and there Woodley was to do the courting. She recognised the drunken brute that he was, and would have nothing to do with him. Meanwhile, your arrangement was rather upset by the fact that you had yourself fallen in love with the lady. You could no longer bear the idea of this ruffian owning her. No, by George, I couldn't. There was a quarrel between you. He left you in a rage, and began to make his own plans independently of you. It strikes me, Williamson, there isn't very much that we can tell this gentleman, cried Carruthers with a bitter laugh. Yes, we quarrelled, and he knocked me down. I am level with him on that, anyhow. Then I lost sight of him. That was when he picked up with his outcast padre here. I found that they had set up housekeeping together at this place on the line that she had to pass for the station. I kept my eye on her after that, for I knew there was some devilry in the wind. I saw them from time to time, for I was anxious to know what they were after. Two days ago, Woodley came up to my house with this cable which showed that Ralph Smith was dead. 
He asked me if I would stand by the bargain. I said I would not. He asked me if I would marry the girl myself and give him a share. I said I would willingly do so, but that she would not have me. He said, Let us get her married first, and after a week or two she may see things a bit different. I said I would have nothing to do with violence, so he went off cursing like the foul-mouthed blackguard that he was, and swearing that he would have her yet. She was leaving me this weekend, and I had got a trap to take her to the station, but I was so uneasy in my mind that I followed her on my bicycle. She had got a start, however, and before I could catch her, the mischief was done. The first thing I knew about it was when I saw you two gentlemen driving back in her dog-cart. Holmes rose, and tossed the end of his cigarette into the grate. "'I have been very obtuse, Watson,' said he. "'When in your report you said that you had seen the cyclist, as you thought, arrange his necktie in the shrubbery, that alone should have told me all. However, we may congratulate ourselves upon a curious, and in some respects a unique case. I perceive three of the county constabulary in the drive. I am glad to see that the little ostler is able to keep pace with them, so it is likely that neither he nor the interesting bridegroom will be permanently damaged by their morning's adventures. I think, Watson, that in your medical capacity you might wait upon Miss Smith and tell her that if she is sufficiently recovered, we shall be happy to escort her to her mother's house. If she is not quite convalescent, you will find that a hint that we were about to telegraph to a young electrician in the Midlands would probably complete the cure. As to you, Mr. Carruthers, I think that you have done what you could to make amends for your share in an evil plot. There is my card, sir, and if my evidence can be of help in your trial, it shall be at your disposal. In the whirl of our incessant activity, it has often been difficult for me, as the reader has probably observed, to round off my narratives, and to give those final details which the curious might expect. Each case has been the prelude to another, and the crisis once over, the actors have passed for ever out of our busy lives. I find, however, a short note at the end of my manuscript dealing with this case, in which I have put upon record that Miss Violet Smith did indeed inherit a large fortune, and that she is now the wife of Cyril Morton, the senior partner of Morton and Kennedy, the famous Westminster electricians. Williamson and Woodley were both tried for abduction and assault, the former getting seven years, the latter ten. Of the fate of Carruthers, I have no record, but I am sure that his assault was not viewed very gravely by the court, since Woodley had the reputation of being a most dangerous ruffian, and I think that a few months were sufficient to satisfy the demands of justice. End of The Adventure of the Solitary Cyclist by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Part 1 of The Adventures of the Priory School from The Return of Sherlock Holmes We have had some dramatic entrances and exits upon our small stage at Baker Street, but I cannot recall anything more sudden and startling than the first appearance of Thornycroft Huxtable, M.A., Ph.D., etc., his card, which seemed too small to carry the weight of his academic distinctions, preceded him by a few seconds, and then he entered himself, so large, so pompous, and so dignified, that he was the very embodiment of self-possession and solidity. 
and yet his first action, when the door had closed behind him, was to stagger against the table, whence he slipped down upon the floor, and there was that majestic figure prostrate and insensible upon our bearskin hearth-rug. We had sprung to our feet, and for a few moments we stared in silent amazement at this ponderous piece of wreckage, which told of some sudden and fatal storm far out on the ocean of life. Then Holmes hurried with a cushion for his head, and I with brandy for his lips. The heavy white face was seamed with lines of trouble. The hanging pouches under the closed eyes were leaden in color. The loose mouth drooped dolorously at the corners. The rolling chins were unshaven. Collar and shirt bore the grime of a long journey, and the hair bristled unkept from the well-shaped head. It was a sorely stricken man who lay before us. "'What is it, Watson?' asked Holmes. "'Absolute exhaustion. Possibly mere hunger and fatigue,' said I, with my finger on the thready pulse, where the stream of life trickled thin and small. "'Return ticket from Mackleton in the north of England,' said Holmes, drawing it from the watch-pocket. It is not twelve o'clock yet. He has certainly been an early starter. The puckered eyelids had begun to quiver, and now a pair of vacant gray eyes looked up at us. An instant later the man had scrambled on to his feet, his face crimson with shame. Forgive this weakness, Mr. Holmes. I've been a little overwrought. Thank you. If I might have a glass of milk and a biscuit, I have no doubt that I should be better. I came personally, Mr. Holmes, in order to ensure that you would return with me. I feared that no telegram would convince you of the absolute urgency of the case. When you are quite restored— I am quite well again. I cannot imagine how I came to be so weak. I wish you, Mr. Holmes, to come to Mackleton with me by the next train. My friend shook his head. My colleague, Dr. Watson, could tell you that we are very busy at present. I am retained in the case of the Ferrars documents— and the Abergavenny murder is coming up for trial. Only a very important issue could call me from London at present. Important? Our visitor threw up his hands. Have you heard nothing of the abduction of the only son of the Duke of Holderness? What? The late cabinet minister? Exactly. We had tried to keep it out of the papers, but there was some rumor in the Globe last night. We thought it might have reached your ears. Holmes shot out his long, thin arm and picked out Volume H in his Encyclopedia of Reference. Holderness, Sixth Duke, K.G., P.C., Half the Alphabet, Baron Beverley, Earl of Carston. Dear me, what a list! Lord Lieutenant of Hallamsham since 1900. Married Edith, daughter of Sir Charles Appledore, 1888. Heir and only child, Lord Saltire. Owns about 250,000 acres. Minerals in Lancashire and Wales. Address, Carlton House Terrace, Holderness Hall, Hallamshire. Carlton Castle, Bangor, Wales. Lord of the Admiralty, 1872. Chief Secretary of State for... Well, well, this man is certainly one of the greatest subjects of the Crown. The greatest, and perhaps the wealthiest. I am aware, Mr. Holmes, that you take a very high line in professional matters, and that you are prepared to work for the work's sake. I may tell you, however, that His Grace has already intimated that a check for five thousand pounds will be handed over to the person who can tell him where his son is, and another thousand to him who can name the man or men who have taken him. It is a princely offer, said Holmes. Watson, I think we shall accompany Dr. Huxtable back to the north of England. And now, Dr. Huxtable, when you have consumed that milk— 
You will kindly tell me what has happened, when it happened, how it happened, and finally what Dr. Thornycroft Huxtable of the Priory School near Mackleton has to do with the matter, and why he comes three days after an event, the state of your chin gives the date, to ask for my humble services. Our visitor had consumed his milk and biscuits. The light had come back to his eyes and the color to his cheeks, as he set himself with great vigor and lucidity to explain the situation. I must inform you, gentlemen, that the Priory is a preparatory school, of which I am the founder and principal. Huxtable's sidelights on Horace may possibly recall my name to your memories. The Priory is, without exception, the best and most select preparatory school in England. Lord Leverstoke, the Earl of Blackwater, Sir Cathcart Solmes, they have all entrusted their sons to me. But I felt that my school had reached its zenith when, weeks ago, the Duke of Holderness sent Mr. James Wilder, his secretary, with intimation that young Lord Saltire, ten years old, his only son and heir, was about to be committed to my charge. Little did I think that this would be the prelude to the most crushing misfortune of my life. On May 1st the boy arrived, that being the beginning of the summer term. He was a charming youth, and he soon fell into our ways. I may tell you, I trust that I am not indiscreet, but half-confidences are absurd in such a case, that he was not entirely happy at home. It is an open secret that the Duke's married life had not been a peaceful one, and the matter had ended in a separation by mutual consent, the Duchess taking up her residence in the south of France. This had occurred very shortly before, and the boy's sympathies are known to have been strongly with his mother. He moped after her departure from Holderness Hall, and it was for this reason that the Duke desired to send him to my establishment. In a fortnight the boy was quite at home with us, and was apparently absolutely happy. He was last seen on the night of May 13th, that is, the night of last Monday. His room was on the second floor, and was approached through another larger room, in which two boys were sleeping. These boys saw and heard nothing, so that it is quite certain that young Saltire did not pass out that way. His window was open, and there is a stout ivy plant leading to the ground. We could trace no footmarks below, but it is sure that this is the only possible exit. His absence was discovered at seven o'clock on Tuesday morning. His bed had been slept in. He had dressed himself fully before going off, in his usual school suit of black Eton jacket and dark gray trousers. There were no signs that anyone had entered the room, and it is quite certain that anything in the nature of cries or one struggle would have been heard, since Conter, the older boy in the inner room, is a very light sleeper. When Lord Saltire's disappearance was discovered, I at once called a roll of the whole establishment, boys, masters, and servants. It was then that we ascertained that Lord Saltire had not been alone in his flight. Heidegger, the German master, was missing. His room was on the second floor, at the further end of the building, facing the same way as Lord Saltire's. His bed had also been slept in, but he had apparently gone away partly dressed, since his shirt and socks were lying on the floor. He had undoubtedly let himself down by the ivy, for we could see the marks of his feet where he had landed on the lawn. His bicycle was kept in a small shed beside this lawn, and it also was gone. He had been with me for two years, and came with the best references, but he was a silent, morose man, not very popular either with masters or boys. No trace could be found of the fugitives, and now, on Thursday morning, we are as ignorant as we were on Tuesday. 
Inquiry was, of course, made at once at Holderness Hall. It is only a few miles away, and we imagine that, in some sudden attack of homesickness, he had gone back to his father, but nothing had been heard of him. The Duke is greatly agitated, and as to me, you have seen yourselves the state of nervous prostration to which the suspense and the responsibility have reduced me. Mr. Holmes, if ever you put forward your full powers, I implore you to do so now, for never in your life could you have a case which is more worthy of them. Sherlock Holmes had listened with the utmost intentness to the statement of the unhappy schoolmaster. His drawn brows and the deep furrow between them showed that he needed no exhortation to concentrate all his attention upon a problem which, apart from the tremendous interest involved, must appeal so directly to his love of the complex and the unusual. He now drew out his notebook and jotted down one or two memoranda. "'You have been very remiss in not coming to me sooner,' he said severely. "'You start me on my investigation with a very serious handicap.' It is inconceivable, for example, that this ivy and this lawn would have yielded nothing to an expert observer. I am not to blame Mr. Holmes. His grace was extremely desirous to avoid all public scandal. He was afraid of his family unhappiness being dragged before the world. He has a deep horror of anything of the kind. But there has been some official investigation? Yes, sir, and it has proved most disappointing. An apparent clue was at once obtained since a boy and a young man were reported to have been seen leaving a neighboring station by an early train. Only last night we had news that the couple had been hunted down in Liverpool, and they proved to have no connection whatever with the matter in hand. Then it was that in my despair and disappointment, after a sleepless night, I came straight to you by the early train. I suppose the local investigation was relaxed while this false clue was being followed up. It was entirely dropped so that three days have been wasted. The affair has been most deplorably handled. I feel it and admit it. And yet the problem should be capable of ultimate solution. I shall be very happy to look into it. Have you been able to trace any connection between the missing boy and this German master? None at all. Was he in the master's class? No, he never exchanged a word with him, so far as I know. That certainly is very singular. Had the boy a bicycle? No. Was there any other bicycle missing? No. Is that certain? Quite. Well, now, you do not mean to seriously suggest that this German rode off upon a bicycle in the dead of night, bearing the boy in his arms? Certainly not. Then what is the theory in your mind? The bicycle may have been a blind. It may have been hidden somewhere, and the pair gone off on foot. Quite so, but it seems rather an absurd blind, does it not? Were there other bicycles in the shed? Several. Would he have not hidden a couple had he desired to give the idea that they had gone off upon them? I suppose he would. Of course he would. The blind theory won't do. But the incident is an admirable starting point for an investigation. After all, a bicycle is not an easy thing to conceal or to destroy. One other question. Did anyone call to see the boy on the day before he disappeared? No. Did he get any letters? Yes, one letter. From whom? From his father. Do you open the boy's letters? No. How do you know it was from the father? The coat of arms was on the envelope, and it was addressed in the Duke's peculiar stiff hand. Besides, the Duke remembers having written. When he had a letter before that? Not for several days. Had he ever one from France? No, never. 
You see the point of my questions, of course. Either the boy was carried off by force, or he went of his own free will. In the latter case, you would expect that some prompting from outside would be needed to make so young a lad do such a thing. If he has had no visitors, that prompting must have come in letters. Hence, I try to find out who were his correspondents. I fear I cannot help you much. His only correspondent, so far as I know, was his own father, who wrote to him on the very day of his disappearance. Were the relations between father and son very friendly? His grace is never very friendly with anyone. He is completely immersed in large public questions, and is rather inaccessible to all ordinary emotions. But he was always kind to the boy in his own way. But the sympathies of the latter were with the mother? Yes. Did he say so? No. The duke, then? Good heaven, no. Then how could you know? I have had some confidential talks with Mr. James Wilder, his grace's secretary. It was he who gave me the information about Lord Saltire's feelings. I see. By the way, that last letter of the duke's, was it found in the boy's room after he was gone? No, he had taken it with him. I think, Mr. Holmes, it is time that we were leaving for Euston. I will order a four-wheeler. In a quarter of an hour we shall be at your service. If you are telegraphing home, Mr. Uxtable, it would be well to allow the people in your neighborhood to imagine that the inquiry is still going on in Liverpool, or wherever else that red herring led your pack. In the meantime I will do a little quiet work at your own doors, and perhaps the scent is not so cold but the two old hounds like Watson and myself may get a sniff of it. That evening found us in the cold, bracing atmosphere of the Peak Country, in which Dr. Huxtable's famous school is situated. It was already dark when we reached it. A card was lying on the hall table, and the butler whispered something to his master, who turned to us with agitation in every heavy feature. "'The Duke is here,' said he. "'The Duke and Mr. Wilder are in the study. Come, gentlemen, and I will introduce you.' I was, of course, familiar with the pictures of the famous statesman, but the man himself was very different from his representation. He was a tall and stately person, scrupulously dressed, with a drawn, thin face, and a nose which was grotesquely curved and long. His complexion was of a deadly pallor, which was more startling by contrast with a long, dwindling beard of vivid red, which flowed down over his white waistcoat and his watch-chain gleaming through its fringe. Such was the stately presence who looked stonily at us from the center of Dr. Huxtable's hearth-rug. Beside him stood a very young man, whom I understood to be Wilder, the private secretary. He was small, nervous, alert, with intelligent light blue eyes and mobile features. It was he who at once, in an incisive and positive tone, opened the conversation. I called this morning, Dr. Huxtable, too late to prevent you from starting for London. I learned that your object was to invite Mr. Sherlock Holmes to undertake the conduct of this case. His Grace is surprised, Dr. Huxtable, that you should have taken such a step without consulting him. When I learned that the police had failed, His Grace is by no means convinced that the police have failed. But surely, Mr. Wilder, you are well aware, Dr. Huxtable, that His Grace is particularly anxious to avoid all public scandal. He prefers to take as few people as possible into his confidence. The matter can be easily remedied, said the browbeaten doctor. Mr. Sherlock Holmes can return to London by the morning train. Hardly that, doctor, hardly that, said Holmes, in his blandest voice. This northern air is invigorating and pleasant, so I propose to spend a few days upon your moors, and to occupy my mind as best I may. 
Whether I have the shelter of your roof or of the village inn is, of course, for you to decide. I could see that the unfortunate doctor was in the last stage of indecision, from which he was rescued by the deep, sonorous voice of the red-bearded duke, which boomed out like a dinner gong. I agree with Mr. Wilder, Dr. Huxtable, that you would have done wisely to consult me. But since Mr. Holmes has already been taken into your confidence, it would indeed be absurd that we should not avail ourselves of his services. Far from going to the inn, Mr. Holmes, I should be pleased if you would come and stay with me at Holderness Hall. I thank your grace. For the purposes of my investigation, I think it would be wiser for me to remain at the scene of the mystery. Just as you like, Mr. Holmes. Any information which Mr. Wilder I can give you is, of course, at your disposal. It will probably be necessary for me to see you at the hall, said Holmes. I would only ask you now, sir, whether you have formed any explanation in your own mind as to the mysterious disappearance of your son. No, sir, I have not. Excuse me if I allude to that which is painful to you, but I have no alternative. Do you think that the Duchess had anything to do with the matter? The great minister showed perceptible hesitation. I do not think so, he said at last. The other most obvious explanation is that the child has been kidnapped for the purpose of levying ransom. You have not had any demand of the sort? No, sir. One more question, Your Grace. I understood that you wrote to your son upon the day when this incident occurred. No, I wrote upon the day before. Exactly. But he received it on that day? Yes. Was there anything in your letter which might have unbalanced him or induced him to take such a step? No, sir, certainly not. Did you post that letter yourself? The nobleman's reply was interrupted by his secretary, who broke in with some heat. His grace is not in the habit of posting letters himself, said he. This letter was laid with others upon the study table, and I myself put them in the post-bag. You are sure this one was among them? Yes, I observed it. How many letters did your grace write that day? Twenty or thirty. I have a large correspondence. But surely this is somewhat irrelevant. Not entirely, said Holmes. For my own part, the Duke continued, I have advised the police to turn their attention to the south of France. I have already said I do not believe that the Duchess would encourage so monstrous an action, but the lad had the most wrong-headed opinions, and it is possible that he may have fled to her, aided and abetted by this German. I think, Dr. Huxtable, that we will now return to the hall. I could see that there were other questions which Holmes would have wished to put, but the nobleman's abrupt manner showed that the interview was at an end. It was evident that to his intensely aristocratic nature this discussion of his intimate family affairs with the stranger was most abhorrent, and that he feared lest every fresh question would throw a fiercer light into the discreetly shadowed corners of his ducal history. When the nobleman and his secretary had left, my friend flung himself at once with characteristic eagerness into the investigation. The boy's chamber was carefully examined, and yielded nothing save the absolute conviction that it was only through the window that he could have escaped. The German master's room and effects gave no further clue. In his case a trailer of ivy had given way under his weight, and we saw by the light of a lantern the mark on the lawn where his heels had come down. That one dent in the short, green grass was the only material witness left of this inexplicable nocturnal flight. Sherlock Holmes left the house alone, and only returned after eleven. He had obtained a large ordnance map of the neighborhood, and this he brought into my room, where he laid it out on the bed, and having balanced the lamp in the middle of it, he began to smoke over it, 
and occasionally to point out objects of interest with the reeking amber of his pipe. "'This case grows upon me, Watson,' said he. "'There are decidedly some points of interest in connection with it. "'In this early stage, I want you to realize those geographical features "'which may have a good deal to do with our investigation. "'Look at this map. This dark square is the Priory School. "'I'll put a pin in it. "'Now this line is the main road. "'You see that it runs east and west past the school, "'and you see also that there is no side road for a mile either way.' If these two folk passed away by road, it was this road. Exactly. By a singular and happy chance, we were able to some extent to check what passed along this road during the night in question. At this point, where my pipe is now resting, a country constable was on duty from twelve to six. It is, as you perceive, the first crossroad on the east side. This man declares that he was not absent from his post for an instant and he is positive that neither boy nor men could have gone that way unseen. I have spoken with this policeman tonight, and he appears to me to be a perfectly reliable person. That blocks this end. We now have to deal with the other. There is an inn here, the Red Bull, the landlady of which was ill. She had sent to Mackleton for a doctor, but he did not arrive until morning, being absent at another case. The people at the inn were alert all night, awaiting his coming, and one or the other of them seems to have continually had an eye upon the road. They declare that no one passed. If their evidence is good, then we are fortunate enough to be able to block the west, and also to be able to say that the fugitives did not use the road at all. But the bicycle, I objected. Quite so. We will come to the bicycle presently. To continue our reasoning, if these people did not go by the road, they must have traversed the country to the north of the house or to the south of the house. That is certain. Let us weigh the one against the other. On the south of the house is, as you perceive, a large district of arable land, cut up into small fields, with stone walls between them. There I admit that a bicycle is impossible. We can dismiss the idea. We turn now to the country on the north. Here there lies a grove of trees, marked as the ragged shaw, and on the further side stretches a great rolling moor, lower gill moor, extending for ten miles and sloping gradually upward. Here, at one side of this wilderness, is Holderness Hall, ten miles by road, but only six across the moor. It is a peculiarly desolate plain. A few more farmers have small holdings, where they rear sheep and cattle. Except these, the plover and the curlew are the only inhabitants until you come to the Chesterfield High Road. There is a church there, you see, a few cottages, and an inn. Beyond that the hills become precipitous. Surely it is here, to the north, that our quest must lie. But the bicycle, I persisted. Well, well, said Holmes, impatiently. A good cyclist does not need a high road. The moor is intersected with paths, and the moon was at the full. Hello, what's this? There was an agitated knock at the door, and an instant afterwards Dr. Huxtable was in the room. In his hand he held a blue cricket cap with a white chevron on the peak. "'At last we have a clue,' he cried. "'Thank heaven! At last we are on the dear boy's track. "'It is his cap. "'Where was it found?' "'In the van of the gypsies who camped on the moor. "'They left on Tuesday. "'Today the police traced them down and examined their caravan. "'This was found. "'How do they account for it?' "'They shuffled and lied, "'so that they found it on the moor on Tuesday morning. "'They know where he is, the rascals.' Thank goodness they are all safe under lock and key. 
Either the fear of the law or the duke's purse will certainly get out of them all that they know. So far so good, said Holmes, when the doctor had at last left the room. It at least bears out the theory that it is on the side of the lower Gilmore that we must hope for results. The police have really done nothing locally, save the arrest of these gypsies. Look here, Watson. There's a watercourse across the moor. You see it marked here on the map. In some parts it widens into a morass. This is particularly so in the region between Holderness Hall and the school. It is vain to look elsewhere for tracks in this dry weather, but at that point there is certainly a chance of some record being left. I will call you early tomorrow morning, and you and I will try if we can throw some little light upon the mystery. The day was just breaking when I woke to find the long, thin form of Holmes by my bedside. He was fully dressed and had apparently already been out. I have done the lawn in the bicycle shed, said he. I have also had a ramble through the ragged shaw. Now, Watson, there is cocoa ready in the next room. I must beg you to hurry, for we have a great day before us. His eyes shone, and his cheek was flushed with the exhilaration of the master workman who sees his work lie ready before him. A very different Holmes, this active alert man, from the introspective and pallid dreamer of Baker Street. I felt, as I looked upon that supple figure, alive with nervous energy, that it was indeed a strenuous day that awaited us. And yet it opened in the blackest disappointment. With high hopes we struck across the peaty russet moor, intersected with a thousand sheep paths, until we came to the broad light green belt which marked the morass between us and Holderness. Certainly if the lad had gone homeward he must have passed this, and he could not pass it without leaving his traces. But no sign of him or the German could be seen. With a darkening face my friend strode along the margin, eagerly observant of every muddy stain upon the mossy surface. Sheep marks there were in profusion, and at one place some miles down cows had left their tracks. Nothing more. Check number one, said Holmes, looking gloomily over the rolling expanse of the moor. There's another morass down yonder, and a narrow neck between. Hello, hello, hello. What have we here? We'd come on a small black ribbon of pathway. In the middle of it, clearly marked on the sodden soil, was the track of a bicycle. Hurrah! I cried. We have it. But Holmes was shaking his head, and his face was puzzled and expectant rather than joyous. A bicycle, certainly, but not the bicycle, said he. I am familiar with forty-two different impressions left by tires. This, as you perceive, is a Dunlop, with a patch upon the outer cover. Heidegger's tires were palmers, leaving longitudinal stripes. Aveling, the mathematical master, was sure upon the point. Therefore, it is not Heidegger's track. The boys, then? Possibly, if we could prove a bicycle to have been in his possession. But this we have utterly failed to do. This track, as you perceive, was made by a rider who was going from the direction of the school. Or towards it? No, no, my dear Watson. The more deeply sunk impression is, of course, the hind wheel, upon which the weight rests. You perceive several places where it has passed across and obliterated the more shallow mark of the front one. It was undoubtedly heading away from the school. It may or may not be connected with our inquiry, but we will follow it backwards before we go any farther. We did so, and at the end of a hundred yards lost the tracks as we emerged from the boggy portion of the moor. Following the path backwards, we picked out another spot, where a spring trickled across it. Here, once again, was the mark of the bicycle, though nearly obliterated by the hooves of cows. 
After that there was no sign, but the path ran right on into Ragged Shaw, the wood which backed on to the school. From this wood the cycle must have emerged. Holmes sat down on a boulder and rested his chin in his hands. I had smoked two cigarettes before he moved. Well, well, said he at last. It is, of course, possible that a cunning man might change the tires of his bicycle in order to leave unfamiliar tracks. A criminal who is capable of such a thought is a man whom I should be proud to do business with. We will leave this question undecided and hark back to our morass again, for we have left a good deal unexplored. We continued our systematic survey of the edge of the sodden portion of the moor, and soon our perseverance was gloriously rewarded. Right across the lower part of the bog lay a miry path. Holmes gave a cry of delight as he approached it. An impression like a fine bundle of telegraph wires ran down the center of it. It was the Palmer tires. "'Here is Eric Heidegger, sure enough,' cried Holmes exultantly. "'My reasoning seems to have been pretty sound, Watson. I congratulate you.' but we have a long way still to go. Kindly walk clear of the path. Now let us follow the trail. I fear it will not lead very far. We found, however, as we advanced, that this portion of the moor is intersected with soft patches, and though we frequently lost sight of the track, we always succeeded in picking it up once more. Do you observe, said Holmes, that the rider is now undoubtedly forcing the pace? There can be no doubt of it. Look at this impression where you get both tires clear. The one is as deep as the other. That can only mean that the rider is throwing his weight onto the handlebar, as a man does when he is sprinting. By Jove, he has had a fall. There was a broad, irregular smudge covering some yards of the track. Then there were a few footmarks, and the tires reappeared once more. A side slip, I suggested. Holmes held up a crumpled branch of flowering gorse. To my horror, I perceived that the yellow blossoms were all dabbled with crimson. On the path, too, and among the heather, were dark stains of clotted blood. Bad, said Holmes, bad. Stand clear, Watson, not an unnecessary footstep. What do I read here? He fell wounded. He stood up. He remounted. He proceeded. But there was no other track. Cattle on the side path. He was surely not gored by a bull. Impossible. But I see no traces of anyone else. We must push on, Watson. Surely, with stains as well as the track to guide us, he cannot escape us now. Our search was not a very long one. The tracks of the tire began to curve fantastically upon the wet and shining path. Suddenly, as I looked ahead, the gleam of metal caught my eye from amid the thick gorse bushes. Out of them we dragged a bicycle, palmer tired, one pedal bent, and the whole front of it horribly smeared and slobbered with blood. On the other side of the bushes a shoe was projecting. We ran round, and there lay the unfortunate rider. He was a tall man, full-bearded, with spectacles, one glass of which had been knocked out. The cause of his death was a frightful blow upon the head, which had crushed in part of his skull. That he could have gone on after receiving such an injury said much for the vitality and courage of the man. He wore shoes but no socks, and his open coat disclosed a nightshirt beneath it. It was undoubtedly the German master. Holmes turned the body over reverently, and examined it with great attention. He then sat in deep thought for a time, and I could see by his ruffled brow that this grim discovery had not, in his opinion, advanced us much in our inquiry. "'It is a little difficult to know what to do, Watson,' said he at last. "'My own inclinations are to push this inquiry on, for we have already lost so much time that we cannot afford to waste another hour.' 
On the other hand, we are bound to inform the police of the discovery, and to see that this poor fellow's body is looked after. I could take a note back. But I need your company and assistance. Wait a bit. There's a fellow cutting peat up yonder. Bring him over here, and he will guide the police. I brought the peasant across, and Holmes dispatched the frightened man with a note to Dr. Huxtable. End of The Adventure of the Priory School, Part 1 Part 2 of The Adventures of the Priory School from the Return of Sherlock Holmes Now, Watson, said he, we have picked up two clues this morning. One is the bicycle with the palmer tire, and we see what that has led to. The other is the bicycle with the patched Dunlop. Before we start to investigate that, let us try to realize what we do know so as to make the most of it, and to separate the essential from the accidental. First of all, I wish to impress upon you that the boy certainly left of his own free will. He got down from his window and he went off, either alone or with someone. That is sure. I assented. Well, now, let us turn to this unfortunate German master. The boy was fully dressed when he fled. Therefore, he foresaw what he would do. But the German went without his socks. He certainly acted on very short notice. Undoubtedly. Why did he go? Because from his bedroom window he saw the flight of the boy, because he wished to overtake him and bring him back. He seized his bicycle, pursued the lad, and in pursuing him met his death. So it would seem. Now I come to the critical part of my argument. The natural action of a man in pursuing a little boy would be to run after him. He would know that he could overtake him. But the German does not do so. He turns to his bicycle. I am told that he was an excellent cyclist. He would not do this if he did not see that the boy had some swift means of escape. The other bicycle. Let us continue our reconstruction. He meets his death five miles from the school, not by a bullet, mark you, which even a lad might conceivably discharge, but by a savage blow dealt by a vigorous arm. The lad, then, had a companion in his flight, and the flight was a swift one since it took five miles before an expert cyclist could overtake them. Yet we survey the ground round the scene of the tragedy. What do we find? A few cattle tracks, nothing more. I took a wide sweep round, and there is no path within fifty yards. Another cyclist could have had nothing to do with the actual murder, nor were there any human footmarks. Holmes, I cried, this is impossible. Admirable, he said, a most illuminating remark. It is impossible as I state it, and therefore I must in some respect have stated it wrong. Yet you saw for yourself. Can you suggest any fallacy? He could not have fractured his skull in a fall? In a morass, Watson? I am at my wit's end. Tut-tut, we have solved some worse problems. At least we have plenty of material if we can only use it. Come then, and having exhausted the palmer, let us see what the Dunlop with the patch cover has to offer us. We picked up the track and followed it onward for some distance but soon the moor rose into a long, heather-tufted curve, and we left the watercourse behind us. No further help from tracks could be hoped for. At the spot where we saw the last of the Dunlot tire, it might equally have led to Holderness Hall, the stately towers of which rose some miles to our left, or to a low, grey village which lay in front of us and marked the position of the Chesterfield High Road. As we approached the forbidding and squalid inn, with a sign of a gamecock above the door, Holmes gave a sudden groan, and clutched me by the shoulder to save himself from falling. 
he had had one of those violent strains of the ankle which leave a man helpless. With difficulty he limped to the door, where a squat, dark, elderly man was smoking a black clay pipe. "'How are you, Mr. Reuben Hayes?' said Holmes. "'Who are you, and how do you get my name so pat?' the countryman answered, with a suspicious flash of a pair of cunning eyes. "'Well, it's printed on the board above your head. It's easy to see a man who is master of his own house.' I suppose you haven't such a thing as a carriage in your stables. No, I have not. I can hardly put my foot to the ground. Don't put it to the ground. But I can't walk. Well, then, hop. Mr. Reuben Hayes' manner was far from gracious, but Holmes took it with admirable good humor. Look here, my man, said he. This is really rather an awkward fix for me. I don't mind how I get on. Neither do I, said the morose landlord. The matter is very important. I would offer you a sovereign for the use of a bicycle. The landlord pricked up his ears. Where do you want to go? To Holderness Hall. Pals with the Duke, I suppose, said the landlord, surveying our mud-stained garments with ironical eyes. Holmes laughed good-naturedly. He'll be glad to see us, anyhow. Why? Because we bring him news of his lost son. The landlord gave a very visible start. "'What? You're on his track?' "'He has been heard of in Liverpool. "'They expect to get him every hour.' "'Again a swift change passed over the heavy, unshaven face. "'His manner was suddenly genial. "'I've less reason to wish the Duke well than most men,' said he, "'for I was head coachman once, and cruel bad he treated me. "'It was him that sacked me without a character "'on the word of a lying corn-chandler. "'But I'm glad to hear that the young lord was heard of in Liverpool.' and I'll help you to take the news to the hall. Thank you, said Holmes. We'll have some food first. Then you can bring round the bicycle. I haven't got a bicycle. Holmes held up a sovereign. I tell you, man, that I haven't got one. I'll let you have two horses as far as the hall. Well, well, said Holmes. We'll talk about it when we've had something to eat. When we were left alone in the stone-flagged kitchen, it was astonishing how rapidly that sprained ankle recovered. It was nearly nightfall, and we had eaten nothing since early morning, so that we spent some time over our meal. Holmes was lost in thought, and once or twice he walked over to the window and stared earnestly out. It opened on to a squalid courtyard. In the far corner was a smithy, where a grimy lad was at work. On the other side were the stables. Holmes had sat down again after one of these excursions, when he suddenly sprang out of his chair with a loud exclamation. "'By heaven, Watson, I believe I have got it,' he cried. "'Yes, yes, it must be so. "'Watson, do you remember seeing any cow-tracks to-day?' "'Yes, several. "'Where?' "'Well, everywhere. "'They were at the morass, and again on the path, "'and again near where poor Heidegger met his death.' "'Exactly. "'Well, now, Watson, how many cows did you see on the moor?' "'I don't remember seeing any.' "'Strange, Watson, that we should see tracks all along our line, "'but never a cow on the whole moor. "'Very strange, Watson, eh? "'Yes, it is strange. "'Now, Watson, make an effort. Throw your mind back. "'Can you see those tracks upon the path?' "'Yes, I can. "'Can you recall that the tracks were sometimes like this, Watson?' "'He arranged a number of bread-crumbs in this fashion. "'Dot, dot, 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 dot. "'And sometimes like this.' dot 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 and occasionally like this dot 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 can you remember that no i cannot 
but I can. I could swear to it. However, we will go back at our leisure and verify it. What a blind beetle I have been not to draw my conclusion. And what is your conclusion? Only that it is a very remarkable cow which walks, canters, and gallops. By George! Watson, it was no brain of a country publican that thought out such a blind as that. The coast seems to be clear, save for that lad in the smithy. Let us slip out and see what we can see. There were two rough-haired, unkept horses in the tumble-down stable. Holmes raised the hind leg of one of them and laughed aloud. Old shoes, but newly shod. Old shoes, but new nails. This case deserves to be a classic. Let us go across to the smithy. The lad continued his work without regarding us. I saw Holmes' eyes darting to right and left among the litter of iron and wood which was scattered about the floor. Suddenly, however, we heard a step behind us, and there was the landlord, his heavy eyebrows drawn over savage eyes, his swarthy features convulsed with passion. He held a short, metal-headed stick in his hand, and he advanced in so menacing a fashion that I was right glad to feel the revolver in my pocket. "'You infernal spies!' the man cried. "'What are you doing there?' "'Why, Mr. Reuben Hayes,' said Holmes coolly, "'one might think you were afraid of our finding something out.' The man mastered himself with a violent effort, and his grim mouth loosened into a false laugh, which was more menacing than his frown. "'You're welcome to all you can find out in my smithy,' said he. "'But look here, mister. I don't care for folk poking about my place without my leave.' "'so the sooner you pay your score and get out of this, the better I shall be pleased.' "'All right, Mr. Hayes, no harm meant,' said Holmes. "'We've been having a look at your horses, but I think I'll walk, after all. "'It's not far, I believe. "'Not more than two miles to the hall gates. "'That's the road to the left.' "'He watched us with sullen eyes until we had left his premises. "'We did not go very far along the road, "'for Holmes stopped the instant that the curve hit us from the landlord's view.' "'We were warm, as the children say, at that inn,' said he. "'I seem to grow colder every step that I take away from it. "'No, no, I can't possibly leave it.' "'I am convinced,' said I, "'that this Reuben Hayes knows all about it. "'A more self-evident villain I never saw.' "'Oh, he impressed you that way, did he? "'There are the horses. There is the smithy. "'Yes, it is an interesting place, this fighting cock. "'I think we shall have another look at it in an unobtrusive way.' A long, sloping hillside, dotted with grey limestone boulders, stretched behind us. We had turned off the road, and were making our way up the hill, when looking in the direction of Holderness Hall, I saw a cyclist coming swiftly along. "'Get down, Watson!' cried Holmes, with a heavy hand upon my shoulder. We had hardly sunk from view when the man flew past us on the road. Amid a rolling cloud of dust, I caught a glimpse of a pale, agitated face, a face with horror in every lineament the mouth open, the eyes staring wildly in front. It was like some strange caricature of the dapper James Wilder whom we had seen the night before. "'The Duke's secretary,' cried Holmes. "'Come, Watson, let us see what he does.' We scrambled from rock to rock, until in a few moments we had made our way to a point from which we could see the front door of the inn. Wilder's bicycle was leaning against the wall beside it. No one was moving about the house, nor could we catch a glimpse of any faces in the windows. Slowly the twilight crept down as the sun sank behind the high towers of Holderness Hall. Then, in the gloom, we saw the two side lamps of a trap light up in the stable-yard of the inn, and shortly afterwards heard the rattle of hoofs, 
as it wheeled out into the road and tore off at a furious pace in the direction of Chesterfield. "'What do you make of that, Watson?' Holmes whispered. "'It looks like a flight. A single man in a dog-cart, so far as I could see. Well, it certainly was not Mr. James Wilder, for there he is at the door.' A red square of light had sprung out of the darkness. In the middle of it was the black figure of the secretary, his head advanced, peering out into the night. It was evident that he was expecting someone. Then at last there were steps in the road, a second figure was visible for an instant against the light, the door shut, and all was black once more. Five minutes later a lamp was lit in a room upon the first floor. "'It seems to be a curious class of custom that is done by the fighting cock,' said Holmes. "'The bar is on the other side.' "'Quite so. These are what one might call the private guests.' Now what in the world is Mr. James Wilder doing in that den at this hour of night? And who is the companion who comes to meet him there? Come, Watson, we must really take a risk and try to investigate this a little more closely. Together we stole down to the road and crept across to the door of the inn. The bicycle still leaned against the wall. Holmes struck a match and held it to the back wheel, and I heard him chuckle as the light fell upon a patched Dunlop tire. Up above us was the lighted window. I must have a peep through that, Watson. If you bend your back and support yourself upon the wall, I think that I can manage. An instant later his feet were on my shoulders, but he was hardly up before he was down again. Come, my friend, said he. Our day's work has been quite long enough. I think that we have gathered all that we can. It's a long walk to the school, and the sooner we get started the better. He hardly opened his lips during that weary trudge across the moor, nor would he enter the school when he reached it, but went on to Mackleton Station, whence he could send some telegrams. Late at night I heard him consoling Dr. Huxtable, prostrated by the tragedy of his master's death, and later still he entered my room as alert and vigorous as he had been when he started in the morning. "'All goes well, my friend,' said he. "'I promise that before to-morrow evening we shall have reached the solution of the mystery.' At eleven o'clock the next morning my friend and I were walking up the famous Yew Avenue of Holderness Hall. We were ushered through the magnificent Elizabethan doorway and into His Grace's study. There we found Mr. James Wilder, demure and courtly, but with some trace of that wild terror of the night before still lurking in his furtive eyes and in his twitching features. "'You have come to see His Grace? I am sorry, but the fact is that the Duke is far from well. He has been very much upset by the tragic news.' We received a telegram from Dr. Huxtable yesterday afternoon, which told us of your discovery. I must see the Duke, Mr. Wilder. But he is in his room. Then I must go to his room. I believe he is in his bed. I will see him there. Holmes' cold and inexorable manner showed the secretary that it was useless to argue with him. Very good, Mr. Holmes. I will tell him that you are here. After an hour's delay, the great nobleman appeared. His face was more cadaverous than ever, his shoulders had rounded, and he seemed to me an altogether older man than he had been the morning before. He greeted us with a stately courtesy, and seated himself at his desk, his red beard streaming down on the table. "'Well, Mr. Holmes,' said he. But my friend's eyes were fixed upon the secretary, who stood by his master's chair. "'I think, Your Grace, that I could speak more freely in Mr. Wilder's absence.' The man turned a shade paler, and cast a malignant glance at Holmes. "'If your grace wishes—' "'Yes, yes, you had better go. Now, Mr. Holmes, what have you to say?' 
My friend waited until the door had closed behind the retreating secretary. "'The fact is, Your Grace,' said he, "'that my colleague, Dr. Watson, and myself had an assurance from Dr. Huxtable that a reward had been offered in this case. I should like to have this confirmed from your own lips.' "'Certainly, Mr. Holmes.' "'It amounted, if I am correctly informed, to five thousand pounds to anyone who will tell you where your son is.' "'Exactly.' "'And another thousand to the man who will name the person or persons who keep him in custody.' Exactly. Under the latter heading is included, no doubt, not only those who may have taken him away, but also those who conspired to keep him in his present position. Yes, yes, cried the Duke impatiently. If you do your work well, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you will have no reason to complain of niggardly treatment. My friend rubbed his thin hands together with an appearance of avidity, which was a surprise to me, who knew his frugal taste. I fancy that I see your grace's cheque-book upon the table, said he. I should be glad if you would make me out a cheque for six thousand pounds. It would be as well, perhaps, for you to cross it. The Capital and Counties Bank, Oxford Street Branch, are my agents. His grace sat very stern and upright in his chair, and looked stonily at my friend. Is this a joke, Mr. Holmes? It is hardly a subject for pleasantry. Not at all, your grace. I was never more in earnest in my life. What do you mean, then? I mean that I have earned the reward. I know where your son is, and I know some, at least, of those who are holding him. The Duke's beard had turned more aggressively red than ever against his ghastly white face. Where is he? he gasped. He is, or was last night, at the Fighting Cock Inn, about two miles from your park gate. The Duke fell back in his chair. And whom do you accuse? Sherlock Holmes' answer was an astounding one. He stepped swiftly forward and touched the Duke upon the shoulder. I accuse you, said he, and now, your grace, I'll trouble you for that check. Never shall I forget the duke's appearance as he sprang up and clawed with his hands like one who was sinking into an abyss. Then, with an extraordinary effort of aristocratic self-command, he sat down and sank his face in his hands. It was some minutes before he spoke. How much do you know? he asked at last, without raising his head. I saw you together last night. Does anyone else beside your friend know? I have spoken to no one. The Duke took a pen in his quivering fingers and opened his cheque-book. I shall be as good as my word, Mr. Holmes. I am about to write you a cheque, however unwelcome the information which you have gained may be to me. When the offer was first made, I little thought the turn which events might take. But you and your friend are men of discretion, Mr. Holmes? I hardly understand, Your Grace. I must put it plainly, Mr. Holmes. If only you two know of this incident, there is no reason why it should go any farther. I think twelve thousand pounds is the sum that I owe you, is it not? But Holmes smiled and shook his head. I fear, Your Grace, that matters can hardly be arranged so easily. There is the death of this schoolmaster to be accounted for. But James knew nothing of that. You cannot hold him responsible for that. It was the work of this brutal ruffian whom he had the misfortune to employ. I must take the view, Your Grace, that when a man embarks upon a crime, he is morally guilty of any other crime which may spring from it. Morally, Mr. Holmes, no doubt you are right, but surely not in the eyes of the law. A man cannot be condemned for a murder at which he was not present, and which he loathes and abhors as much as you do. The instant that he heard of it he made a complete confession to me, so filled was he with horror and remorse. He lost not an hour in breaking entirely with the murderer. Oh, Mr. Holmes, you must save him. You must save him. I tell you that you must save him. The Duke had dropped the last attempt at self-command, 
and was pacing the room with a convulsed face and with clenched hands raving in the air. At last he mastered himself and sat down once more at his desk. "'I appreciate your conduct in coming here before you spoke to anyone else,' said he. "'At least we may take counsel how far we can minimize this hideous scandal.' "'Exactly,' said Holmes. "'I think, Your Grace, that this can only be done by absolute frankness between us. "'I am disposed to help Your Grace to the best of my ability, "'but in order to do so, I must understand to the last detail how the matter stands. "'I realize that your words applied to Mr. James Wilder, and that he is not the murderer.' "'No, the murderer has escaped.' Sherlock Holmes smiled demurely. "'Your Grace can hardly have heard of any small reputation which I possess, "'or you would not imagine that it is so easy to escape me. "'Mr. Reuben Hayes was arrested at Chesterfield, on my information, at eleven o'clock last night. "'I had a telegram from the head of the local police before I left the school this morning.' "'The Duke leaned back in his chair and stared with amazement at my friend.' "'You seem to have powers that are hardly human,' said he. "'So Reuben Hayes is taken. "'I am right glad to hear it, if it will not react upon the fate of James. "'Your secretary?' "'No, sir, my son.' "'It was Holmes' turn to look astonished. "'I confess that this is entirely new to me, Your Grace. "'I must beg you to be more explicit. "'I will conceal nothing from you. "'I agree with you that complete frankness, however painful it may be to me, is the best policy in this desperate situation to which James' folly and jealousy have reduced us. When I was a very young man, Mr. Holmes, I loved with such a love as comes only once in a lifetime. I offered the lady marriage, but she refused it on the grounds that such a match might mar my career. Had she lived, I would certainly never have married anyone else. She died, and left this one child, whom for her sake I have cherished and cared for. I could not acknowledge the paternity to the world, but I gave him the best of educations, and since he came to manhood I have kept him near my person. He surprised my secret, and has presumed ever since upon the claim which he has upon me, and upon his power of provoking a scandal which would be abhorrent to me. His presence had something to do with the unhappy issue of my marriage. Above all, he hated my young legitimate heir from the first with a persistent hatred. You may well ask me why, under these circumstances, I still kept James under my roof. I answered that it was because I could see his mother's face in his, and that for her dear sake there was no end to my long suffering. All her pretty ways, too, there was not one of them which he could not suggest and bring back to my memory. I could not send him away. But I feared so much lest he should do Arthur, that is Lord Saltire, a mischief, that I dispatched him for safety to Dr. Huxtable's school. James came into contact with this fellow Hayes, because the man was a tenant of mine, and James acted as agent. The fellow was a rascal from the beginning, but in some extraordinary way James became intimate with him. He had always a taste for low company. When James determined to kidnap Lord Saltire, it was of this man's service that he availed himself. You remember that I wrote to Arthur upon that last day. Well, James opened the letter and inserted a note, asking Arthur to meet him in a little wood called the Ragged Shaw, which is near this school. He used the Duchess's name, and in that way got the boy to come. That evening James bicycled over. I am telling you what he has himself confessed to me. And he told Arthur, whom he met in the wood, that his mother longed to see him, that she was awaiting him on the moor, and that if he would come back into the wood at midnight he would find a man with a horse, who would take him to her. Poor Arthur fell into the trap. He came to the appointment, and found this fellow Hayes with a lead pony. Arthur mounted, and they set off together. 
It appears, though this James only heard yesterday, that they were pursued, that Hayes struck the pursuer with his stick, and that the man died of his injuries. Hayes brought Arthur to his public-house, the fighting-cock, where he was confined in an upper room, under the care of Mrs. Hayes, who was a kindly woman, but entirely under the control of her brutal husband. Well, Mr. Holmes, that was the state of affairs when I first saw you two days ago. I had no more idea of the truth than you. You will ask me what was James' motive in doing such a deed. I answer that there was a great deal which was unreasoning and fanatical in the hatred which he bore my heir. In his view he should himself have been heir of all my estates, and he deeply resented those social laws which made it impossible. At the same time he had a definite motive also. He was eager that I should break the entail, and he was of the opinion that it lay in my power to do so. He intended to make a bargain with me, to restore Arthur if I would break the entail, and so make it possible for the estate to be left to him by will. He knew well that I should never willingly invoke the aid of the police against him. I say that he would have proposed such a bargain to me, but he did not actually do so, for events moved too quickly for him, and he had not time to put his plans into practice. What brought all this wicked scheme to wreck was your discovery of this man Heidegger's dead body. James was seized with horror at the news. It came to us yesterday, as we sat together in this study. Dr. Huxtable had sent a telegram. James was so overwhelmed with grief and agitation that my suspicions, which never been entirely absent, rose instantly to a certainty, and I taxed him with the deed. He made a complete voluntary confession. Then he implored me to keep his secret for three days longer, so as to give his wretched accomplice a chance at saving his guilty life. I yielded, as I have always yielded, to his prayers, and instantly James hurried off to the fighting cock to warn Hayes and give him the means of flight. I could not go there by daylight without provoking comment, but as soon as night fell I hurried off to see my dear Arthur. I found him safe and well, but horrified beyond expression by the dreadful deed he had witnessed. In deference to my promise, and much against my will, I consented to leave him there for three days, under the charge of Mrs. Hayes, since it was evident that it was impossible to inform the police where he was without telling them also who was the murderer, and I could not see how that murderer could be punished without ruin to my unfortunate James. You asked for frankness, Mr. Holmes, and I have taken you at your word, for I have now told you everything without an attempt at circumlocution or concealment. Do in your turn be as frank with me." "'I will,' said Holmes. "'In the first place, Your Grace, I am bound to tell you that you have placed yourself in a most serious position in the eyes of the law. You have condoned a felony, and you have aided the escape of a murderer, for I cannot doubt that any money which was taken by James Wilder to aid his accomplice in his flight came from Your Grace's purse.' The Duke bowed his assent. "'This is indeed a most serious matter. Even more culpable, in my opinion, Your Grace, is your attitude toward your younger son.' You leave him in this den for three days. Under solemn promises. What are promises to such people as these? You have no guarantee that he will not be spirited away again. To humor your guilty elder son, you have exposed your innocent younger son to imminent and unnecessary danger. It is a most unjustifiable action. The proud Lord of Holderness was not accustomed to being so rated in his own ducal hall. The blood flushed into his high forehead, but his conscience held him dumb. "'I will help you, but on one condition only. It is that you ring for the footman and let me give such orders as I like.' Without a word, the duke pressed the electric bell. A servant entered. "'You will be glad to hear,' said Holmes, "'that your young master is found. 
It is the Duke's desire that the carriage shall go at once to the fighting cock inn to bring Lord Saltire home. Now, said Holmes, when the rejoicing lackey had disappeared, having secured the future, we can afford to be more lenient with the past. I am not in an official position, and there is no reason, so long as the ends of justice are served, why I should disclose all that I know. As to Hayes, I say nothing. The gallows awaits him, and I would do nothing to save him from it. What he will divulge I cannot tell, but I have no doubt that your grace could make him understand that it is in his interest to be silent. From the police point of view, he will have kidnapped the boy for purpose of ransom. If they do not themselves find it out, I see no reason why I should prompt them to take a broader point of view. I would warn your grace, however, that the continued presence of Mr. James Wilder in your household can only lead to misfortune. I understand that, Mr. Holmes, and it is already settled that he shall leave me forever, and go to seek his fortune in Australia. In that case, your grace, since you have yourself stated that any unhappiness in your married life was caused by his presence, I would suggest that you make such amends as you can to the Duchess, and that you try to resume those relations which have been so unhappily interrupted. That also I have arranged, Mr. Holmes. I wrote to the Duchess this morning. In that case, said Holmes, rising, I think that my friend and I can congratulate ourselves upon several most happy results from our little visit to the North. There is one other small point upon which I desire some light. This fellow Hayes had shod his horses with shoes which counterfeited the tracks of cows. Was it from Mr. Wilder that he learned so extraordinary a device? The Duke stood in thought for a moment, with a look of intense surprise on his face. Then he opened a door that showed us into a large room furnished as a museum. He led the way to a glass case in a corner, and pointed to the inscription. These shoes, it ran, were dug up in the moat of Holderness Hall. They are for the use of horses, but they are shaped below with a cloven foot of iron, so as to throw pursuers off the track. They are supposed to have belonged to some of the marauding barons of Holderness in the Middle Ages. Holmes opened the case, and moistening his finger, he passed it along the shoe. A thin film of recent mud was left upon his skin. "'Thank you,' said he, as he replaced the glass. "'It is the second most interesting object that I have seen in the North.' "'And the first? Holmes folded up his check and placed it carefully in his notebook. "'I am a poor man,' said he, as he patted it affectionately, and thrust it into the depths of his inner pocket." End of the Adventure of the Priory School, Part 2 The Adventure of Black Peter, Part 1 From The Return of Sherlock Holmes I have never known my friend to be in better form, both mental and physical, than in the year 95. His increasing fame had brought with it an immense practice, and I should be guilty of an indiscretion if I were even to hint at the identity of some of the illustrious clients who crossed our humble threshold in Baker Street. Holmes, however, like all great artists, lived for his art's sake, and, save in the case of the Duke of Holderness, I have seldom known him claim any large reward for his inestimable services. So unworldly was he, or so capricious, that he frequently refused his help to the powerful and wealthy, where the problem made no appeal to his sympathies, while he would devote weeks of most intense application to the affairs of some humble client whose case presented those strange and dramatic qualities which appealed to his imagination and challenged his ingenuity. In this memorable year, 95, a curious and incongruous succession of cases had engaged his attention, ranging from his famous investigation of the sudden death of Cardinal Tosca, 
an inquiry which was carried out by him at the express desire of His Holiness the Pope, down to his arrest of Wilson, the notorious canary trainer, which removed a plague spot from the east end of London. Close on the heels of these two famous cases came the tragedy of Woodman's Lee, and the very obscure circumstances which surrounded the death of Captain Peter Carey. No record of the doings of Mr. Sherlock Holmes would be complete which did not include some account of this very unusual affair. During the first week of July, my friend had been absent so often and so long from our lodgings that I knew he had something on hand. The fact that several rough-looking men called during that time and inquired for Captain Basil made me understand that Holmes was working somewhere under one of the numerous disguises and names with which he concealed his own formidable identity. He had at least five small refuges in different parts of London in which he was able to change his personality. He said nothing of his business to me, and it was not my habit to force a confidence. The first positive sign which he gave me of the direction which his investigation was taking was an extraordinary one. He had gone out before breakfast, and I had sat down to mine when he strode into the room, his hat upon his head, and a huge barbed-headed spear tucked like an umbrella under his arm. "'Good gracious, Holmes!' I cried. "'You don't mean to say that you have been walking about London with that thing?' I drove to the butcher's and back. "'The butcher's?' and I return with an excellent appetite. There can be no question, my dear Watson, of the value of exercise before breakfast. But I am prepared to bet that you will not guess the form that my exercise has taken. I will not attempt it. He chuckled as he poured out the coffee. If you could have looked into Allardyce's back shop, you would have seen a dead pig swung from a hook in the ceiling, and a gentleman in his shirt-sleeves furiously stabbing at it with this weapon. I was that energetic person, and I have satisfied myself that by no exertion of my strength can I transfix the pig with a single blow. Perhaps you would care to try. Not for worlds, but why were you doing this? Because it seemed to me to have an indirect bearing upon the mystery of Woodman's Lee. Ah, Hopkins, I got your wire last night, and I have been expecting you. Come and join us. Our visitor was an exceedingly alert man, thirty years of age, dressed in a quiet tweed suit, but retaining the erect bearing of one who was accustomed to official uniform. I recognized him at once as Stanley Hopkins, a young police inspector, for whose future Holmes had high hopes, while he in turn professed the admiration and respect of a pupil for the scientific methods of the famous amateur. Hopkins's brow was clouded, and he sat down with an air of deep dejection. "'No, thank you, sir. I breakfasted before I came round. I spent the night in town, for I came up yesterday to report.' "'And what had you to report?' "'Failure, sir. Absolute failure.' "'You have made no progress?' "'None.' "'Dear me, I must have a look at the matter.' "'I wish to heavens that you would, Mr. Holmes. It's my first big chance, and I am at my wit's end. For goodness' sake, come down and lend me a hand.' "'Well, well, it just happens that I have already read all the available evidence, "'including the report of the inquest, with some care. "'By the way, what do you make of that tobacco-pouch found on the scene of the crime? "'Is there no clue there?' "'Hopkins looked surprised. "'It was the man's own pouch, sir. "'His initials were inside it. 
and it was of seal-skin, and he was an old sealer. But he had no pipe. No, sir, we could find no pipe. Indeed, he smoked very little, and yet he might have kept some tobacco for his friends. No doubt. I only mention it because, if I had been handling the case, I should have been inclined to make that the starting point of my investigation. However, my friend Dr. Watson knows nothing of this matter, and I should be none the worse for hearing the sequence of events once more. Just give us some short sketches of the essentials. Stanley Hopkins drew a slip of paper from his pocket. I have a few dates here which will give you the career of the dead man, Captain Peter Carey. He was born in forty-five, fifty years of age. He was a most daring and successful seal and whale fisher. In 1883 he commanded the steam sealer Sea Unicorn of Dundee. He had then had several successful voyages in succession, and in the following year, 1884, he retired. After that he traveled for some years, and finally he bought a small place called Woodman's Lee, near Forest Row in Sussex. There he has lived for six years, and there he died just a week ago today. There were some most singular points about the man. In ordinary life he was a strict Puritan, a silent, gloomy fellow. His household consisted of his wife, his daughter, aged twenty, and two female servants. These last were continually changing, for it was never a very cheery situation, and sometimes it became past all bearing. The man was an intermittent drunkard, and when he had the fit on him he was a perfect fiend. He has been known to drive his wife and daughter out of doors in the middle of the night and flog them through the park until the whole village outside the gates was aroused by their screams. He was summoned once for a savage assault upon the old vicar, who had called upon him to remonstrate with him upon his conduct. In short, Mr. Holmes, you would go far before you found a more dangerous man than Peter Carey, and I have heard that he bore the same character when he commanded his ship. He was known in the trade as Black Peter, and the name was given him not only on account of his swarthy features and the color of his huge beard, but for the humors which were the terror of all around him. I need not say that he was loathed and avoided by every one of his neighbors, and that I have not heard one single word of sorrow about his terrible end. You must have read in the account of the inquest about the man's cabin, Mr. Holmes, but perhaps your friend here has not heard of it. He had built himself a wooden outhouse, he always called it the cabin, a few hundred yards from his house, and it was here that he slept every night. It was a little single-roomed hut, sixteen feet by ten. He kept the key in his pocket, made his own bed, cleaned it himself, and allowed no other foot to cross the threshold. There are small windows on each side, which were covered by curtains and never opened. One of these windows was turned towards the high road, and when the light burned in it at night, the folk used to point it out to each other and wonder what Black Peter was doing in there. That's the window, Mr. Holmes, which gave us one of the few bits of positive evidence that came out at the inquest. You remember that a stonemason, named Slater, walking from Forest Row about one o'clock in the morning, two days before the murder, stopped as he passed the grounds and looked at the square of light still shining among the trees. He swears that the shadow of a man's head turned sideways was clearly visible on the blind, and that this shadow was certainly not that of Peter Carey, whom he knew well. It was that of a bearded man, but the beard was short and bristled forward in a way very different from that of the captain. 
So he says, but he had been two hours in the public-house, and it is some distance from the road to the window. Besides, this refers to the Monday, and the crime was done upon the Wednesday. On the Tuesday, Peter Carey was in one of his blackest moods, flushed with drink and as savage as a dangerous wild beast. He roamed about the house, and the women ran for it when they heard him coming. Late in the evening he went down to his own hut. About two o'clock the following morning, his daughter, who slept with her window open, heard a most fearful yell from that direction, but it was no unusual thing for him to bawl and shout when he was in drink, so no notice was taken. On rising at seven, one of the maids noticed that the door of the hut was open, but so great was the terror which the man caused that it was midday before any one would venture down to see what had become of him. Peeping into the open door, they saw a sight which sent them flying, with white faces, into the village. Within an hour I was on the spot and had taken over the case. "'Well, I have fairly steady nerves, as you know, Mr. Holmes, but I give you my word that I got a shake when I put my head into that little house. It was droning like a harmonium with the flies and bluebottles, and the floor and walls were like a slaughterhouse. He had called it a cabin, and a cabin it was, sure enough.' for you would have thought that you were in a ship. There was a bunk at one end, a sea-chest, maps and charts, a picture of the sea unicorn, a line of log-books on a shelf, all exactly as one would expect to find it in a captain's room. And there, in the middle of it, was the man himself, his face twisted like a lost soul in torment, and his great brindled beard stuck upward in his agony. Right through his broad breast a steel harpoon had been driven, and it had sunk deep into the wood of the wall behind him. He was pinned like a beetle on a card. Of course he was quite dead, and had been so from the instant that he had uttered that last yell of agony. I know your methods, sir, and I applied them. Before I permitted anything to be moved, I examined most carefully the ground outside, and also the floor of the room. There were no footmarks. Meaning that you saw none? I assure you, sir, that there were none. My good Hopkins, I have investigated many crimes, but I have never yet seen one which was committed by a flying creature. As long as the criminal remains upon two legs, so long must there be some indentation, some abrasion, some trifling displacement, which can be detected by the scientific searcher. It is incredible that this blood-bespattered room contained no trace which could have aided us. I understand, however, from the inquest, that there were some objects which you failed to overlook. The young inspector winced at my companion's ironical comments. I was a fool not to call you in at the time, Mr. Holmes. However, that's past praying for now. Yes, there were several objects in the room which called for special attention. One was the harpoon with which the deed was committed. It had been snatched down from a rack on the wall. Two others remained there, and there was a vacant place for the third. On the stock was engraved, S.S.C. Unicorn, Dundee. This seemed to establish that the crime had been done in a moment of fury, and that the murderer had seized the first weapon which came in his way. The fact that the crime was committed at two in the morning, and yet Peter Carey was fully dressed, suggested that he had an appointment with the murderer, which is borne out by the fact that a bottle of rum and two dirty glasses stood upon the table. "'Yes,' said Holmes, "'I think that both inferences are permissible. Was there any other spirit but rum in the room?' 
Yes, there was a tantalus containing brandy and whiskey on the sea-chest. It is of no importance to us, however, since the decanters were full, and it had, therefore, not been used. For all that, its presence has some significance, said Holmes. However, let us hear some more about the objects which do seem to you to bear upon the case. There was this tobacco-pouch upon the table. What part of the table? It lay in the middle. It was of coarse seal-skin, the straight-haired skin, with a leather thong to bind it. Inside was P.C. on the flap. There was half an ounce of strong ship's tobacco in it. Excellent. What more? Stanley Hopkins drew from his pocket a drab-covered notebook. The outside was rough and worn, the leaves discolored. On the first page were written the initials J.H.N. and the date 1883. Holmes laid it on the table and examined it in his minute way, while Hopkins and I gazed over each shoulder. On the second page were the printed letters C.P.R., and then came several sheets of numbers. Another heading was Argentine, another Costa Rica, and another San Paolo, each with pages of signs and figures after it. "'What do you make of these?' asked Holmes. "'They appear to be lists of stock exchange securities. "'I thought that J.H.N. were the initials of a broker, "'and that C.P.R. may have been his client.' "'Try Canadian Pacific Railway,' said Holmes. "'Stanley Hopkins swore between his teeth "'and struck his thigh with his clenched hand. "'What a fool I have been,' he cried. "'Of course it is as you say.' Then J.H.N. are the only initials we have to solve. I have already examined the old stock exchange lists, and I can find no one in 1883, either in the house or among the outside brokers, whose initials correspond with these. Yet I feel that the clue is the most important one that I hold. You will admit, Mr. Holmes, that there is a possibility that these initials are those of the second person who was present, in other words, of the murderer." I would also urge that the introduction into the case of a document relating to large masses of valuable securities gives us for the first time some indication of a motive for the crime. Sherlock Holmes's face showed that he was thoroughly taken aback by this new development. "'I must admit both your points,' said he. "'I confess that this notebook, which did not appear at the inquest, modifies any views which I may have formed.' I had come to a theory of the crime in which I can find no place for this. Have you endeavored to trace any of the securities here mentioned? Inquiries are now being made at the offices, but I fear that the complete register of the stockholders of these South American concerns is in South America, and that some weeks must elapse before we can trace the shares. Holmes had been examining the cover of the notebook with his magnifying lens. "'Surely there is some discoloration here,' said he. "'Yes, sir, it is a bloodstain. "'I told you that I picked the book off the floor.' "'Was the bloodstain above or below?' "'On the side next the boards.' "'Which proves, of course, that the book was dropped "'after the crime was committed.' "'Exactly, Mr. Holmes. "'I appreciated that point, "'and I conjectured that it was dropped by the murderer "'in his hurried flight.' It lay near the door. I suppose that none of these securities have been found among the property of the dead man. No, sir. Have you any reason to suspect robbery? No, sir. Nothing seemed to have been touched. 
dear me, it is certainly a very interesting case. Then there was a knife, was there not? A sheath-knife, still in its sheath. It lay at the feet of the dead man. Mrs. Carey has identified it as being her husband's property. Holmes was lost in thought for some time. Well, said he, at last, I suppose I shall have to come out and have a look at it. Stanley Hopkins gave a cry of joy. Thank you, sir. That will indeed be a weight off my mind. Holmes shook his finger at the inspector. It would have been an easier task a week ago, said he. But even now my visit may not be entirely fruitless. Watson, if you can spare the time, I should be very glad of your company. If you will call a four-wheeler, Hopkins, we shall be ready to start for Forest Row in a quarter of an hour. Alighting at the small wayside station, we drove for some miles through the remains of widespread woods, which were once part of that great forest which for so long held the Saxon invaders at bay, the impenetrable weald, for sixty years the bulwark of Britain. Vast sections of it have been cleared, for this is the seat of the first ironworks of the country, and the trees have been felled to smelt the ore. Now the richer fields of the north have absorbed the trade, and nothing save these ravaged groves and great scars in the earth show the work of the past. Here, in a clearing upon the green slope of a hill, stood a long, low stone house, approached by a curving drive running through the fields. Nearer the road, and surrounded on three sides by bushes, was a small outhouse, one window and the door facing in our direction. It was the scene of the murder. Stanley Hopkins led us first to the house, where he introduced us to a haggard, grey-haired woman, the widow of the murdered man, whose gaunt and deep-lined face, with the furtive look of terror in the depths of her red-rimmed eyes, told of the years of hardship and ill-usage which she had endured. With her was her daughter, a pale, fair-haired girl, whose eyes blazed defiantly at us as she told us that she was glad that her father was dead, and that she blessed the hand which had struck him down. It was a terrible household that Black Peter Carey had made for himself, and it was with a sense of relief that we found ourselves in the sunlight again, and making our way along a path which had been worn across the fields by the feet of the dead man. The outhouse was the simplest of dwellings, wooden-walled, shingle-roofed, one window beside the door and one on the farther side. Stanley Hopkins drew the key from his pocket and had stooped to the lock, when he paused with a look of attention and surprise upon his face. "'Someone has been tampering with it,' he said. There could be no doubt of the fact. The woodwork was cut, and the scratches showed white through the paint, as if they had been that instant done. Holmes had been examining the window. "'Someone has tried to force this also. Whoever it was has failed to make his way in. He must have been a very poor burglar.' "'This is a most extraordinary thing,' said the inspector. "'I could swear that these marks were not here yesterday evening.' "'Some curious person from the village, perhaps,' I suggested. "'Very unlikely. Few of them would dare to set foot in the grounds, far less try to force their way into the cabin. What do you think of it, Mr. Holmes?' "'I think that fortune is very kind to us.' "'You mean that the person will come again?' It is very probable. He came expecting to find the door open. He tried to get in with the blade of a very small penknife. He could not manage it. What would he do? 
come again next night with a more useful tool. So I should say. It will be our fault if we are not there to receive him. Meanwhile, let me see the inside of the cabin. The traces of the tragedy had been removed, but the furniture within the little room still stood as it had been on the night of the crime. For two hours, with most intense concentration, Holmes examined every object in turn, but his face showed that his quest was not a successful one. Once only he paused in his patient investigation. "'Have you taken anything off this shelf, Hopkins?' "'No, I have moved nothing.' "'Something has been taken. There is less dust in this corner of the shelf than elsewhere. It may have been a book lying on its side. It may have been a box. Well, well, I can do nothing more. Let us walk in these beautiful woods, Watson, and give a few hours to the birds and the flowers.' We shall meet you here later, Hopkins, and see if we can come to closer quarters with the gentleman who has paid this visit in the night. End of Part 1 of The Adventure of Black Peter The Adventure of Black Peter, Part 2, From the Return of Sherlock Holmes It was past eleven o'clock when we formed our little ambuscade. Hopkins was for leaving the door of the hut open, but Holmes was of the opinion that this would rouse the suspicions of the stranger. The lock was a perfectly simple one, and only a strong blade was needed to push it back. Holmes also suggested that we should wait, not inside the hut, but outside it, among the bushes which grew round the farther window. In this way we should be able to watch our man if he struck a light, and see what his object was in this stealthy nocturnal visit. It was a long and melancholy vigil, and yet brought with it something of the thrill which the hunter feels when he lies beside the water-pool and waits for the coming of the thirsty beast of prey. What savage creature was it which might steal upon us out of the darkness? Was it a fierce tiger of crime which could only be taken fighting hard with flashing fang and claw, or would it prove to be some skulking jackal, dangerous only to the weak and unguarded? In absolute silence we crouched amongst the bushes, waiting for whatever might come. At first the steps of a few belated villagers, or the sound of voices from the village, lightened our vigil, but one by one these interruptions died away, and an absolute stillness fell upon us, save for the chimes of the distant church, which told us of the progress of the night, and for the rustle and whisper of a fine rain falling amid the foliage which roofed us in. Half-past two had chimed, and it was the darkest hour which precedes the dawn, when we all started as a low but sharp click came from the direction of the gate. Someone had entered the drive. Again there was a long silence, and I had begun to fear that it was a false alarm, when a stealthy step was heard upon the other side of the hut, and a moment later a metallic scraping and clinking. The man was trying to force the lock. This time his skill was greater, or his tool was better, for there was a sudden snap and the creak of the hinges. Then a match was struck, and the next instant the steady light from a candle filled the interior of the hut. Through the gauze curtain our eyes were all riveted upon the scene within. The nocturnal visitor was a young man, frail and thin, with a black moustache which intensified the deadly pallor of his face. He could not have been much above twenty years of age. I have never seen any human being who appeared to be in such a pitiable fright, for his teeth were visibly chattering, and he was shaking in every limb. 
He was dressed like a gentleman, in Norfolk jacket and knickerbockers, with a cloth cap upon his head. We watched him staring round with frightened eyes. Then he laid the candle-end upon the table and disappeared from our view into one of the corners. He returned with a large book, one of the log-books which formed a line upon the shelves. Leaning on the table, he rapidly turned over the leaves of this volume until he came to the entry which he sought. Then, with an angry gesture of his clenched hand, he closed the book, replaced it in the corner, and put out the light. He had hardly turned to leave the hut when Hopkins' hand was on the fellow's collar, and I heard his loud gasp of terror as he understood that he was taken. The candle was relit, and there was our wretched captive, shivering and cowering in the grasp of the detective. He sank down upon the sea-chest, and looked helplessly from one of us to the other. "'Now, my fine fellow,' said Stanley Hopkins, "'who are you, and what do you want here?' The man pulled himself together and faced us with an effort at self-composure. "'You are detectives, I suppose?' said he. "'You imagine I am connected with the death of Captain Peter Carey. I assure you that I am innocent.' "'We'll see about that,' said Hopkins. First of all, what is your name?' "'It is John Hopley Neeligan.' I saw Holmes and Hopkins exchange a quick glance. "'What are you doing here?' "'Can I speak confidentially?' "'No, certainly not.' "'Why should I tell you?' "'If you have no answer, it may go badly with you at the trial.' The young man winced. "'Well, I will tell you,' he said. "'Why should I not? And yet I hate to think of this old scandal gaining a new lease of life. Did you ever hear of Dawson and Neeligan?' I could see from Hopkins' face that he never had.' but Holmes was keenly interested. "'You mean the West Country bankers,' said he. "'They failed for a million, ruined half the county families of Cornwall, and Neeligan disappeared.' "'Exactly. Neeligan was my father.' At last we were getting something positive, and yet it seemed a long gap between an absconding banker and Captain Peter Carey pinned against the wall with one of his own harpoons. We all listened intently to the young man's words. It was my father who was really concerned. Dawson had retired. I was only ten years of age at the time, but I was old enough to feel the shame and horror of it all. It has always been said that my father stole all the securities and fled. It is not true. It was his belief that if he were given time in which to realize them, all would be well and every creditor paid in full. He started in his little yacht for Norway just before the warrant was issued for his arrest. I can remember that last night when he bade farewell to my mother. He left us a list of the securities he was taking, and he swore that he would come back with his honor cleared, and that none who had trusted him would suffer. Well, no word was ever heard from him again. Both the yacht and he vanished utterly. We believed, my mother and I, that he and it, with the securities that he had taken with him, were at the bottom of the sea. We had a faithful friend, however, who is a business man, and it was he who discovered some time ago that some of the securities which my father had with him had reappeared on the London market. You can imagine our amazement. I spent months in trying to trace them, and at last, after many doubtings and difficulties, I discovered that the original seller had been Captain Peter Carey, the owner of this hut. Naturally, I made some inquiries about the man. 
I found that he had been in command of a whaler, which was due to return from the Arctic seas, at the very time when my father was crossing to Norway. The autumn of that year was a stormy one, and there was a long succession of southerly gales. My father's yacht may well have been blown to the north, and there met by Captain Peter Carey's ship. If that were so, what had become of my father? In any case, if I could prove from Peter Carey's evidence how these securities came on the market, it would be a proof that my father had not sold them, and that he had no view to personal profit when he took them. I came down to Sussex with the intention of seeing the captain, but it was at this moment that his terrible death occurred. I read at the inquest a description of his cabin, in which it stated that the old log-books of his vessel were preserved in it. It struck me that if I could see what occurred in the month of August, 1883, on board the Sea Unicorn, I might settle the mystery of my father's fate. I tried last night to get at these log-books, but was unable to open the door. Tonight I tried again, and succeeded, but I find that the pages which deal with that month have been torn from the book. It was at that moment I found myself a prisoner in your hands. "'Is that all?' asked Hopkins. "'Yes, that is all.' His eyes shifted as he said it. "'You have nothing else to tell us?' He hesitated. "'No, there is nothing.' "'You have not been here before last night?' "'No.' "'Then how do you account for that?' cried Hopkins, as he held up the damning notebook with the initials of our prisoner on the first leaf and the bloodstain on the cover. The wretched man collapsed. He sank his face in his hands and trembled all over. "'Where did you get it?' he groaned. "'I did not know. I thought I had lost it at the hotel.' "'That is enough,' said Hopkins, sternly. "'Whatever else you have to say, you must say in court. You will walk down with me now to the police station.' "'Well, Mr. Holmes, I am very much obliged to you and to your friend for coming down to help me. As it turns out, your presence was unnecessary.' and I would have brought the case to this successful issue without you. But, none the less, I am grateful. Rooms have been reserved for you at the Brambletye Hotel, so we can all walk down to the village together. "'Well, Watson, what do you think of it?' asked Holmes, as we travelled back next morning. "'I can see that you are not satisfied.' "'Oh, yes, my dear Watson, I am perfectly satisfied.' At the same time, Stanley Hopkins' methods do not commend themselves to me. I am disappointed in Stanley Hopkins. I had hoped for better things from him. One should always look for a possible alternative and provide against it. It is the first rule of criminal investigation. What, then, is the alternative? The line of investigation which I have myself been pursuing. It may give us nothing. I cannot tell. But at least I shall follow it to the end. Several letters were waiting for Holmes at Baker Street. He snatched one of them up, opened it, and burst out into a triumphant chuckle of laughter. "'Excellent, Watson. The alternative develops. Have you telegraph forms? Just write a couple of messages for me. Sumner, shipping agent, Ratcliffe Highway. Send three men on to arrive ten tomorrow morning. Basil. That's my name in those parts. The other is Inspector Stanley Hopkins, 46 Lord Street, Brixton. Come breakfast tomorrow at 9.30. Important. Wire if unable to come. Sherlock Holmes. There, Watson, this infernal case has haunted me for ten days. I hereby banish it completely from my presence. 
"'Tomorrow I trust that we shall hear the last of it forever.' Sharp at the hour named, Inspector Stanley Hopkins appeared, and we sat down together to the excellent breakfast which Mrs. Hudson had prepared. The young detective was in high spirits at his success. "'You really think that your solution must be correct?' asked Holmes. "'I could not imagine a more complete case.' It did not seem to me conclusive. "'You astonish me, Mr. Holmes. What more could one ask for?' "'Does your explanation cover every point?' "'Undoubtedly. I find that young Neeligan arrived at the Brambletye Hotel on the very day of the crime. He came on the pretense of playing golf. His room was on the ground floor, and he could get out when he liked. That very night he went down to Woodman's Lee, saw Peter Carey at the hut, quarreled with him, and killed him with the harpoon. Then, horrified by what he had done, he fled out of the hut, dropping the notebook which he had brought with him in order to question Peter Carey about these different securities. You may have observed that some of them were marked with ticks, and the others, the great majority, were not. Those which are ticked have been traced on the London market, but the others, presumably, were still in the possession of Carey, and young Neeligan, according to his own account, was anxious to recover them in order to do the right thing by his father's creditors. After his flight he did not dare to approach the hut again for some time, but at last he forced himself to do so in order to obtain the information which he needed. Surely that is all simple and obvious? Holmes smiled and shook his head. It seems to me to have only one drawback, Hopkins, and that is that it is intrinsically impossible. Have you tried to drive a harpoon through a body? No? Tut-tut, my dear sir, you must really pay attention to these details. My friend Watson could tell you that I spent a whole morning in that exercise. It is no easy matter, and requires a strong and practiced arm. But this blow was delivered with such violence that the head of the weapon sank deep into the wall. Do you imagine that this anemic youth was capable of so frightful an assault? Is he the man who hobnobbed in rum and water with Black Peter in the dead of the night? Was it his profile that was seen on the blind two nights before? No, no, Hopkins. It is another and more formidable person for whom we must seek. The detective's face had grown longer and longer during Holmes's speech. His hopes and his ambitions were all crumbling about him. But he would not abandon his position without a struggle. You can't deny that Neeligan was present that night, Mr. Holmes. The book will prove that. I fancy that I have evidence enough to satisfy a jury, even if you are able to pick a hole in it. Besides, Mr. Holmes, I have laid my hand upon my man. As to this terrible person of yours, where is he? I rather fancy that he is on the stair, said Holmes serenely. I think, Watson, that you would do well to put that revolver where you can reach it. He rose and laid a written paper upon a side-table. "'Now we are ready,' said he. There had been some talking in gruff voices outside, and now Mrs. Hudson opened the door to say that there were three men inquiring for Captain Basil. "'Show them in, one by one,' said Holmes. The first who entered was a little Ribston Pippin of a man, with ruddy cheeks and fluffy white side-whiskers. Holmes had drawn a letter from his pocket. "'What name?' he asked. "'James Lancaster.' "'I am sorry, Lancaster, but the berth is full. "'Here is half a sovereign for your trouble. 
Just step into this room and wait there for a few minutes. The second man was a long, dried-up creature with lank hair and sallow cheeks. His name was Hugh Pattens. He also received his dismissal, his half-sovereign, and the order to wait. The third applicant was a man of remarkable appearance. A fierce bulldog face was framed in a tangle of hair and beard, and two bold, dark eyes gleamed behind the cover of thick, tufted, overhung eyebrows. He saluted and stood sailor-fashion, turning his cap round in his hands. "'Your name?' asked Holmes. "'Patrick Carnes.' "'Harpooner?' "'Yes, sir. Twenty-six voyages.' "'Dundee, I suppose?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And ready to start with an exploring ship?' "'Yes, sir.' "'What wages?' Eight pounds a month. Could you start at once? As soon as I get my kit. Have you your papers? Yes, sir. He took a sheaf of worn and greasy forms from his pocket. Holmes glanced over them and returned them. You are just the man I want, said he. Here's the agreement on the side table. If you sign it, the whole matter will be settled. The seaman lurched across the room and took up the pen. "'Shall I sign here?' he asked, stooping over the table. Holmes leaned over his shoulder and passed both hands over his neck. "'This will do,' said he. I heard a click of steel and a bellow like an enraged bull. The next instant Holmes and the seaman were rolling on the ground together. He was a man of such gigantic strength that, even with the handcuffs which Holmes had so deftly fastened upon his wrists, he would have very quickly overpowered my friend had Hopkins and I not rushed to his rescue. Only when I pressed the cold muzzle of the revolver to his temple did he at last understand that resistance was vain. We lashed his ankles with cord and rose breathless from the struggle. "'I must really apologize, Hopkins,' said Sherlock Holmes. "'I fear that the scrambled eggs are cold.' However, you will enjoy the rest of your breakfast all the better, will you not, for the thought that you have brought your case to a triumphant conclusion. Stanley Hopkins was speechless with amazement. I don't know what to say, Mr. Holmes, he blurted out at last, with a very red face. It seems to me that I have been making a fool of myself from the beginning. I understand now what I should never have forgotten, that I am the pupil and you are the master. Even now I see what you have done, but I don't know how you did it, or what it signifies. Well, well, said Holmes, good-humouredly. We all learn by experience, and your lesson this time is that you should never lose sight of the alternative. You were so absorbed in young Neeligan that you could not spare a thought to Patrick Carnes, the true murderer of Peter Carey. The hoarse voice of the seaman broke in on our conversation. See here, mister, said he. I make no complaint of being manhandled in this fashion, but I would have you call things by their right names. You say I murdered Peter Carey. I say I killed Peter Carey. And there's all the difference. Maybe you don't believe what I say. Maybe you think I am just slinging you a yarn. Not at all, said Holmes. Let us hear what you have to say. It's soon told, and by the Lord every word of it is truth. I knew Black Peter, and when he pulled out his knife I whipped a harpoon through him sharp, for I knew that it was him or me. That's how he died. You can call it murder. Anyhow, I'd as soon die with a rope round my neck as with Black Peter's knife in my heart. How came you there? asked Holmes. 
I'll tell it to you from the beginning. Just sit me up a little, so as I can speak easy. It was in 83 that it happened, August of that year. Peter Carey was master of the Sea Unicorn, and I was spare harpooner. We were coming out of the ice pack on our way home, with head winds and a week's southerly gale, when we picked up a little craft that had been blown north. There was one man on her, a landsman. The crew had thought she would founder and had made for the Norwegian coast in the dinghy. I guess they were all drowned. Well, we took him on board, this man, and he and the skipper had some long talks in the cabin. All the baggage we took off with him was one tin box. So far as I knew, the man's name was never mentioned, and on the second night he disappeared as if he had never been. It was given out that he had either thrown himself overboard or fallen overboard in the heavy weather that we were having. Only one man knew what had happened to him, and that was me, for with my own eyes I saw the skipper tip up his heels and put him over the rail in the middle watch of a dark night, two days before we sighted the Shetland lights. Well, I kept my knowledge to myself, and waited to see what would come of it. When we got back to Scotland it was easily hushed up, and nobody asked any questions. A stranger died by accident, and it was nobody's business to inquire. Shortly after Peter Carey gave up the sea, and it was long years before I could find where he was. I guessed that he had done the deed for the sake of what was in that tin box, and that he could afford now to pay me well for keeping my mouth shut. I found out where he was through a sailor-man that had met him in London, and down I went to squeeze him. The first night he was reasonable enough, and was ready to give me what would make me free of the sea for life. We were to fix it all two nights later. When I came I found him three parts drunk, and in a vile temper. We sat down, and we drank, and we yarned about old times, but the more he drank, the less I liked the look on his face. I spotted that harpoon upon the wall, and I thought I might need it before I was through. Then at last he broke out at me, spitting and cursing, with murder in his eyes, and a great clasp-knife in his hand. He had not time to get it from the sheath before I had the harpoon through him. Heavens, what a yell he gave, and his face gets between me and my sleep. I stood there with his blood splashing round me, and I waited for a bit, but all was quiet, so I took heart once more. I looked round, and there was the tin box on the shelf. I had as much right to it as Peter Carey, anyhow, so I took it with me and left the hut. Like a fool I left my backy-pouch upon the table. Now I'll tell you the queerest part of the whole story. I had hardly got outside the hut when I heard someone coming, and I hid among the bushes. A man came slinking along, went into the hut, gave a cry as if he had seen a ghost, and legged it as hard as he could run until he was out of sight. Who he was or what he wanted is more than I can tell. For my part, I walked ten miles, got a train at Tunbridge Wells, and so reached London, and no one the wiser. Well, when I came to examine the box, I found there was no money in it, and nothing but papers that I would not dare to sell. I had lost my hold on Black Peter, and was stranded in London without a shilling. There was only my trade left. I saw these advertisements about harpooners and high wages, so I went to the shipping agents, and they sent me here. That's all I know, and I say again that if I killed Black Peter, the law should give me thanks, for I saved them the price of a hempen rope. A very clear statement, said Holmes, rising and lighting his pipe. 
I think, Hopkins, that you should lose no time in conveying your prisoner to a place of safety. This room is not well adapted for a cell, and Mr. Patrick Carnes occupies too large a proportion of our carpet. Mr. Holmes, said Hopkins, I do not know how to express my gratitude. Even now I do not understand how you attain this result. Simply by having the good fortune to get the right clue from the beginning— it is very possible, if I had known about this notebook, it might have led away my thoughts as it did yours, but all I heard pointed in the one direction. The amazing strength, the skill in the use of the harpoon, the rum and water, the sealskin tobacco pouch with the coarse tobacco, all these pointed to a seaman, and one who had been a whaler. I was convinced that the initials P.C. upon the pouch were a coincidence, and not those of Peter Carey, since he seldom smoked, and no pipe was found in his cabin. You remember that I asked whether whiskey and brandy were in the cabin. You said they were. How many landsmen are there who would drink rum when they could get these other spirits? Yes, I was certain it was a seaman. And how did you find him? My dear sir, the problem had become a very simple one. If it were a seaman, it could only be a seaman who had been with him on the sea unicorn. So far as I could learn, he had sailed in no other ship. I spent three days in wiring to Dundee, and at the end of that time I had ascertained the names of the crew of the Sea Unicorn in 1883. When I found Patrick Carnes among the harpooners, my research was nearing its end. I argued that the man was probably in London, and that he would desire to leave the country for a time. I therefore spent some days in the East End, devised an Arctic expedition, put forth tempting terms for harpooners who would serve under Captain Basil, and behold the result. "'Wonderful!' cried Hopkins. "'Wonderful!' "'You must obtain the release of young Neeligan as soon as possible,' said Holmes. "'I confess that I think you owe him some apology. The tin box must be returned to him, but, of course, the securities which Peter Carey has sold are lost forever. There's the cab, Hopkins, and you can remove your man.' If you want me for the trial, my address and that of Watson will be somewhere in Norway. I'll send particulars later. End of The Adventure of Black Peter, Part 2